This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. Okay. And we are back. Art of Darkness, Art of Darkpod.com, Patreon.com slash Art of Darkpod, T.me slash Art of Dark Pod for the Telegram channel. Uh, today, we're doing an episode on David Foster Wallace. But first, before we get to that, I'm Brad Kelly. This is my co-host, Kevin Kautzman, the great Howdy. Kevin Kautzman. How you doing, man? Yeah, uh, never better. How are you, Brad? You know, I'm good, but I'm like really conscious that I'm simply supposed to say that I'm good because we have this sort of check-in expectation everyone in our generation has with each other where it's really, at least in part, to like assuage the guilt of the asker about being somehow there or present or available for the other person. And as the person asked, you have to, especially in the public like this, say that you're you know fine or great or as good as can be or, you know, live in the so-called dream because otherwise the person might have to confront your suffering in a kind of like psychotherapeutic sense, which is to say, you know, too much to ask of someone, especially a putative and or, you know, actual friend such as yourself. And so I'm not supposed to say that I've been up since 3 a.m. and I'm going to crash immediately after this episode or that my stomach kind of hurts a little bit or that I'm not really not looking forward to the seven or eight things that I have to do tomorrow. And of course, I'm not just a representative of myself here, but a sort of idealized Brad Kelly, co-host of Art of Darkness. And Art of Darkness is like everything else is sort of brand that has to present itself as somehow something both less than and more than what it actually is. So you might as well ask me how the show is doing, to which I would have to say for like professional, developmental and professionalistic showbiz reasons that it's going really well, which it is. And yet, as you know, modern American, I'm supposed to somehow downplay and be humble, while also confident, boisterous. When you get lost in the calculus of finding just the right balance between these two things, you have to ask yourself, how would I even know if it wasn't going just great? Yes, sirree. And because, but if it, okay, so this, 
(laughs) (laughs) And I realized that went on for a little too long. And that was half the point. Um, Yes. So today we're going to be talking about David Foster Wallace. Uh, If you're not familiar I was just sort of doing my best David Foster Wallace impersonation. Not a particularly good impersonation. The writing was better than the delivery on that one, I would say. Um, But yeah. Um, How long did you labor over that intro? You know what? It's funny. About three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) You know what we're going to call that? That was the infinite intro. There you go. I have another like hundred words of it. And I just, I, I wanted to go just past the point where I was like uncomfortable continuing. So, um, so anyway, that's it there. We're talking about David Foster Wallace and we got to ask the art of darkness question. Uh, Kevin, what do you know about David Foster Wallace? I hadn't even thought about this today. Mm. Uh, so let me, well, obviously a novelist, novelist uh, an american novelist of generation x i believe mm-hmm. uh author of the famous doorstopper infinite jest posthumously the pale king mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. uh i know that he famously dated some other writers i can't remember the name lady writers mm-hmm. uh and that he was a professor. I attempted Infinite Jest before putting it down mm-hmm. in grad school in where we cases. met. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I infer from Infinite Jest that he was a tennis player of some ability mm-hmm. and that he may have been difficult. I think he was also friends with with Franzen. Yes. Yes. And that is a, oh, and I know that he wrote some essays and I believe I've read some of them, but it's been a very long time. And and he shares the name with uh, an airport code. Yeah, that's right. Detroit, uh, Mm -hmm. Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, that is all, that's all exceedingly accurate. And we'll fill in some spots there that, you know, you know, who are these people that he dated and that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, that's all, that's all about fair. And I like that you say, I, I attempted, you know, I, I, I picked up infinite jest and put it down. I don't think there's any shame in that. I mean, for people who don't know, you know, infinite jest is around 1100 pages. um, And it's, um, Aspects of reading it are difficult, and I think even uh, David Foster Wallace himself would have said that. We're going to talk more about sort of that book. Um, it's kind of the centerpiece of his oeuvre, so it's sort of necessary. And we're going to talk about you know what he was intending with it, and a little bit about that book, and what people thought about it, and you know varying opinions. Some people sort of loathe it, um, but it was very celebrated upon its release. So um, especially at a time where big thick thousand page books weren't necessarily on the menu if you will like in the mid 90s there wasn't a lot well, of and, and it came out in the mid 90s huh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah All right. in- interestingly enough and so we'll, we'll kind of launch into it here so interestingly enough david foster wallace is actually a tail end boomer so he's born in 1962 
technically, I think Generation X supposedly starts in 1965. Um, but, you know, once you get towards the the ends of any of these generations, you're kind of a little, you know, it's it, it's not. A yeah, phase anymore, right? I identify as a Gen X millennial cusper yeah. who was right. raised in part by Depression era children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. It's all fluid. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you're like, uh, you know, you can't eat at certain restaurants if you're not a you know, <laughs> Gen X or something. I had a, uh, <laughs> oh, we're getting there, Brad. Don't worry. <laughs> I uh, I had a thought earlier this week. And it's like, you know, that that meme, you know, and it's the little girl in front of the Twin Towers. And it says the world you grew up in no longer exists. Mm-hmm. I I had the thought that like, yeah, but neither did the one you, it never did. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, do you know yeah. what is it all it was always mean? imaginary it was always imaginary yeah indeed yeah brad you cut out here you, you're on mute buddy i apologize i we're live streaming oh, i was trying to get that thing so it wasn't making noise yeah yeah um yeah. um okay so we will we're gonna get into this i think the these generational anxiety sort of thing not even anxieties but just noticing them and the different uh things that affect them and impact them and what they you know their their place in the world that stuff is all very um front of mind in the Dave, david foster wall sort of life and project so i think this is all all relevant stuff <clears throat> so born february 21st 1962 dies september 12th 2008 uh for people who can't do the quick mental math 46 years old not an old man by any stretch okay pretty um, young. Yeah, yeah. He's born in uh, Ithaca, New York. His father at the time is a graduate student in philosophy at Cornell. So no lightweight. Oh, um, yeah, he's a, he was a man who'd done uh, undergraduate work at Amherst, which is going to come back into our story. Um, his dad, James, he comes from a family of I think his dad's still around. His his family comes from a um uh his family is you know sort of professionals from Troy, New York, which is near Albany. For people who don't know, uh, Sally, David's mother, comes from a little bit more of a rural family, kind of uh rural rural Maine. Um, her father's a you know potato farmer, and her grandfather was a Baptist minister. Um, she was actually the first member. David Foster Wallace's mother, the first member of her uh family to go get to get a bachelor's degree she got a uh, english hmm. degree from uh, holyoke college which is one of the seven sisters right near amherst which i believe is where his parents met would be, would have been right in that area and i know um, you're going to be getting uh, to it but what yeah. are we going to do for after dark for yeah. patreon subscribers good yeah hmm. good good um uh we're going to talk more. We're going to hit it a little bit because we have to for the story here, but we're going to talk about it more in the after dark um, for a variety of reasons that maybe will seem clear. We're going to talk more in depth about the very end of David Foster Wallace's life, the suicide that oh. came in, in 2008. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to we're going to mention it here. It's part of the story. I just mentioned it, but I, I want to kind of reserve. I felt I felt tabloidy. I'm starting to write down these details mm. and I'm like, I want to handle this a little differently. So part of how I'm doing that is we're pushing it into the after dark. Um, and then we're also going to talk about Pale the Pale King, his posthumous novel, which to my in my opinion, it includes some of the very best David Foster Wallace writing. Um, so I'm going to uh. share a couple bits of that with you that I think I think rank as good or better than anything you ever did. 
are you gonna you know we call this a do-rag are you gonna put that back on for the <laughs> for the after for patreon mm-hmm. might, yeah just for just that. for me just for me yeah <laughs> uh patreon.com uh, slash art of dark pod i'll say it again patreon.com slash art of dark pod please support the pod every yes. episode we do for the remainder of the year will feature an american literary figure who kills himself i am kidding <laughs> Please don't. Uh, we, I can't we, handle no, that psychically, Kevin. We have, a, we have a far more diverse array of people who we are doing this year. It's going to be fun. We just happened yeah. to pick. I did Hemingway mm-hmm. and Brad did DFW. Mm-hmm. It's a coincidence. Yeah. And it's interesting. We're going to see, I think, as, for as different as these guys were in terms of the work that they put out, I think we're, and obviously they weren't born at the same time, generational differences. I think we're actually going to see a surprising number of similarities between the two. Hmm. Um, so it's just okay. interesting. We we sort of coincidentally put these two guys next to each other. Sometimes we plan a little bit the sequence of our core episodes, but really it's it's not so much like we're trying to do two similar people it's yeah no there's yeah. no planning uh it's simply just chaos yeah. and we we do take requests not that we yeah. always meet them but we have an yeah. ongoing spreadsheet from mm-hmm. people and of course you can you can get at us in the telegram t.me slash art of dark pod we also have an email art of dark pod at gmail.com i i genuinely like hearing from people ah you should do this person you should do that yeah. person and yeah. we, they all go into the spreadsheet yeah uh and so we're in season three right now. Mm-hmm. Season three is already in the queue, but we'll yeah. start thinking about season four sooner rather than later because we like to plan ahead. We will be doing a couple of episodes that are going to have to be a one-two punch on purpose. Like I think mm-hmm. I do Freud, you do Jung. Yeah. That's going to be fun. And then I really like this idea of doing Shakespeare, Stratfordian, yeah, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah. And and Shakespeare Oxfordian Brad, uh, yeah, I yeah. love that idea, and I think we should do it legit. like the same day, <laughs> so the other person does it. So we both do like two, two and a half. Anyway, we'll yeah, this is turning like into that. a production meeting, right? But you got to get excited about what Art of Darkness is mm-hmm. doing, and if you want us to keep doing this, and you want us to keep spending the hours researching and buying books and digging in, so we can deliver these core episodes. Support us at patreon.com slash art of dark part. All right, back to DFW. Yeah, yeah. So um, oh, one thing I want to mention as I'm getting into uh, just kind of what I'm, my references are going to be. Primarily, we're going to be um, looking at every love story is a ghost story. Uh, this is sort of the biography by DT Max. Um, also, an interesting book. I never really read a book quite like this. Um, uh, although, of course, uh, you end up becoming yourself a road trip with David Foster Wallace. This was the one that was turned into um, the movie um, End of the Tour with Dave, uh, by uh, with Jason Siegel playing David Foster Wallace. People may be familiar with that. That's based on this book and the interviews from this book. Um, and then and then his his I've got a couple other articles and things we'll talk about when they come up. And then, of course, the work of David Foster Wallace himself. So um, cool. So. We were talking about his parents. Let me read a little bit about his mother. Um, just to give you a sense of, I want to get you give you a sense of the household he grew up in. And I think par- aspects of his personality are probably going to make sense once we sort of have an idea of where he came from. So, so this is about his mother. <clears throat> then this is from uh, 
the every love story is a ghost story. Um, quote, no one else listened to David as his mother did. She was smart and funny, easy to confide in, and included him in her love of words. Even in later years, and in the midst of his struggle with the legacy of his childhood, he would always speak with affection of the passion for words and grammar she had given him. If there was no word for a thing, Sally Wallace might invent it. Greebles, for instance, for instance, meant little bits of lint, especially those that feet brought into bed. Twanger was the word for something whose name you didn't know or couldn't remember. She loved the word phantods, meaning a deep feeling of fear or repulsion, and talked of the howling phantods, this fear being intensified. These words, like much of his childhood, would wind up in Wallace's work. To outside eyes, Sally's enthusiasm for correct usage might seem extreme. When someone made a grammatical, uh, grammatical mistake at the Wallace dinner table, she would cough into her napkin repeatedly until the speaker saw the error. She protested to supermarkets whenever she saw the sign 10 items or less posted above their express checkout lanes. Wallace would later give this campaign to uh, in infinite jest to the predatory mother figure of Avril and Condenza, co-founder of the militant grammarians of Massachusetts. For Sally, David's mother, grammar was more than just a tool. It gave membership in the club of educated persons. The intimation that so much was at stake in each utterance thrilled David and added to the excitement, excitement of having a gifted mother, as did her sensitivity. Sally hated to shout. If she was upset by something, she would write a note. And if David or Amy had a response, they would slip it back under her door in turn. Even as a little boy, Wallace was attuned to the delicate drama of personality. Okay. Oh, I had a mother who was a, a grammar nazi. Is that right? For yeah. sure. School teacher. Mother. Yeah. 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 And I grew up around people for whom that was a, that that made you stand out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. not always an easy road to hoe. You know that. You know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, idiocracy where he yeah. talks and everybody thinks he sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> right. It's a little bit like that at times. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But for the sort of flip side of it is like. If you think about her background and, and, you know, if you come from a less educated situation and you're looking to have that American dream upward mobility, well, one thing is like one thing that's free is mm. enunciating and using proper grammar. That's free. Right. Just ripping the word ain't out of right. your vocabulary. Right. Is, right. You're right. It's free, but it, it does. It can cost little boys an awful lot on the playground. <laughs> it's not It's not cool. <laughs> Nobody thinks it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. For Very sure. interesting. <laughs> I like that she would, what, she would cough until they corrected themselves. Yeah. So if they oh. said she'd just, <clears throat> you know, mm. do that kind of mm. thing until they got it right. And day mm. and. DFW would be a bit of a grammar. He, he would, he would, he would vary because he, it, well, well, we'll get to it. I mean, he was interested in, 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 inexact and in quote unquote incorrect language, but he also was like, he, he was one of these people who he believed that you had to know the grammar deeply if you were going to screw around with it as a writer, right? Like, yeah. You don't just get to write whatever you want. You have to know exactly why you're making the choices you're making if you're going to mess with grammar, which I tend to agree with. Um, um, so that was his mother. Uh, his father, I don't have as much to say about him necessarily, but he seems to be just generally a very kind man. Like I said, philosopher, that would be his career, would be in, in philosophy and in academia. Um, he wrote books on ethics and pragmatism and John Dewey and would sometimes read from books at the dinner table, even supposedly Moby Dick when they were just children. So um, John Dewey? Uh, yeah, John Dewey. 
It's not the Dewey Decimal System guy. John Dewey, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's very like pragmatic sort of, you know, ah. American philosophy. Yeah. Mm. Whenever um, I hear the name Dewey, aside from the decimal system, I think mm. of the law firm Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Right. <laughs> That's right. Kind of yeah. dad yeah, joke. Yeah, I don't think this is that Dewey, but <laughs> mm, mm. yeah, but very it's um and, and this is I guess is important. It's very um uh his father, James Wallace, he's not into any sort of radical philosophy. He's not really into like even continental. He's almost like it's almost like the it's it's very like it, it's pragmatism. It's like, how do you decide the sort of very basic, like everyday right thing to do kind of philosophy, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's but that is going to be important for us thinking about David David's evolution. And did you thinker. did you say that his father came from an established professional family? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We don't want anything too extreme. Mm -hmm. Things are mm -hmm. working out for the uh, yeah. is it Wallace family. Wallace family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there is a bit of a like. Yeah. You can boat. study philosophy as long as you it, there's you don't find anything in there that makes you quit your good job. It's that kind Correct. of thing, right? Yes. Yeah. If the philosophy starts to make you feel something, <laughs> shut it down. Right out. <laughs> shut it down. Yeah. Mm. Uh, all right. I've got another. I've got a bit again from the biography about what it was like growing up in the in the Wallace household. Um, quote: The Wallace home was one where there was always room for an appeal. From the age of 10, David uh, would write memos to his parents detailing injustices, so it was natural for him to assume that the rest of the world would be as, as interested in his opinion. This approach led, predictably, to friction with many grown-ups. David's cries of why and that doesn't make sense were familiar at Yankee Ridge Elementary, where he went from 1969 to 1974. And though teachers saw how smart he was, many found him a handful. One day at Crystal Lake Day Camp, where he and Amy went many summers, he grew tired of the counselors and the rules and simply walked several miles back to his house. His mother minute. drove he, back to the camp he, in a fury and he, asked them to produce her son. When they could not, she said, because he's at home. Yeah. Anyway, he sorry, went to Camp Crystal Lake. Yeah, I thought child. that was an odd, an odd. That's oh, geez. He <laughs> is Jason. He just missed out on Jason Voorhees. Jason Voorhees with a do-rag correcting his grammar. He doesn't like it at all. <laughs> He's like, if I stabbed you, you know, it would feel good for me, but then I'd be worried about the fact that I was... <laughs> he, mm, very mm. curious, yes. And then yeah. the whole thing with the mother as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, and there was, yeah, and what was it? Yeah. Mm, what Go was ahead. it called? Yankee Ridge. Yankee Ridge Elementary School. Yeah, this is actually once they moved to <laughs> Illinois because he they didn't he didn't really uh, grow up in Ithaca. They moved. They they, they oh moved I see. Illinois so they're in quickly. Illinois now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. So I think he was four years old or something when they moved to Illinois. They had he had a sister. Um. Uh, was born two years after him. Um. And when they moved to Illinois, this is basically his father had had earned his his uh, PhD um, and had gotten a position teaching philosophy at the University of Illinois. And his father would stay there, University of Illinois, teaching philosophy for uh, almost 50 years. Right. So the just, fight in the line. Eye. Right. 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 Yep. And, and they buy this house that was sort of situated right up against farmland. So there wasn't, you know, they're not farmers, but they're very much like they're they're practically they're in a more rural environment than even the suburbs i would say um um okay so uh let's see what okay his mother oh his mother went on to teach english at parkland community college so they're both you know in the 
you know, community college and her, his, his father's teaching philosophy at University of Illinois. Um, and this is, the, this is the environment that they're in. There's a latent, uh, but sort of never, never clearly articulated pressure that David Foster Wallace feels to succeed academically, right? He's always kind of feeling that like, well, my dad's a, a, a tenured professor of philosophy. That's I, I've got to do at least that much, whatever it is that mm. I end up doing. Right. Yeah. 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 Many such cases. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, so he's so, you know, I'm going to try to paint this picture of like the, this kid. So it's. They're living out almost in the country. There's a t- there's a, there is, you know, some civilization there. Um, David Foster Wallace gets I don't think this is going to be a surprise. He sort of reads obsessively, reads at a higher level. You know, one of these kids, obviously, he reads sort of past the level of his school. And you would expect that just from who his parents are, kind of right. That's like this is going to be sort of an expectation. They were probably reading to him very early. Like I said, maybe Moby Dick at the dinner table when they were children. But he also gets obsessed with television. Um, Intense amounts of TV, watching everything. Night Gallery, Rod Serling show after Twilight Zone, um, Kojak, the Night Stalker, Price is Right. He got into soap Ooh. operas. Like he would wow. watch everything, right? Hmm. Um, and later on, when he has sort of acknowledges his addictions, he will kind of come around to the opinion that television was actually his worst addiction out of all of them. And, Heavy. you know, this is a guy who you know went into rehab for alcohol. So, but hmm. television actually, he thought was something he had more of a problem with. Um, that is a that's a thing people don't talk about. Everybody talks now about the little black rectangle, which yeah. is reasonable. It is, uh, yeah. and yet I guarantee there are a lot of people out there still right now who have an addiction to to television. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, 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 for sure. It, I mean, you figure what three four hours a day, you should like recoil in horror at the thought of that but that's that's a normal day for a lot of people i mean the tell when i was a kid the television was always on in our house always on at least one television sometimes sometimes two or three but always Mm -hmm. at least one television was on so this this resonated with me i was like yeah i i get that you're home you just watch tv watch whatever's on yeah doesn't matter yeah and this is what i me meant earlier about that your the world of your childhood didn't exist either it's it's yeah. all fugazi fugazi it's right. all media and right 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 paper and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um like i said he had a sister david was not always super kind to her she would say nice things about him afterwards that he was something like a benevolent bully um he was apparently you know fairly aggressive with her at times and always was bigger than her um he apparently one time i don't know the details i don't know that anybody knows the details he apparently once knocked out little amy his sister's front teeth in some kind of tug of war accident um and then even like when they were in their teens, he would sometimes tease her and he would sort of cross the line into kind of calling her fat and ugly, which she she was neither of these things by any means. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. So a little bit of like aggression, a little bit of sort of pushing down a little bit. But siblings. Where, stuff is that, too. where is that coming from? Do you have any idea? Just boys you know, will be boys like i think there's a little bit of that i think there's children a bit children of, are cruel i mean yeah yeah they don't there's know a, there's a little bit of sibling stuff that just is often takes on a physical nature i think he was super competitive 
Mm. Um, mm. and I, you know, right. I think well, he was super self-aware of that and like, he kind mm-hmm. of didn't, he's one of, he didn't like that part of himself, but it was clearly there. Um, yeah. so it could have been some I'm already the, beginning yeah. to understand why he would make a do-rag part of his personality later right. in life. Right. Just feels right. Yeah. We're going to talk about it, but it is a funny gesture. It's sort of like one of these things. There's always this, like, he's sort of performing, but sort of hating that that he's performing but has to do it and then like does things to seem like he's hiding from performing that seem even more like it's it's a very it never it never stops sort of folding in on itself the public the persona that he's he's presenting well maybe i'm getting a little ahead of things here but i can see why in a funny way you'd think he would have been more reclusive like you think about Salinger, who's gotten away with it, uh, mm-hmm. and or got away with it. Salinger alive? Uh, I think he died uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, he died, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then uh, Pynchon, mm-hmm. who's gotten away with it. I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like DFW might have been one of these guys who could have benefited from that kind of anonymity. But in any case, yeah, mm-hmm. I think the challenge here is a little bit is there was, and we're going to talk more about it the level of attention on infinite jest when it first dropped was about as big as it can be for a piece of literary fiction. Like, Oh, I don't know that anything since then in American letters has gotten this kind of attention on its release. Um, in terms of like an, uh, in terms of like a literary, like a smart, a quote unquote smart person's book, right? Like a, not, you know, Hmm. Stephen King like drops maybe a yeah. Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCarthy is probably that's probably the biggest one since. Um, and then we will talk about it, but David really wanted people to see him. Like he really uh, wanted, he really wanted like that pat on the head from the universe that was like, you're special, David. Well, maybe there's something yeah. about the TV and this TV fixation he wants to see. And he's a, you know, there's that voyeuristic thing. Hi, YouTube. Right. YouTube.com <laughs> slash at Art of Dark Pod. And, uh, but at the same time, like it's a desire to be seen. You want to be reflected back in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you ever, did you ever uh, get on television at any point, Brad, uh, like as a child, no. did they ever interview? They interviewed me once uh, for something at my school and I was on the local news for like five seconds. This mm-hmm. was an event, right? This felt like, then there's just something about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Weird. Yeah, yeah, I don't exist a... until the box says that I exist. Right, somehow. right, right. And yeah, so when Infinite Jest comes, it's like he does literally exist now. And so, how mm. do you you say no to all that? Like, I think there would be in thinking again about that folding in on himself. If he says no, like that's performative. Like, you know what I mean? It's mm. like you're saying no, what? Because you're too good for it. It's like this is all you, right. you know. So mm. it sort of makes sense to me why he was a bit of a public figure. Um, I want to read something again. We're still in his childhood. Um, and I think this is going to be, this is an important piece um, from the biography. Quote, there is another thread that weaves in and out of Wallace's childhood. He believed in later years that the mental disease that would in many ways define his life began at, uh, at this time, summer of 71 or 72. He's nine years old. Wallace was oh, uh, first occasion. He wrote first occasion of depressive, clinically anxious feelings. Uh, he became excessively afraid of mosquitoes, especially of their buzzing. His parents say they did not notice problems this early, nor did his sister. Um, it's a lot easier to fix something if you can see it, a character comments in Infinite Jest. 
But in a family that prided itself on openness, Wallace never felt safe disclosing himself. He worried then, as he always would later, that to know him too well would be to dislike him, or at least dislike him as much as he disliked himself. He felt a fake, a victim, uh, as he would later write, of, quote, imposter syndrome. Now, some people say, if you have imposter syndrome, you are an imposter. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but um, so he's dealing with he's dealing with the beginnings of what he would call later the bad thing in his life. And this is this basically never goes away. He it the bad thing, the depression, it takes vacations, it leaves him alone briefly, but it's never it's never gone ever. Um, so this is going to keep coming back up. Um, he. As he becomes a that's teenager. interesting. So we've got so we've got with DFW, we have the bad thing with Hemingway. He called it his black ass. Yeah. Uh, PKD called the called it the black iron prison. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, maybe that's not the, uh, the exact parallel. But yeah. what a what yeah. a very curious phrase. The bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's a like it's a being of its own, like it's a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that you have to sort of contend with, and you appease it, and hide Burrows. it. Burrows, first episode, yeah, ugly, the ugly spirit, yeah, the ugly spirit. Oof. Yeah, so okay. this is not, this isn't, you know, this is in some ways. Uh, I'm gonna give mine a nickname. I'm gonna call <laughs> mine like Gary or something. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, Gary's been over again. Yeah, it's been a. It's been Don't a worry, mature, the but... gun's unloaded. <laughs> Gary's not gonna get me now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as DFW gets into his teenage years, he discovers two uh, important things, I would say, in his work or in his life. Uh, the first is marijuana and the second is tennis. I'm going to read you a little bit about tennis as a boy or a teenager from this article he wrote that would be in Harper's and later collected in his work of nonfiction called uh, Trig- uh, Tennis Trigonometry Tornadoes. Okay. And this is good because this gives us, we haven't read any of, we haven't gotten any of David Foster Wallace's real words yet. So I think this is a good taste and it's biographical. Um, Between the age, between the ages of 12 and 15, I was a near great uh, junior tennis player. I cut my competitive teeth beating up on lawyers and dentist kids at Little Champagne and Urbana country club events and was soon killing whole summers being driven through a Sorry, excuse me, through dawns to tournaments all over Illinois, Indiana, and Iowa. At 14, I was ranked 17th in the United States Tennis Association's Western section, um, fourth in the state of Illinois, and around 100th in the nation, having flown in 1976 at the Regional Association's expense to the U.S. National Junior Hardcourt Championships in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where in the second round, I got my rural ass handed to me by a California kid named Scott Davis, who's now a marginal figure on the pro circuit. My flirtation with tennis excellence had way more to do with a weird proclivity for intuitive math and with the township where I learned and trained than with athletic talent. Even by the standards of junior competition in which everybody's a tight bud of pure potential, I was a pretty untalented tennis player. My hand-eye was okay, but I was neither large nor quick, had a near-concave chest and chest and wrists so thin I could bracelet them with a thumb and a pinky and could hit a tennis ball no harder or truer than most girls my age. What I could do, in the words of my township's juniors coach, uh, a thin guy who chewed red man and spat into a Folgers can, was, quote, play the whole court. This was a tennis cliche that uh, could mean any number of things. In my case, it meant I knew my limitations and the limitations of the courts I played on and adjusted thusly. 
I was at my best in bad conditions. Now, conditions in central Illinois are from a mathematical perspective interesting and from a tennis point of view bad. Summer heat and uh, wet mitten humidity, moths and crap gnats forming an asteroid belt around each tall lamp at night, and the whole lit court uh, surface a flutter with spastic little shadows, mosquitoes that spawn in the field's furrows and in the... Uh, Conferva, I don't know what that means. Conferva chocked ditches that box each field, and most of all, wind. Okay, so very good tennis player for a kid, right? But but sort of not talent, not raw talented, right? Go ahead. Did he in Infinite Jest? Do I recall him talking about? I might be conflating Infinite Jest with the Agassi uh bio auto bio but one Wallace of them would talks find about... that interesting that you did that oh if that's the okay. case okay <laughs> well uh there okay. it is yeah go ahead. there you have yeah. it uh but one of them talks about tennis being a battle for territory mm. it's a war for territory that could be that could have uh, been in infinite just infinite just is 1100 pages there's a lot in there it could very well be in there it, it might be in there i yeah i can't say i'm gonna rush to reread it or attempt right, right. to reread it <laughs> right, but that right. is an interesting point to make and, and i am noticing his um astounding ability to sort of describe the game on a really mm -hmm. serious and heavy level and he clearly thought about it yeah not just yeah. to hit the ball and, and of course they all do but yeah. few if I mean, he may be exclusive in the ability to describe it with that kind of level of, uh, I guess, prose styling, you would yeah. say. But yeah, it's really tempting to think about tennis as hit the ball over. You're trying to get a win with the ball, but really you're they're battling for the court the entire time. Yeah, is, yeah. Is you're trying real, to you're, you're really you're not just trying to hit it back. You're trying to hit it back in a way that the other person is going to struggle to hit it back to you. And if they do hit it back to you, it's going to be hitting hit back to you in some way that's advantageous to you, right? I mean, there's That's there's so a, funny cuz that's our philosophy for the podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, top this one, Kevin. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um so tennis again, tennis big deal. He would um later in his teenage years, he would work summers teaching tennis at like the local park he would teach like the kids class in the morning he would teach some you know middle-aged women in the afternoon this was sort of his job is i think his first job was teaching tennis actually and i did want to stress this because it was important to him it's important to infinite jess but like also that he was quite good again you know a hundredth in the nation you know you're no one's putting you on the cover of a magazine but that's that's I mean, it's better than I did in any sports. It's better than maybe anybody I personally knew growing up with did in any sports, honestly. So, um, so pretty, pretty good, pretty talented guy, right? Uh, in his way, as he described it. Um, he also does pretty well in school. Uh, an English teacher of his and high school said that he was the brightest student she remembers ever teaching. Um, and between that, good grades, and you've got this travel tennis thing, he, you can imagine, he kind of quickly develops a certain level of autonomy that maybe another boy his age wouldn't have had, right? Hey, hey David's a good kid, great tennis player. You know, he's good sports, doing good in school. He doesn't really get in trouble. Go let him do his thing. And so a certain amount of, and this this helps the, this aided his sort of addictions or um, issue with with weed and with television, right? And sort of given maybe a little bit too much room, maybe. Yeah, what's the big complaint about weed? It's going to make you lazy. It's right. going to make you maybe a bit stupid. It might make you creative, God forbid. Right. right. Uh, but no, here he is. He's an excellent athlete. Yeah. So even yeah. if you find out he's smoking pot, it's like, well, I don't know. can't really accuse like, him of being lazy. He's doing right. well in school. And, right. Okay. Right. 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 Um, I at any point, Brad, I, may I interject? At yeah, any point, did you come across this list of the his favorite books? 
Is that something uh, I you did? I don't have it handy, but I, I've, I've got it. Okay. I will, because uh, in the uh, chat, because we are streaming this on YouTube mm-hmm. live in the chat, it just happened to come up one of our, and I think this is, this is interesting. One of the fellows mm-hmm. in the chat said that he heard from an exorcist that just as everyone has a guardian angel assigned to them, the devil assigned an evil spirit to every person just for them, Ooh. which is great. Uh, very interesting and exciting. I don't know how doctrinal that is, but I wrote back saying the screw tape podcast, Mm. uh, because of course the screw tape letters. And then it just so happens another person in the chat said that was apparently on a list that may, he may have just been having a laugh, but apparently that's the number one book. No, no, that that was an important book to him. Yeah. The screw tape letters are an important book to him for sure. Yeah. Funny synchronicity. I'm going to, we'll go down this whole list of the top 10 on the after dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. And cool. these will be DFW's uh, favorite books, yeah. according to him. And there yeah. may have been a little bit of uh, Maybe a little in flim family. Yeah, I yeah, don't exactly. think, I think it's probably sincere. I think you might be surprised. I think people might be surprised by how commercial some of it is. Yeah. Very commercial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We'll get so, into it on the after dark. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, okay. Here's a little description. Um, kind of what's going on with, 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 uh, Wallace teenage years. Um, again, from the bio quote, <clears throat> Wallace was growing less and less happy. His childhood anxiety was back. He could be obsessive, unwilling or unable to leave whatever impinged on his world unexplored. Mostly it seemed funny more than anything else to those who knew him character rather than disease. Um, he he wrote in a later essay, my particular neurological makeup is extremely sensitive, car sick, air sick, height sick. My sister likes to say I'm life sick. Okay, But by the end of high school, his problems were hard to ignore. On his sister's 15th birthday, Wallace refused to go out with his family. Why would I want to celebrate that? He asked pointedly. The family was confused and chalked it up to his always simmering competitiveness with Amy. But in fact, as they realized years later, he was having an anxiety attack. Right. So he's he's, you know, on the edge of anxiety, depression, sort of acting out, lashing out. These things are all sort of boiling and taking shape when he's a teenager. Now, he's got some other things that aren't just um, there. There's not just sort of the depressive thing. There is a pretty profound social anxiety. And to talk a little bit. I guarantee at this point. The family is just thinking it's a phase. Yes. He's going through a phase. Yeah. And I think he was hiding it too, as much as he could, as much as you can, excuse me, hide a thing like that, which you can't hide it entirely, but you can, you can shave the edges off of it. Right. So it's not as, not as, not as pronounced. Um, He had a thing where he sweat a lot and it's not really worth noting, except he writes about it in The Pale King. He he makes another character have this, a character have this sweating issue, and he exaggerates it, like, intensely. I'm going to read a little bit of this, because it's sort of about himself, but it's, 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 it's uh, made much worse to comical effect. <clears throat> so again, this is from The Pale King. Uh quote it was in public high school that this boy learned the terrible power of attention and what you pay attention to he learned it in a way whose very ridiculousness was part of what made it so terrible and terrible it was at age 16 and a half he started to to have attacks of shattering public sweats reading down a little bit in his 17th year though it started to bother him 
he became self-conscious about the sweating thing. This was surely related to puberty, the stage where you suddenly get much more concerned about how you appear to other people, about whether there might be something visibly creepy or gross about you. Within weeks of the start of the school year, he became more and more differently aware that he seemed to sweat more than the other kids did. The first couple of months of school were always hot, and many of the old high school's classrooms didn't even have fans. Without trying to or wanting to, he started to imagine what his sweating might look like in class. His face gleaming with a mixture of sebum and sweat, his shirt sodden at the collar and pits, his hair separated into wet little creepy spikes from his head's running sweat. It was the worst if he was in a position where he thought girls could maybe see it. The classroom's desks were all crammed together. Just the presence of a pretty or popular girl on his sight line would make his internal temperature rise. He could feel it happening unwilled, even against his will, and start the heavy sweating. Okay, reading down a little bit more. For there were by this time degrees and gradations of public sweating, from a light varnish all the way up to a shattering, uncontrollable, and totally visible and creepy sweat. The worst thing was that one degree could lead to the next if he worried about it too much, if he was too afraid that a slight sweat would get worse and try too hard to control or avoid it, the fear of it could bring it on. He did not truly begin to suffer until he first understood this fact and understanding he came to slowly at first and then all of an awful sudden. Okay, and it goes on for a while, uh, but <laughs> you can imagine uh... the fact that he was writing about this 30 some years later towards the end of his life. This was a this was a any you know he's kind of having a laugh with it but I think he saw this deep metaphor this notion that if you th you think about the thing you're self conscious of you actually make it worse and then you're then you're more self conscious about it that's I think a, a very apt uh, analogy for his entire sort of personality uh, psychology and this is that behavior that I was doing at the beginning, my quote unquote impersonation of David Foster Wallace, mm -hmm. it's that it's you, you never stop folding in on what the thing is right ever. Um, and you can it's, imagine that gets painful and uncomfortable. It gets uncomfortable to be that after a right, while. If, you, if that was your internal monologue, I, I don't know what you would do. Well, you'd probably end up uh, writing a thousand. You probably end up writing some monstrous book like this bad boy, right? Right. Or yeah. and or you might look for the nearest exit. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. Agreed. Mm -hmm. So um, nonetheless, he does really good in high school and he is off to Amherst where his father went. I don't know, Kevin. Do you know anything about Amherst? Not really. Okay. Uh, no, no, I mean, to. it's it's in uh, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah. believe it's what it's what they would call. Uh, what's the line from Nutcranker? Uh, <laughs> a highly <laughs> prestigious, yeah. highly esteemed liberal arts uh, college. Yeah. Something. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I believe that's what it is. Nutcranker in the book club coming up for Patreon. Yeah. The great Dan Baltic, the show's show's lawyer, mm -hmm, until mm -hmm. if and when they ever flip us on the charts in Cyprus, and then we've got serious problems. <laughs> uh, but in any case, yeah, we, we have a book club too. Check it out; it's at the yeah. website artofdarkpod.com. Yeah, yeah, fun. Absolutely. Well, so Amherst. I mean, it's one of these schools that, like a flyover rube like me, you hear about. You know, it's supposed to be important. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not an Ivy League school, but it's, it's no, it's out it's, east. It's a big deal, probably yeah. extremely expensive, fancy, fancy pants, fancy yeah. lad school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very, it's a, it is. I mean, 
you know, depending on what you think college should be for, it's a very, very good school. Right. <laughs> what does he go? <laughs> what yeah. does he study? Um, he is sort of uncertain at first, but eventually he's going to become, he's thinking about going into philosophy, specifically logic. He very much liked, oh. remember, his, remember the kind of philosophy his father liked? He likes, uh. the, he likes it to be as mathematical as it can be. Like he wants. It I have to, be, to yeah. and of course, I have a degree in philosophy mm -hmm. from the the great University of Minnesota, mm -hmm. which regularly tops beats Amherst. So much. I'm making this up. I have no <laughs> idea. Uh, but I was so thrilled to finally be past my math requirements by the time I got into like my second year of university, mm -hmm. and only to discover that you have to take formal logic mm -hmm. in order to get a, philo a philosophy degree at the University of Minnesota, and they snuck a math class in. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a math class. And interestingly, Laughs in engineering, bachelors of engineering. <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough, it's one of the classes that I got the most out of because mm -hmm. I struggled so mightily mm -hmm. with it. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. I mean, that's that's uh, very difficult. Well, it was difficult for me. Uh, mm -hmm. That's yeah. In any case. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's the direction he wanted to go. Things would change by the time he gets out of it. We're going to talk about it a little bit because this is the this is the critical period. A little bit on Amherst, third oldest college in Massachusetts, which we know is, you know, that means it's probably up there with the oldest colleges in the country. Um, it's fairly small. It's one of these schools that gets about a thousand to maybe two thousand students a year. Right. Um, <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. Yeah. It's so tiny. It's little. It's very little. Um, mm. And you start out in a sort of an open curriculum. I mean, you kind of determine what your own, you know, to a certain degree, what your own, you know, your, your education is going to be made up of. Um, it's got some pretty alumni worth mentioning, including six Nobel laureates. Uh, Calvin Coolidge went to Amherst, the one time pr uh, prime minister of Greece. Um, and the Prince of Monaco, actually, who was there at the same time as David Foster Wallace, and they were in Glee Club together. Just an odd, <laughs> just an odd Ooh. kind of thing. Interestingly, Fun. more than one directors of the CIA went to Amherst. I don't know why that is, but great, like great school, outstanding yeah. school. Yeah, yeah, just a brilliant school. <laughs> Anyone who went to Amherst is brilliant, right? right. <laughs> Clearly, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's true. A fantastic yeah. school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what's their what's their mascot? The I have the no Ammies? idea. Oh my god. Oh oh oh. I'm on a list now. I'm gonna look it up right okay. now. Yeah, yeah. Go yeah, Ammies yeah. or whatever. Um. <laughs> oh, it's 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 a mammoth. Really? It, this is the uh there's a new mascot is a mammoth. The, go Mams. The old mascot was called the Lord Jeffs, <laughs> and they dropped it uh okay. for some reason. Well, yeah, I don't know what a Lord Jeff is. Like is a Lord I don't really Can know. We what agree that is. not to look into this further. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to crawl back into the comfort of my <laughs> my state school, my big That's university. Right. You just hide. To, yeah, you don't even want yeah, to. Yeah, they're like this. Um, Fifty thousand students at a time. You're just literally. You know, I am you can, just you, a number. You can hear the sound of a meat grinder their first day on campus for some reason. <laughs> they're getting educated. <laughs> 
by the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thousand people. That's how many people were like at the Chipotle when I tried to go to lunch at colleges I went to. Yeah, hundred percent. So, uh, so anyway, Walls does pretty well as a student. He's a very he's he's in some ways he's well equipped for academia. Um, he makes some friends and they quickly start to realize, you know, just how smart David Foster Wallace really is, right? Um, he's getting A pluses in everything. He's getting notes from teachers that say things like, the, quote, this is the finest piece of writing I've ever read. Uh, one time he comes into his fresh room, freshman uh, dorm room at 1 a.m., stoned out of his mind, tells his roommate that he could, David Wallace says, hey, man, I read that I can write a better paper on Henry V than you scans his roommate's essay disappears for a couple of hours, comes back, gives the kid a report and that report gets an A, right? Very weird, like kind of prodigious stuff. He wins an award for the highest grade point average for a freshman. And he does all of this stoned out of his mind. (laughs) Okay. Uh, he makes a number of friends, though, during this time that would be friends for, for life, including this guy, Mark Costello, um, who he would later write a book with called Signifying Rappers, sort of sort of a pop academic kind of cultural commentary on rap music. Um, uh, I had to do this. I, I looked up the controversy around the the Lord Jeff. OK, and it's, yeah, it's my chef kiss perfect it's exactly what you would think it's it's perfect the mascot is a caricature of lord jeffrey amherst an english general who proposed giving blankets from smallpox patients to native americans (laughs) quoting (laughs) could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of indians lord amherst wrote in one letter the college says america america it's a good school yeah and now it educates the heads of the cia yeah right Great. cool yeah i I think i no no further comment i think (laughs) enough said yeah about amherst exactly yeah uh Let's see, we're at, we're at, what else about his time at Amherst? Oh, he makes friends with this kid, uh, Corey Washington. And I'm really only mentioning him, not because he's super important biographically. He seems like an interesting guy in his own right. Um, but not that he's super important to David Foster Wallace, except that he was going to Amherst at 15 years old. This was one of David's closest friends at the time. Just that's interesting. Um, he was starting to get, uh, Wallace was, some interest from girls um, as Kevin you probably know in college college kicks off and all kinds of things become attractive to different people for different reasons <laughs> i think we can say um as a college kid he's very like unlaced timberland boots sort of like mm-hmm. chicago bears sweatshirt very um not particularly concerned with his appearance on the one hand but also on the other hand like desperately insecure about his acne and his sweating and that sort of thing right so it's sort of like maybe you could compensate for the stuff you're worried about if you just like cared a little bit about some of the easy stuff you know what i mean like (laughs) i think this is why i identify him with gen x a little bit 
because yeah. he feels that way just his mm-hmm. appearance and the vibe he puts off oh yeah you know? yeah he's definitely I, I i identify him with the generation x as well actually it made me like look up wait what are the generation x years like this has to be mm-hmm. but technically well, that's he, that's perfect that's that's exactly what that is it's just mm-hmm. neither here nor there yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um second semester of sophomore year rolls around and the bad thing comes back on him um he you know it turns out that uh david foster wallace's aunt on his mother's side and a great uncle had both taken their own lives other members of the family had suffered from depression to varying degrees um and he's starting to be able to articulate what's going on to him a little more to friends and family. I want to say, I want to stress a little more. He would tell his sister around this time that basically what it boiled down to is that the world was frightening and uncomfortable and nothing seemed to have any meaning. So it's so tricky because an assessment of the world like that is not necessarily wrong. Right. And yeah. if you don't have something like a uh, strong faith or a, something you're passionate about, which palliates that, or, right. you know, this is where the addictions start to come in mm-hmm. and you're trying to just fill that hole and more TV and probably has he started drinking yet? No, not really. No, not right. in any kind of noticeable problem way. I'm sure he has drank at this point to some degree, but mostly up. But he's already he's already got the marijuana. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the the pot, you know, really, I'm not going to say that people don't have problems with it sometimes for him at this time. It probably was exacerbating the depression, maybe, uh, but it didn't seem to interfere with his ability sort of on a moment to like to function like so. Yeah, clearly not. It's hard Mm. to see what the role, what what the fault, where what role that played in all this. But none of this stuff is, you know, you know, you know, there's no one thing to explain any uh, situation like this. Right. Um. So he goes back to Illinois. He he like takes a leave of absence. He goes back to Illinois. He drives a school bus for a while. <laughs> and the Glee Club was never the same. That's right. I'm sure he was a great singer. He, 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 he drives a school bus? Yeah, like as a job, like as something to do with his time, hmm. you know. Um he's you know he's moving, horrible. He's moving back with his parents. And it's funny, like to me, is like I saw this picture of him moving back to this sort of semi-rural Illinois, just flat, right? Nothing really going on. He apparently liked how flat it was. He found that comforting. And he found the geometry of the farmland itself, the way things are sort of like noticeably demarcated, he found that comforting as well. So just a sort of, some people do find that comforting. I think a lot of people find the rural environment comforting, but I don't think many people are like, ah, I like it because it's all very clear, very carefully laid out. Like, I don't think that's what people like about those environments, actually. <laughs> well, it probably reminds them of a tennis court. Or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the little... shape of a book. Yeah, yeah. It feels like hmm. being at home. Um, During this time, this break, sophomore year of Amherst, this is when he actually starts writing. He'd written very little up until this time. Um, One of his first stories is called The Clang Birds. I'm not going to read it or anything, but it is interesting because he throughout his life will occasionally refer to clang birds. And in this book, it's about a fictional bird or species of bird that flies in ever decreasing circles until it disappears up its own ass. Um, This is like my career. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> same, same. What um, do you mean? It, wait, so it goes in ever narrowing circles and then it yeah. literally flies up its own ass. Yeah, it's like a thought experiment, right? It's like, you know, what if, what if a bird just kept flying in smaller and smaller circles? Would it fly uh, up its own ass kind of thing? Right. Yeah. Huh. So I, I, I suppose it, I suppose it would. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> so this is the that kind of a short thought experiment. Yeah, it's not that it's not that interesting. Okay. It's about as interesting as one sentence. Um, mm. uh, he would experiment with some more realistic stuff at this time, too. You know, he's not he's he's whatever, 19 years old. He's just sort of playing around with it at this point. Um, Write some sentimental poetry. I mean, who hasn't? Uh, and he starts to strongly consider a p- career in politics. And what's interesting, and this will bubble up a little bit from time to time, I think um, it's probably very easy to just offhandedly assume that David Foster Wallace is a sort of, I don't know, like off the shelf liberal, I would think is probably what most people would would say, would think. And uh, most of his public statements, things he said in public that had a political um, cast to them were in the George W. Bush invade Iraq era. So, you know, you could be you could be extremely conservative and still be pretty pissed off at George W. Bush, right? Um, what we find is that his temperament is actually fairly conservative. He had a real thing that was like almost sexual for Margaret Thatcher when he was young. He had like a poster of her in his room, which no who that's just weird to me. Uh, the iron. La- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, he, had, he had a thing for yeah. her. I don't know what the, I don't have a good explanation. I, I, I think that qualifies as like a BDSM adjacent kink. The, the Thatcher poster. Right. Fascinating. It seems mm. like it. That seems kind of odd. Um, Rather severe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and I think in other ways he was fairly like a fairly conservative guy. I mean, he he wrote a he followed John McCain on the campaign trail um, in 2000. Wait, I don't have the year handy. But anyway, um, in the 2000s, when um, when McCain was running for president, he followed him around in, against in, against Obama. So it would have been 2007, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess it would have yeah, been because it yeah, was towards okay. the end. Yeah. And something and, and, like that. And, hmm. and it wasn't in a like, I'm going to try and like, you know, point out how bad McCain is. It's like, I want to see if McCain's really as honest as the sort of the sort of branding is like he had hope for a, that McCain was the real deal. Basically. That was the that was the Palin one, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Fun. Uh, so anyway, so I just kind of want to put that note in there. And at this time, as a as a 19, 20 years old, he's actually thinking about politics. And then if you're going to Amherst, you could go to a worse college to get your start in a career in politics. Right. You're in a glee club with the Prince of Monaco. And not that the Prince of Monaco is that helpful to get a, you know, a state Senate seat, but it's good to know these people. Um, sure. Hey, yeah. Prince. Can right. you write, write me a reference letter for politics? Right. For politics. Yes. To <laughs> politics. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, he he start, oh, he starts dating this girl here to who's back, uh, she, who's at home in Illinois, not at Amherst. She's actually a psych major at Indiana University. Her name's Susie Perkins. It's his first sort of significant romantic relationship. It's kind of on again, off again. We might not circle back around to it, but it's it's there. And, and it's important to note that she's like a girl from back home. She's not an Amherst mm. girl. And I just want to plant that as a sort of a 
understanding his mentality. Hmm. Um, there were two things that got so he gets he he leaves school. He basically leaves school because he's having he can't handle it psychologically. He's having breakdowns and anxiety attacks. He leaves. Um, and there's two things that help him get back on track. One is getting more into um, the the analytical philosophy and logic side of ac- of a- his academic career, right? Getting really serious about that, which I think is interesting because to me it sounds like he's and this is sort of this is sort of psychologizing, but to me I think there was an aspect of like, okay, something about my brain doesn't work right. Right. I'm smart. I'm, I'm good with words. Maybe I can figure out like a two plus two equals four solution to why I, life doesn't feel meaningful to me. Maybe there's an equation, a formula, a logical, logical set sequence of words in which I can convince myself that it's meaningful somehow. Right. Something airtight that I can't question. I think that's. Part yeah. Of it, yeah. It reminds me time. of somebody who maybe falls into chess. I am into chess now. I am going to become a master at chess, and I'm Mm -hmm. going to read about it, know all the openings, and master it, and become extraordinarily good at this one thing, because every game starts the same way, Mm -hmm. and it's something that I can control. Right, Mm. right. Yeah. Um, It was also, excuse me, it was also the first thing that he said made, uh, and this really stuck out to me, the whole logical, the logic side of philosophy. It made something click in his brain and it made me think about remember the character of brick and cat on a hot tin roof talking about drinking sure yeah Yeah, that click click. Mm. and that when i read that i was like oh (laughs) i think that's what it is i think this is what the the books are about i think this is what the drugs for him are later about the weed the women and i think all of it is trying to get that little click to happen um philosophy is doing it for him at 1920 it wouldn't do it for him forever um he goes on oh thank christ (laughs) (laughs) oh man i mean some of the philosophy professors i had you look at them and you just you think oh maybe one day i'd like to be a professor and you just Mm. go No, maybe not. If this is what this looks like, like God love you. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm gonna go over here. Right. I'll gotta go over here for a minute. Yeah, yeah. You got he's he's got the uh the dress shirt tucked in and no belt. Right. Starting <laughs> starting to have feelings about this. Oh, we're, we're here to study a Mm. Yeah. We're here to study epistemology. How about you study G- the J.C. Penney's menswear department? <laughs> <laughs> Professor Not that no belt. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is funny. When he went to, when Dave Foster Wallace went around a couple circuits, he'd been around the block a few times. He goes to Harvard to study. He's like, I'm going to get my uh, PhD in philosophy from Harvard. This is that's a good school. It is a good school. Everybody knows that's a good mm. school. Um mm. And um, I don't know who's directing the CIA now, but the future director is probably at Harvard. Um, (laughs) And he goes there and he has a similar experience to what you're saying, sort of, where he's just like, he gets there and he's like, oh, I don't belong here. Like, I don't have anything in common with any of these people. Like, oh, wow. This was a huge Wait, he he gets into the PhD program in philosophy at Harvard. Okay. Yeah. That's that's crazy. We're going to talk about it more. Yeah. Wait, okay. Are you. uh, a yeah, bunch of other stuff of happens it? before that. Yeah, okay, a bunch okay, of other stuff right. happens before that. Yeah, yeah. that is uh, not easy. 
No, not at all. Um, so one thing, other thing, I said that the logical philosophy stuff gets him sort of back on track, back into Amherst. The other thing is Tafranil, brand name for imipramine, which was the first tricyclic antidepressant, an early drug in, that came out of the 1950s explosion of psychiatric meds and has now been basically replaced by SSRIs. So Tafranil was his first prescribed psychiatric medication. Um, I take Tafranil every morning and work <laughs> on logic problems. Tafranil. If this, then that. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty good. <laughs> That'll be $18,000 for the read. You're welcome. That sounds fair, really. I mean, you can't yeah. afford not to buy that. It's it'd be really <laughs> funny if I said top of the world our side effects may include right. uh, bad <laughs> podcasting, not enough Twitter followers, uh, inability yeah. to monetize YouTube. <laughs> twelve thousand writing a twelve thousand page book that everyone claims mm. to read. Uh <laughs> he gets back to he gets back to Amherst, spring of nineteen eighty-three. And he actually seems to be on track. He's reuniting with friends. They start working on a sort of Harvard Lampoon type publication where they're, you know, they're all writing stuff and putting uh, putting articles and things together. Um, and he's starting to find literature that makes the click. And the stuff that really, he's a pretty well-read kid, but what really starts to kick it off for him is postmodernism. Uh, Bartolome's The Balloon. Uh, Pynchon's Crying of Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow, which apparently supposedly he read Gravity's Rainbow in Eight Nights, which sounds insane to me. Um, and these, this kind of stuff. And this is the stuff that really like, oh, turns him, turn like, you know, he's somebody who'd been very interested in philosophy, uh, like logical, logic problems, right? And then he starts to read this fiction and is like, oh, this is what I like doing. This is interesting, right? Yeah, that um, tracks. Those are those yeah. two trains coming into the station together. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Now, but by the fall of that year, he is again in heavy depression. And I want to read this a little bit from the bio again. Quote, quietly, Wallace again thought about hurting himself. McLaughlin uh, was on his mind. Um this is a this is a friend of his, McLaughlin. During their hours in the womb, which was a study area they had, they called it the womb, Wallace had debated suicide with McLaughlin. Music playing, they kicked around the fate of Ian Curtis of Joy Division, who hanged himself at the age of 23. In high school, McLaughlin himself had once stood on the edge of an overpass with a bottle of champagne in one hand, contemplating throwing himself onto the Illinois tollway. For McLaughlin, killing yourself could be the fitting, maybe even necessary, exit for the sensitive artist from the brutal world. Wallace, though he'd known a despair deeper than his friends could friends could imagine, wasn't so sure. Suicide looked to him like an escape rather than a solution. He knew depression too well to see it as glamorous. He looked around for ways to harm himself, but decided instead to withdraw from school again and find a psychiatrist. So, <clears throat> second time he's taking yeah. a leave of absence for mental health reasons, right? Um, 1983, it's his junior year, I guess. Um... He comes back uh, and, he, and he's on he's already on this medication. Yeah, he's oh. been on this medication for, you know, six months or something by this time. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, they do try to they do take him off the medication. They kind of decide that this Tofrenil is not going to work. They try some other things 
it's just becoming clear that this isn't just a contextual thing though like there is a point where it's like you know earlier in his life is like you know you could blame it on a bunch of things you know high school is weird and kind of sucks for a lot of people right college you're trying to adjust to a new environment or whatever but at this point he's just like oh no this is like a thing that lives inside of me that never really goes away and this is sort of dawning on him at this at this at, in this second breakdown this really starts to become obvious for him um mm. he yeah i have another little bit to read here too from that's related to this um yeah okay <clears throat> This is a note he sort of wrote to himself and he put on his bulletin board at home. The bad thing is you, he concludes, uh, echoing the caption under the Kafka picture he had on his bulletin board. And then the letter cont continues. The bad thing is you, nothing else. You are the sickness yourself. You realize all this here. And that, I guess, is when you look at the black hole and it's wearing your face. That's when the bad thing just absolutely eats you up or rather when you just eat yourself up. When you kill yourself all this business about people committing suicide when they're quote severely depressed we say holy cow we must do something to stop them from killing themselves that's wrong because all these people have you see by this time already killed themselves where it really counts when they commit suicide they're just being orderly so he writes this at like 20 years old right <clears throat> um yeah it's tough man <laughs> it's and it's easy to right, just this be is like, a guy yeah good no, this is a guy who likes orderly things too. Uh, yeah, the fields yeah. and the shape of a tennis court, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. what, yeah. What do you do with this thing? Um, he goes back to school. He gets back to Amherst, spring of '84. New commitment to writing fiction. It's about it's probably spring of 1984 where he decides, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. Right. Almost the worst thing that could happen. You yeah. send your your son to a, a highly esteemed liberal liberal arts college and he decides yeah. to become a writer yeah david Disaster. i thought you were going to become director of the cia what is this i hear <laughs> <laughs> well i took the uh the career aptitude test and yeah sure it says i should be the director of the cia but i really want to sing right. and dance <laughs> right. and write 1200 page right. novels yeah, yeah oh man yeah, it's just like oh my uh, god oh, <laughs> okay whatever we're never whatever. gonna financially recover from this <laughs> that's why he had to work that's why he had to work at university of illinois for 50 years probably <laughs> sure. a long time um he was when you know so he gets very he's very interested in writing fiction but then he takes a fiction writing course remember the kinds of writers he was interested in at that time right and you could add to that now people like t.s Eliot and derrida um, he takes a fiction writing course. He's disappointed to find that the only thing they're really teaching is like mainstream realist fiction. You know, you're talking about sure, like Raymond Carver. It's not bad. It's just not, that's not what that's didn't, that didn't make the click. And David Foster Wallace said, that's not what he's there for. Right. Later, he would come to really appreciate that kind of stuff. But at this time, that's not, that doesn't mean anything to him. Um, he's, you know, he's in irony mode. He's in self-reflexivity, breaking the fourth wall, you know, disrupt all these, all the intellectual, all the stuff that makes postmodernism cool, but also all the stuff that makes it gimmicky as a literary style, right? Um, has to be done. You know, this is the stuff that kind of turns him on. Um, 
he would describe his entry point to writing fiction not as like sensitivity to the interiority of people so not about character it's really about the fact that he was an incredibly good forger or mimic he's called it a, himself a forger but a mimic he could write in anybody's style and a lot of his early stuff are like deliberate like parodies of other writers it's like what if uh frank norris wrote a story about this what if you know Dave, what if pynchon wrote a story about this that was kind of how that was a lot of his very early stuff was like that um yeah oh nah i will skip that. i was going to read part from pale king but i think we're going to skip that anyway there's that that tennis uh metaphor coming back again right you're he's yeah. he's like hitting the ball back and probably yeah. picking up shots like oh this guy's got some spin i'll put i'll put the same spin on it and give it right back i can right. i can play the whole court right 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 mm-hmm. and yeah and then those styles they become just tools and and again you're talking about somebody who's got you know for all his issues very high iq he can keep these plates spinning he can figure out why does why does pinchin sound like pinchin why does Kafka sound like Kafka? He can pick all that up on like a syntactical level, right? And just and just churn it right back out. Um, uh, now, here's another interesting bit. So this, by the time he's ready to leave Amherst, this writing project has turned from a few short stories into a novel, The Broom of the System. Now, as he's writing The Broom of the System, he's becoming this sort of ex- eccentric celebrity on campus. He gets his own room as a senior, which is apparently what happens at Amherst. You get your own room by yourself. He's taking this course on literature of madness. He's getting deep into Wittgenstein, who, by the way, we're going to do season four of Wittgenstein. Uh, gets into tobacco now, smoking. and then You're going to do Wittgenstein? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready. I know a little bit about old okay. Vinny. Yeah. Okay. I don't know much about him except it's a okay. I know a little bit. I know a little bit. We're gonna um, go on a learning journey together. Yeah. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. I look forward to it. Uh uh oh, tobacco. I, I was saying he picks up tobacco senior year of college, smoking, chewing. It would kind of be with him for most of the rest of his life. Just a note. Uh he is writing hard now too, like the oh. way he used to watch TV, right? Sometimes tobacco he... was made for this guy, oh, nicotine, yeah, yeah, yeah. and this guy. Impossible to imagine him without. Yeah, I don't know how he would have gotten out, not gotten trapped by it, right? Unreal. Um, yeah. yeah, he's writing so hard though. There's anecdotal stories about he writes 24 pages in three hours one time he uh which is a lot you know full pay full text pages um he get he would get he would get so excited that like he would have to go to the gym and work out until he threw up to like burn off energy so he could calm himself down um it's very very intense and what he's working on is this the book the broom of the system um he submits this as one arm of a double-barreled undergraduate thesis, the other being a paper on the philosopher Richard T- uh, Taylor's uh, concept of fatalism. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Richard Taylor's fatalism, if this is familiar to you at all. I looked into a little bit, and it seems like one of these things, Taylor's, to summarize Taylor's fatalism, excuse me, is something like this. All statements about the future are true or false. 
So then how can our actions now have any influence over how things turn out? It's one of these like language games thing game things sure. that like sounds like it's like yeah. this airtight logical thing, but to me is like mm-hmm. stupid on the face of it. <laughs> so anyway, David Foster Wallace's essay, his his uh undergraduate thesis was a refutation of that, which apparently uh was fairly well acclaimed. Um Taylor uh also made significant contributions to beekeeping. He owned 300 hives of bees and from 1970 produced mostly comb honey. And he wrote about this in his, in his books. So he was a philosopher and a beekeeper. Okay. I like that. That's, that's charming. Little footnote. Yeah. Why not? That's good. That's, that's charming. Um, (laughs) this is, and this is funny. Okay. So he turns in, Oh, one of the reasons he wanted to do this double thesis thing was because his buddy, Mark Costello had done it. And he'd been like the only person in recent memory to do that. Mark Costello had been. So David Foster was like, well, I got to, I got clearly I got to do at least as good as he did. Right. So this is why he does this double thesis thing. Very competitive. Right. But again, you've got that like Gen X sort of like you have to kind of pretend not to care thing at the same time, but also like intensely competitive <laughs> at the same time, um, which is, I think, the, the thing that kind of made him crazy. Or one of the things. Someone in the chat is saying that apparently Brett Easton Ellis felt that uh, Wallace like picked up his style and was ripping off Ellis's writing for Broom of the System. Oh, that could well be. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. They mentioned that in the biography. I think that's probably partially true. Um, It's not like plagiarism. Again, it's this mimic thing. It's like he can Mm -hmm. just write and sound like anybody he wants to sound like. Um, Right, right. Yeah. And no, and F- Wallace was conscious of that. Um, and the, another person that he was sort of compared to was was Pynchon, um, particularly Crying of Lot 49. And he would tell early interviewers that he'd never read that book because he, uh-huh. he'd taken sure. the style pretty deliberately. Mm. Um, anyway, he gets an A minus for the broom of the system as his undergraduate thesis and graduates with a total of 10 awards, which may have actually been an Amherst record. They give out awards for things like um, highest GPA and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, well, not just highest GPA, like every year, you know, you get it as like every college or university has it at the end, right? Magnus voted most likely to assassinate a foreign leader. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) His name's redacted here, but he knows who he is. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, yeah. So, okay. So he gets, he puts this, uh, he gets an A minus for broom of the system. He gets it, uh, and then he gets Broom of the System published uh, just 20 when he's 25 years old. Right. So. <laughs> so what do you you take that to an agent or a publisher and you go, hey, I got an A minus at Amherst on yeah, this novel. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, all right. Book it. <laughs> OK, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Hmm. Now, this didn't. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, I'll give you like a little sense of just like what Broom of the System is. Um it's i mean i put one word here at first just pension it's very it's it's taking a lot from pension which is you know which is fine um we all borrow especially early um uh i'll give you just the plot this is just from wikipedia it's just so you're following along with the kind of stuff he's doing the broom in the system centers on the comparative comparatively normal lenore beadsman a 24 year old telephone switchboard operator who gets caught in the middle of a cleveland-based character drama 
And Wallace's typically offbeat style, Lenore uh, navigates three separate crises. Her great-grandmother's escape from a nursing home, a neurotic boyfriend, and a suddenly vocal pet cockatiel. The controlling idea surrounding all of these crises is the use of words and symbols to define a person. To illustrate this idea, Wallace uses different formats to build the story, including transcripts from television recordings and therapy sessions, as well as an accompanying fictional account written by one of the main characters named Rick Vigorous. Um, Rick Vigorous. Yeah, which is a very pinch. That's a very Pynchon way to name a character. Mm. Um, And I suppose Pynchon didn't invent that kind of thing either. Um, Definitely. It sounds like a like a late 80s, early 90s era WWF. Yeah, right. Right. But also like weirdly like a vulgar Charles Dickens character too, sort of Mm, a mm -hmm. little bit. Yeah. Like it wouldn't have Dickens wouldn't have actually named a character that. But yeah, Um, here's let me just read just a little bit, because, again, I want to give you a little bit of David Foster Wallace voice. This is from the broom in the system. Quote, most really pretty girls have pretty ugly feet. And so does Mindy Metalman, Lenore notices all of a sudden. They're long and thin and splay-toed with buttons of yellow callus on the little toes and a thick stair step of it on the back of the heel. And a few long black hairs are curling out of the skin at the tops of the feet. And the red nail polish is cracking and peeling and curls and candy striped with decay. Lenore only notices because Mindy's bent over in the chair by the fridge, picking at some of the polish on her toes. Her, bathroom, her bathrobe's opening a little, so there's some cleavage visible and everything. A lot more than Lenore's got. And the white thick towel wrapped around Mindy's wet washed shampooed head is coming undone and a wisp of dark shiny hair has slithered out of a crack in the folds and curled down all demurely past the side of Mindy's face and under her chin. It smells like fleck shampoo in the room and also pot since Clarice and Sue Shaw are smoking a big thick jaybird Lenore got from Ed Creamer back at Shaker School and brought up with some other stuff for Clarice here at school. So that doesn't you know, whatever, maybe, maybe that's amazing. Maybe it's not, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> let me see moving. Oh, okay. So, uh, don't tell me he's a foot guy. I don't know. I don't think there's a lot of evidence elsewhere in his work of that. Okay. It's not like a thing that, to my knowledge, right. it's like recurring. Cause I was ready to kill the episode right there. <laughs> Stop it. I don't think we've had a foot guy yet. Not that we're aware of. A lot of people keep that to themselves. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. He's just got just just a, a photo book full of like Thatcher, Photoshop, <laughs> fake Thatcher feet pick pics. Oh. It's Thatcher uh, in front of Big Ben <laughs> right. with just, her feet up. Yeah, with her feet up. <laughs> <laughs> Here's oh. Thatcher at the Eiffel Tower. Right. <laughs> Oh God! I just uh, see a couple of pictures of feet here, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Thatcher. That's yes. can you tell? That's Thatcher's feet. It's got to be what eighty two, eighty three. It's, it's Thatcher. Baroness Thatcher's feet. Why wouldn't it be? You're listening to Art of Darkness, a podcast about the dark side of creativity. You can find us at artofdarkpod.com and on Patreon at patreon.com/artofdarkpod. And we already got a couple of things we're going to talk about on the After Dark. Yeah, you team. We're going to do a little bit about the Pale King, the suicide. Yep. Which, of course, we no spoilers. We know we're coming to it. And I've got this list of books. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Writes, uh, as you said, writes Broom the System, published in 2000, or sorry, 1985. Um, He goes, uh, but he graduates uh, Amherst before that. He goes to Arizona for his MFA. So 
He's graduated from his MFA and he has a published novel that's gotten very little attention. But as somebody who has an MFA, Kevin, you, if you get there the first day and somebody's like, oh, yeah, I just had a novel come out like from a normal publisher, you're like, oh, everybody's okay. going to hate you. <laughs> yeah, They're exactly. all going to hate you. Yeah, exactly. And or want to know your agent and right. or want to know your publisher and yeah. or pretend that they don't care. Right. But in fact, right. yeah, very, right. yeah. The MFA program is like a cauldron mm -hmm. of that's, uh, that's, egos is a yeah. real thing. Yeah. 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 Arizona. Arizona. For an yeah, MFA. He was, he, he was going to go to Iowa. Um, the idea, but, but Iowa, he wasn't, confident that he could get it paid for that he would get the scholarship and at Arizona he could get a scholarship and mm -hmm. also um also Iowa was <clears throat> Iowa was very much about that realistic kind of fiction that he wasn't interested in right yeah um, and Arizona never pay for an MFA on the record from <laughs> two of us that's um yeah that's I learned a lot of my MFA but that was maybe the most important thing I learned uh <laughs> <laughs> the only MFA you need to pay for is the Art of Darkness MFA, which is unofficial. You yeah. know what? Listen, if you if you become a patron on Patreon and you're mm -hmm. a patron for over a year and you want Brad and me to yeah. write you a letter of recommendation for politics yeah. or to send you, we'll do both. Yeah. We'll send you an MFA made in Photoshop <laughs> with Comic Sans. <laughs> And there'll be a lot of fine print. Yeah. I'm I'm deadly serious. We it, will print you an MFA from it might Art of say Darkness. Master of Foin Arts or something like that. But yes, <laughs> but yes, it will be. I can guarantee it will be a certificate. I think everybody who's been a patron for over a year is an honorary MFA. <laughs> I like that. That's that's quite funny. Um uh, okay. Summer before the MFA, that golden time when you know you're about to go to an MFA and you can't really do anything else, right? Uh, he's back in Urbana, Illinois, and things don't go particularly well. He has a depressive episode. Um, and this is when he finally gets depressed, uh, diagnosed with something I'd never quite heard the definition of before, uh, called atypical depression. The key characteristics of atypical depression are an unusual sensitivity to social rejection and a quick return to mental health when circumstances improve. <laughs> sounds that like everybody in the group chat. I was going to say, that's like, that sounds like everybody I know. Uh, anyway. that, that's an odd one. Yeah, hmm. clearly he has, yeah. clearly he has a significant, I'm not making light of the fact that he has a significant bad thing going, but th just that definition sounds like, okay. Oh, Okay, mm. I mm. sleep when I'm tired and I sleep until I'm not tired anymore. Uh, I have a sleep disorder. You know, it seems like a weird way to put it. Anyway, he gets put on Nardil, uh, an older MAO inhibitor. Um, common side effects of Nardil, which is the brand name for phenylzine, may include dizziness, blurry vision, dry mouth, headaches, lethargy, sedation, somnolence, insomnia, anorexia, weight gain or loss, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, urinary retention, mydriasis, muscle tremors, hyperthermia, sweating, hypertension, hypotension, orthostatic hypotension, paresthesia, hepatitis, somehow, sexual dysfunction. What? 
Hepatitis is a side effect. I don't know how that. I thought hepatitis is like a virus. How does that make any sense? I don't think. (laughs) I don't think science is real. To be honest, I really don't. I think this is just a list of words. Increasingly, just don't think it's real. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh, rare side effects: hypomania or just mania, psychosis, acute liver failure. The last of which is usually only seen in people with pre-existing liver damage, old age, long-term effects of alcohol consumption. That could be a problem or viral infection. So this is a pretty serious medication to be on. Nardil, when you (laughs) want to contract hepatitis without the fun. (laughs) You imagine. Yeah. Am I going to spend a lot of time on the hepatitis Wikipedia page for a number Mm. of reasons? Sure. Uh, But that was a surprising side effect to see on here. Nardil, put some hep in your step. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be (laughs) $18,000. Man, we're making a lot of money on this episode. This is great. Yo, the pharmaceutical reads, they pay. They pay. (laughs) Turns out the biggest international (laughs) criminal cartel. Has, has deep pockets. They do. Yep. Yep. And Nardil, uns- it sounds like unscrupulous it, in how they spend their marketing money. Too. Amazing. Yeah. And, and Nardil, uh, they just throw it at any podcast. Uh, Nardil sounds like the the sort of runt youngest sibling in like an old timey Viking story who comes out up and like destroys the family. And then Nardil slayed Brandil and yay, the, the land was disturbeth. Yeah. We got to laugh on, we got to laugh on this pod once in a while, man. Cause otherwise we're in real trouble. We're tr- We're in a lot of trouble. This is heavy, man. Ooh, yeah, yeah. no, this is we're laughing because it's like, yeah, he's taking yeah. this because he's, you know, on the verge of psychological collapse. Uh, okay, he gets to Arizona. <clears throat> he does have, again, he since yeah, anybody, young person, when you move, you get the sort of chance to reinvent yourself a little bit. Um, he had to he had taken to explaining this gap in his Amherst time as having to take school off because a friend of his committed suicide. And he was never very clear with anybody about those actual times. And even later on, when he became sort of famous, there was always a lot of like contradictory uh sort of presenting yourself as being very forthcoming but also like hiding key parts of this stuff the drugs the the the, and and it's fair enough i mean he doesn't owe anybody an ex in public an explanation for any of this stuff right right? um david can you explain this gap in your resume no no giga chad (laughs) right 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 right. uh i saw on the internet the other day somebody said well when somebody asked you that just say nda I was under an NDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I am under an NDA. Yeah. Right. yeah very good. Yeah. Epic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so things go pretty well in Arizona, actually, for a little while. He's got this crappy little apartment in Tucson, but he's, you know, he's 23 years old and that's all he needs. Um, he's got some love interests. His, his, ins- his insecurity, um, uh, he tends to do something with his insecurity at various times in his life, which is to sort of sublimate it into a, fairly intense kind of arrogance i'm going to read you a little bit about that from the bio he does seem like that guy Mm -hmm. a little bit Yeah. yeah yeah um quote 
Wallace was not a tentative freshman anymore. He had matured, if not emotionally, then at least socially, and graduate programs familiar to him from his childhood were easier for him to navigate than undergraduate life at a preppy school. He knew where the levers of academic control were and how to work them, but he still had no gift when it came to human interactions. His default mode was to show off in a way that struck others as less than nice. How well do you know Pynchon's work, he would ask when he met a fellow student. <laughs> That's annoying. Excuse me, he said, overhearing a fellow say nauseous when, he, when she meant nauseated. My mother's an English teacher, and I would have to tell you you're, the way you're using that word is wrong. He would tell an interviewer in 1999 in reference to this time, I was kind of a prick. <laughs> um, it's also uh, around this time that he gets the bandana. The bandana starts off, he's living in, and it starts off kind of reasonably. He's got shaggy hair. He's living in Arizona. He's staying indoors writing most of the time. And all he has is a swamp cooler. Kevin, I don't know if you're familiar with a swamp cooler. It's the sort of press, uh, predecessor to the actual air conditioning unit where basically you have like a thing of coal of water that like in a fan that blows over it. It's all contained in one mechanism, but they don't really work. <laughs> they pretty much just <laughs> blow like muggy air that's about five degrees colder than it is outside in your sounds, sounds a lot like the drugs they have him on <laughs> right yeah right um so that's how the bandana starts and i can see that you're trying to write he writes by hand so you're trying to write and you're sweating you got to put something on your head it makes it makes total sense to start um i judge uh, him a lot less severely now knowing that the the bandana is almost a kind of uh Oh, what do they call it? It's, it's sort of a, a, a medical device. It's a, little a bit. yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it, like a occupational therapist. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. write and I sweat yeah. everywhere. Gives right. him the bandana. The bandana glows like the sun right. the first time he puts it on. <laughs> this is amazing. Right. <laughs> this has solved all of my problems. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm going to wear this in every picture for the rest <laughs> of my life. That's a good idea, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? Uh, um, okay, so this is from the David Lipsky Lipsky book. Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. Um, <clears throat> David Lipsky asks, and and the whole conceit of this book is they're driving around during his book tour for Infinite Jest, and David Lipsky is interviewing him over the course of like ten days or two weeks or something like that. And so it's fairly candid conversations, you know, in the car, smoking cigarettes and eating junk food, you know, that kind of thing. And and also David Foster Wallace is like literally during the trip becoming more famous every day right so it's an interesting kind of like process he's sort of in the midst of that happening so <clears throat> david lipsky says tell me about the bandana stuff we were talking about yesterday and this is back to david i started wearing bandanas in tucson because it was 100 degrees all the time when it's really hot i would perspire so much that i would drip on the page Actually, I started wearing it that year, and then it became a big help in Yado in 87 because I would drip into the typewriter, and I was worried that I was going to get a shock. We're going to talk about Yado a little bit later. And then I discovered that I felt better with them on. And then I, for a while, dated a woman who was, she was actually a Sufi Muslim, but she knew a lot about, she was like a 60s lady, and she knew all about kind, all kinds of different stuff. And she said that there were these various chakras. And one of the big ones was what she called the spout hole at the very top of your cranium. And in a lot of cultures, it was considered better to keep your head covered. 
And then I began thinking about the phrase, keeping your head together, you know? I mean, I don't wear it all the time. I wear it, I know it's a security blanket for me. Whenever I'm nervous or whenever I feel like I have to be prepared or keep myself together, I tend to wear it. It makes me like, like last night we laughed. It made me feel kind of creepy that people view it as an affectation or a trademark or something. It's more just a foible. It's the recognition of a weakness, which is that I'm just kind of worried my head's going to explode. And then David Lipsky says, people just think it's a way you're trying to connect with the younger reading audience. Wallace, I don't know very many Gen Xers who wear headbands. The worst thing about here is, I mean, in the Southwest, people wear them all the time. And in New York, there's a certain kind of hip way to dress that involves them. Here, one reason I got these plain, plain white ones is that people thought I was a biker. Here it spells affiliation with Harley clubs. And I just don't need that shit, you know. It's hard enough to get a cab as it is. And then Lipsky, but people thinking it's a commercial gesture. Wallace, no, I don't know what to say. I guess in a way, I don't even want you to have brought this up because now I'm now worrying that it's going to be intentional. Like if I don't wear it, then am I not wearing it because I'm bound to other people's perceptions that it's a commercial choice or do I do what I want, even though it's perceived as commercial and it's just like one more crazy circle to go around. <laughs> that is a hot shot of what was going on in the nineties. Was this the nineties? Yeah, uh, this would have been, yeah, 96. Yeah. Yeah, that, that I could have almost, that we're talking about, is he a sellout? Is he for real? Is this an affectation? That was the height of that period. The mm -hmm. internet was just kind of coming along. Everybody didn't have it in their house quite yet. And cable had been around for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that was a huge moment. We talk about this, like, mm -hmm. is he a sellout? What's with the bandana? Every right. single square inch of every photo scrutinized for authenticity, right, 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 legitimacy, and right, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and and yeah, it's sort of like who won, what side won that conversation? Sort of like, well, it still goes on now, it but it's like degree, we just sort yeah. of acquiesce to it, and it's now just it's the water we swim in. Back then, it used to be like a like a like a like a high powered water gun. You'd spray yeah. at somebody. Now it's just oh, you could say one word and destroy somebody. Like that's ah, right, sell out, sell yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, Done. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's funny because you could say that, and you're always pretty much right. Right, because everybody is to some extent. You know what I mean? Right. You. you know, I remember like growing. Oh, up you, got a, Dakota, you got a you got a part time yeah, job. It's you like I out. just want to say like we, we we've heard about them in North Dakota. They've got <laughs> something going on. Somebody <laughs> sold something. Right. We right. bought it, didn't we? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Interesting. So okay. Back to the school thing. Arizona, David Foster Wallace continuing to write. Obviously, that's what he's there for. Um, he's working on some stories that I wind up in his first collection, which is called, where do I have it here someplace? Girl with Curious Hair, based on the story called Girl with Curious Hair. Excuse me. Um, uh, but he's running into these sort of constraints. I mean, the, there was this sort of idea that the Arizona was going to be a little bit more experimental. Um, the stories in this book, if someone were to say, I don't like girl with curious hair at all, I wouldn't even argue with them. This is very much like a taste thing. Like if you, if it works for you, then it does, but no one's going to argue like, you know, this is infallible. This is good. It's very weird. Every story is kind of a thought experiment. It definitely to me, to me has its moments, but the moments are sort of few and far between. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Let me give you a, uh, 
and in writing these, he was starting to get a lot of resistance from his professors. He was starting to get a lot of like, David, you have to write a story. Well, I don't want to write that mo- that realist crap. He's like, yes, but people still have to care enough to read it. Like they're trying to give him like the basics of like, listen, like people have to want to flip the page, right? Yeah. Okay. You don't have to have a, you know, just be normal. Just be normal. Please be normal. Just be a little normal, slightly normal. (laughs) Right. Right. Give us something to hang on to Yeah. Now, now later in his career, he would come back as a, when he was a teacher, he would come back and basically say some of the very same things that his professors in this MFA program, MFA program were saying, but he had to go like the long way around to get to this stuff. Right. Um, Which is just an, I think it's just a different, route um to get to the some of the basics like make a character people like <laughs> or if they don't like they have fun not liking them right that's make another a character point. interesting right right oh right. this is an interesting care i wonder what yeah. will happen to this right. this character right. right the word character I, starts yeah. with the word care right there you go there you go or a little bit of that like hey this is a situation i sort of recognize like hmm. eat anything that like I wonder grounding. what's gonna happen next. Right, right. He wasn't very good at doing that. Now <laughs> let me give you now I say that, and yet there is some cool, there is some good stuff in here. Um, let me give you a quick, I'm gonna give you just a quick summary of this book. We're not gonna read any actual parts from it, but here's the titles and the the quick two-sentence um summaries of some of these stories. Little expressionless animals is one story. This is one that David uh, Wallace, he really liked even later on, Uh, revolves around a unique winning streak on the TV show Jeopardy and the coming together of two lesbians with abnormal childhoods. Another one is called Luckily, the Account Representative New CPR. This is uh, two executives at an unnamed corporation meet in the underground parking lot while leaving late, and the senior executive suddenly has a heart attack. A uh, girl with a curious hair is about a sadistic young Republican lawyer who associates with punk rockers, uh, spends in, spending an evening with his drugged friends at a Keith Jarrett concert, where his LSD influ- influenced girlfriend is obsessed with the titular girl with curious hair. Uh, the story Lyndon is a fictional account of a young man named David Boyd working closely with American President Lyndon B. Johnson and getting personally entangled. The story John Billy is uh, has a narrator with an exaggerated Southern dialect uh, recounting the tale of his town's favorite son and the consequences of his quest for revenge. Here and there is a story about a boy and girl. uh, That one doesn't really have much in plot. Uh, The story My Appearance is about an actress who appears on Late Night with David Letterman while her television producer husband obsessively coaches her. According to Boswell, uh, this is somebody who wrote a lot about uh, about Wallace. This is the most important uh, and successful story in the collection. It was published in Playboy magazine later on. Uh, I'm called my. Uh, it was called Late Night when it was published in Playboy. Um, and then maybe the most important for the evolution of Wallace's work it was the final story called Westward: The Course of Empire Takes Its Way, it's, which is actually a 150 page novella. Uh, and this is what. Uh, uh, Boswell has to say about it quote taken on its own this is an engaging piece of pretentious juvenilia read as a precursor to infinite jest it stands as a fascinating programmatic declaration of intent so it's a little bit like a fictionalized manifesto it's a man it's like a it's like a and we'll talk a little bit more about it it's sort of like a literary manifesto 
with a story sort of sitting kind of on top of it. Um, let's see. So yeah, no, I don't want to read any of that. No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> um, I no. would say the one that is probably the best to read Westward, the course of the empire takes its way. I, I don't think it quite justifies itself. That's my personal opinion. I do think the one, my appearance, the one about the woman on, uh, on David Letterman is actually, is actually a pretty good read. Um, well, there's his TV obsession coming mm-hmm. back and yeah. And yeah. some of it, he was, was like quotes lifted directly from, uh, uh, airings of David Letterman. So like, wasn't, yeah, he got into a little bit, almost got into some legal trouble with that actually. Um, so, okay. So we'll talk a little bit about Westward, uh, Westward, the course of the empire takes its way. Um, as I said, because it marks this sort of pivot point in his evolution, right? I, the way that I'm thinking about David Foster Wallace, if I can summarize it as neatly as I can, his evolution as a writer is like brilliant mind. Forget if you like him as a writer or not. Brilliant mind messes around for a while. These weird stories, sort of ironic thought experiment kind of stuff realizes that that's pointless after his second book and spends the rest of his life trying to figure out if that's pointless, what should I do? Hmm. Right. So it's sort of like it's even that, that, that psychological thing where he has, he's constantly folding in on himself. He's doing it here too. He's like, I will. Oh, look, you can play this game. That makes the click go. Oh, wait, what's the point of the game? And then, you know, 20 some years trying to figure out what the next game is. He does. Yeah. 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 He yeah, you can you can there. think or you can think about. Th- yeah, yeah. This is a guy who thinks about thinking. Yes, 100 mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, OK, I want to read something in his. As you do, I'm topping up my water. I've not right. gone anywhere. Right. I am listening. Gotcha. Wrapped. I can't wait to find out what happens next because you've create helped create a character on oh, Art of Darkness. Oh yeah, as you know what, you know what happens yeah. to him, and he's a little interesting, and you're not mm. sure how you feel about him, and you know something's um, coming. And I'm pulling yeah. for young David here. <laughs> yeah, for Why insufferable, not? very Reddit. Uh, oh yeah, young yeah. David. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hope yeah. he makes it. Yeah. So this is a bit from the bio on his, um, like I was saying, his sort of evolution from being this sort of ironic obsessed with postmodernism and i'm not going to go on a whole like thing about what do i mean by postmodernism just know that when we talk about living in the postmodern era literary postmodernism is a specific style that you can describe in a lot of ways but isn't the same thing as saying we're living in the postmodern era or this is postmodernism. It's a specific kind of writing that has particular aesthetic, philosophical, and um and sort of, I guess, intention, intentional missions <laughs> baked into it as a genre. Um, there are, you know, Pynchon would be one of them. David Foster Wallace is arguably one of them, but he's almost like when we get to infinite jest, he's almost like this post postmodern in a way. Um, and, and a number of, and a number of others, Italo Calvino, uh, a, a bunch of people. Um, and so when I say that, that I'm talking about the specific style. Now, another example of postmodernism is, uh, <laughs> is Barth's lost in the Funhouse, a hugely influential story. 
And westward, the course of the empire takes its way. It's, it was an important story for Wallace, but westward, uh, the course of the empire takes its way, sort of tries to grapple with some of the same problems as lost in the funhouse and sort of comes to a different conclusion. I'm going to read from the biography. <clears throat> Quote, Wallace had also had come to feel that there was something irritating about lost in the funhouse. Remember, a story he had loved. Uh, condescending, and if you were a recursive cast of mine, false about the way Barth kept breaking into the narrative to show readers' falsity. Didn't such an intrusion in the end just create more of a performance? Wasn't it seduction pretending to be renunciation? How in the end did Barth really propose to challenge or uh, reward the reader? Preparing to rebut Barth in his own story, Wallace scribbled notes in the margins of his paperback of the Lost in the Funhouse story collection, contesting sentences and penning criticisms like, quote, Talmudic, obsessed with its own interpretation, alongside Barth's words. It was clear that metafiction no longer satisfied Wallace as it once had. But just after his last semester at Arizona, when he probably began, began his new story, he himself likely couldn't tell whether he was writing an homage, a parody, a eulogy, or an act of patricide. The desire to get out what he had to say was made more intense by a sense that his old life was ending. This was the time for last things, for summings up, for boiling the whole of the fictive act, act at least as practiced in MFA programs, down to, as he would later tell in an interview, this tiny infinitely dense thing <clears throat> um, a little bit further down uh like funhouse <clears throat> westward the course of the empire takes its way is the story of a group of young people on a car trip but instead of barth's, uh, barth's ordinary american teenagers wallace gives us mfa students great i want a 150 page novella about mfa students and rather than go to a beach, they're on a more typically postmodern errand. They're on the way to the town of Collision, Illinois, for a, review, uh, for a reunion of the 44,000, quote, former actors, actresses, puppeteers, and unemployed clowns who had ever taken part in a McDonald's commercial. At the same time, there will be a ribbon cutting for a flagship discotheque of a new company whose goal is to build a funhouse in every major market. Running this effort to add a whole new dimension in alone fun are two people, Leo Burnett, the advertising guru, and none other than John Barth, the metafictionist called here Professor Ambrose. Um, Wallace, Wallace's suggestion is clear. Advertising and metafiction share the same goal, to lull by pleasing, pleasing to fatten without nourishing. So he tried to put a stake in the heart of metafiction with this last story in girl with the curious hair. Um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So the problem is we're going to, we're talking more about the biography here. And again, I'm trying to paint this. I'm trying to illustrate his evolution, his sort of artistic evolution. Westward is sort of like move West beyond this metafictional quote, postmodern stuff. And yet he doesn't know what's west to the west yet. It's a blank spot on the map to him. And it's going to take him some time to try and figure out something to put on that map. And, you know, weirdly, a lot of times he's going to fall into the habits of metafiction and postmodern aesthetic trying to get there. And I don't think he really, really gets there, honestly, until The Pale King, which we're going to talk about more on The After Dark. Um, Is DeLillo on his his radar? Big time, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Delillo, okay. he and Delillo eventually, not quite at this point, but a few years after where we're at now, they start up a correspondence and they write letters to each other regularly. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of DeLillo, that group, Delillo's my favorite. 
Yeah. The yeah, Willow I mean, has a, a humanity that to me it seems to exceed the others and an ability to uh write a a story that on its face has a certain even commercial appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he can also just completely do that Pomo thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Underworld yeah. to me, I mean, if we're gonna talk about it, to me, and this is again just my opinion. When you think about like the the sort of the tenets or the principles of the the postmodern literary style, the best thing that most easily fits, if this makes sense, the best book that most easily fits into that category is Don DeLillo's Underworld. It does all of the postmodern song and dance. It does everything, but it's better to me. It's better than all of them. He's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. DeLillo uh, is the tops big mm-hmm. fan. And and I mean, and that's not even his best book. In my No, no. It's, yeah, I wouldn't say so, this. You um, think Libra? Okay. Wait, wait, this is going to be a DeLillo pod. But okay. All right. All right. <laughs> it's Libra or White Noise. Hmm. Anyway. Um, okay. 1986 to 1987. Wallace's scholarship runs out. Uh, and he has to take on some teaching at University of Arizona, which he initially despises. He kind of hates doing it, right? Um, and you can see if you're trying to just write and you go from all I have to do is write to now I got to teach, it's not the greatest transition. I mean, it sounds like, oh, it's a cush job, but you know, it's a tri- it's a tricky, it's a tricky move for anybody to make. Um, eventually he gets very good at it. Like he becomes like a sought after teacher, but at first it's not a great fit. <clears throat> Um, one thing that's kind of interesting, I think is eventually, and this is something eventually he would do to become a teacher. Cause remember he's this, like, he knew all the theory, right? He read all of the theory about writing. He knew all of like the most avant-garde writers and he's trying to do all of those things later when he becomes a good teacher. And this isn't at UA, this is years later. Sometimes the first day of class, he would write the names of a bunch of theorists on the board, Derrida, barf you know whoever and he would say listen i know all of this stuff you don't have to remind me of it right we're here to talk about how do you write a good story right (laughs) so um yeah right Uh. And it's like, he's not even saying that they're wrong. He's just like, there's a difference between theory and practice. I don't want you to try and convince me that's a good short story because something Derrida said one time. It's the difference between an actor showing up already knowing their lines or not. Mm -hmm. Right. An actor, a real actor will show up knowing their lines. So let's just assume we all understand Right. We've read the Wikipedia about Foucault, right. at least. Right. So right. We don't need to justify. Right. Yeah. The story justifies itself. The work right. always has to justify right. itself. Right. 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 And eventually Wallace got there, but it took it took a while. It was like hmm. he had to integrate all of that stuff and think through every aspect of it to spit himself out on the other side. Right. Sure. And he's in the midst of that process towards the end of his time here at UA. How's his depression doing now? Is he, um, he seems he to be functioning. Did okay in Arizona, actually. He uh. the, the 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 MFA program, I think, was okay for him. And plus, hmm. you remember, he started out, he had a novel. Nobody else in his MFA program had a hmm. published novel, right? Sure. Even if the reviews weren't great and the sales weren't great, and they weren't, he was still like, I'm you know, nobody here has anything on me. And also he did the big fish in a little pond thing instead of the going uh-huh. to Iowa where he would sure. have probably been an outcast. Right. And he's getting some sun and he's got mm-hmm. his bandana and the, it's all coming and, together. And he, he would talk 
for years about how attractive the women were in Arizona. <laughs> he had a girlfriend there for a little while. This woman named Gail Walden. Um, they, you know, it's sort of typical of a lot of his relationships where they don't actually spend that much time together. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty about the status from both of them. There's a sort of on again, off again quality. There's David Foster Wallace, maybe sleeping with other people. Uh, there's him claiming they're together when they're clearly not. Um, and this happens in like a handful of his relationships over time. Now we might as well talk about this since this is happening. Uh, Listen, when it comes to his relationships to women, um, David Foster Wallace often behaved like a piece of shit. I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat it. If you want to read detailed articles about that stuff, they are out there. We're going to talk about it a little bit as it pertains to the biographical material. But like, I don't want to I don't want to pretend this isn't a thing. Um there's a article by this guy Devin Price called "A Brief on Hideous Things About David Foster Wallace." Um, there's articles by Mary Carr, a woman he dated later, who we're going to talk about, uh, who's another uh, another very good writer. He had a had a troubled relationship with. Um, I don't really know what to do with it. More of this is going to come up, but until he was about forty years old you couldn't advise anybody to be in a relationship with him. If somebody, if you knew him, if you knew a friend of yours was going to start dating him, you no, 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 honey, don't do that. Stay away. Right. Right. Um, And it's not a lot of, it's not a lot of physical abuse. There are, there are here and there incidences of that. It's more uh, self-centeredness, uh, a little bit of that, like love bombing and withdrawing thing. Um, it's stalkerish behavior at times. It's um, you know uh, writing in cr- like long, crazy letters. Um, yeah, and we're going to talk more about the Mary Carr because Mary Carr is when it gets the most intense. Um, in his, I believe in his, I'm going to do a little bit of Freudian mm-hmm. analysis sure. on Art of Darkness, which we try to do on every episode, not yeah. really. Uh, <laughs> right. He's he's looking for his stature. He's looking for his Iron Lady. Mm, I think and so. you're not going to find her in an MFA program in Arizona. <laughs> no, no, probably not. That's probably true. <laughs> he really had a, a Thatcher poster. Apparently, in high when school, he was an Amherst undergrad. Yeah, no. and, and he, he okay. says he did. He says he did. So it's not like a room. I mean, well, and to be clear, this podcast isn't about running cover for artists. Far no. from, far from it. Uh, we and we've a, seen some horrible things in the yeah. uh, Art of Darkness back catalog. So I'm glad we're going to touch on this. This Brad, this is yeah. a little more recent. Then yeah, this is yeah. a very new kind of yeah. Uh, I mean, the people, know, yeah. a lot of the people he knew are still around, you know, and and yeah. so I, you know, you want to make sure you do this. We try to do justice, right? Like never hiding yeah. anything about any of those people. No, so, no. And yeah, um, so uh, I think eighty seven, he goes to Yado. I don't know if you know Yado, Kevin. Yado, you know. Yado, do yeah, yabba yeah. dabba Yado. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yado is one of these uh, leafy. They got a website and mm. cost you thirty five dollars to apply, and maybe yeah. you get ba ba ba, and then right. 
you can go and they'll give you a little cabin and yeah. they'll feed you breakfast and right. you're going to go be a writer. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. 1987. Mm-hmm. He goes to Yaddo for the first time. Big uh, artist res- residency up in upstate New York. It's been running continuously Sounds since 1926. Great, by the way. Oh, I would I, do I'm it. being a little bit uh, I would do sort it. of jokey, but 100%. I mean, artists yeah. do need these things. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh, and I, I bet and I bet people get up to some real misbehavior out there in the woods. I, you know, if there's anything I know from like theater life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, wait, 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 wait. You're telling yeah. me like some of us are 30 and we're going to summer camp. Right. 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 Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. could go oh, wrong? You, you tell me I don't have to get up at a specific time. Is that what you just said? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How much alcohol do we right. have? There's a lot of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to remember none of this. Right. 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 But it goes on the resume. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. Th- this is the thing. We it's called Kevin... Yato because that's the sound you make before you pass out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, there is somebody who everybody knows the name of who has been out in the middle of the woods out by Yado, drunk as hell, like screaming at the moon. Yado, Yado. yeah, yeah, Yado. <laughs> you know yeah, that's 100%. Happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, Kevin and I sort of make fun of this stuff, the, the sort of prestige academia kind of ish aspect of this stuff, I think sometimes because we've sort of brushed against it. Um, and it's, you know, I would go to Yato in a heartbeat, Kevin, I think you would go to Yato in a heartbeat. Um, it's not totally besmirching these things entirely, but, but also being realistic about it. You're partying if you're there. Most of these people are right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, there'll be some people who are kind of wallflowers, but I mean, there's a lot of extroverted artists and, uh, yeah, yeah, these things are strange. I sort of stop. I mean, you know, it's interesting because it's a bit of a young person's game to these things. That's we're, Uh, we're kind of too old to go to something like Yato. A little, I mean, technically, but like socially, if we got there, it would be a little bit like, Oh yeah, you might be surprised, but yeah, I, for sure. And then, you know, you start, you have families, you have kids, kids and yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. so he's there with uh jay mcinerney who wrote bright lights big city and this is like bright lights big city was a big deal like jay mcinerney's like pulls up on a porsche and he's like a famous writer and wallace becomes friends with him wallace has sex with loud sex that everybody hears with the fiction editor for playboy alice turner um who he tremendous yeah tremendous yeah um, would... at, at at an event like this yeah someone who will be re- who will will go okay it was me yeah. uh there's there's <laughs> there was a roommate there's like a how they put us up in a house somewhere and the following morning uh we yeah maybe we had played charades too loudly oh boy. that's what yeah. i'll say on the podcast <laughs> but the following morning this this uh, older fellow uh on the way to the bathroom he looked at me and said jesus kevin leave some for the rest of us <laughs> god 100 can you imagine he's having he's having like loud sex and everybody right. can hear us yeah. with the playboy editor yeah that's yeah. i mean that's yeah. that's pretty that's a boss move yeah i mean you gotta hey. admire that I, w- w- I, if he hadn't done it, would we even be talking about this time at Yato? Pro- maybe not. Sure. Uh, <laughs> He's just yeah, Yato. <laughs> awesome. Uh, also, at this time, an article comes out uh, in uh, a feature article comes out. Oh, I don't have the name of the magazine. It was a fairly major magazine. It might have been Salon. 
or GQ or Esquire, I'm not GQ or Esquire, but a but a but a literary who's who map came out in a mainstream magazine and David Foster Wallace was on it, but he was out at the edge. He was quote on the horizon, right? But still, he's a young man. It's 1987, he's 25. So to be in a mainstream article, somebody saying you're on the map, that's a pretty big deal. And was that story published in Playboy before or after? Oh, she before it had been published oh, by this time. Was I she believe, the yeah. was she the editor? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I'm not going to get it too nothing, far into this. Nothing changes. Yeah, I'm nothing not going to get changes. too far into this because they maintain a professional relationship. But there is this funny thing because he gets really obsessed with like, and this makes sense with his his sort of addictions and his his evolving notions of what pleasure and enjoyment mean in American life. He does a lot of research on pornography and like goes to a porn conference and he's going to write a nonfiction piece on this. And he delivers it to Alice Turner, the editor at Playboy. And she's like, she basically writes a letter back and says, David, I know you're really smart and I know you think you're really smart, but you are presenting all this stuff to us like you're discovering it. We're Playboy. Like <laughs> this, none of this is news to any of us here. Right. Like our intern could have yeah. read this. Sure. He's being <laughs> right. anthropological about right. pornography. Right. He's like, oh my God, you Playboy. mean people are having sex and are like, yes, we get it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. This is like, yeah, you don't. Yeah. You know, you're ex- explaining uh, cosplay to Comic Con people. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exactly. Um, now, uh, what else is going on? I mean, he becomes his obsessiveness. You can imagine, too. So the book could come out. His MFA is over. He doesn't really have a big writing project, but he's now he's in this magazine. He's at Yada with Jay McInerney, who 1987, Jay McInerney was the big deal that year. Bright Lights, Big City was a big deal. And it was it was a sexy book, too. I mean, it's about cocaine and partying and he drove a Porsche. You know, it was like cool. It was not only famous, but he was cool at the same time. So Wallace is competitive. I mean, you see what you can do. And it's like, I'm at Yado. He's at Yado. I'm in this article. He's in this article. I'm stooping the editor for Playboy. Like, I'm right. I'm right next to this thing. Right. I'm almost Jay McInerney. Right. Um, uh, so there's an inter- just kind of an interesting thing happening there with his sort of teeping into fame, which he's not quite there yet. Um, what else? Oh, here's the other thing. Um, drinking. He's now he's drinking quite a lot. Um, and remember what we said about this MAO inhibitor he's on. This one of the side effects is liver liver damage if you take it with excess alcohol consumption, right? So he's, he's not only, I mean, a lot of 25 year olds, a lot of people drink a lot of time, a lot when they're 25 and you end up health wise more or less okay but he's got this other thing he's taking this mao inhibitor which is strictly uh, very very deliberately counter recommended right this is something you're absolutely not supposed to do um and he's basically taking none of that into account um okay after his mfa he gets a temporary position uh or after yado he gets a temporary position at Amherst, teaching at Amherst, basically taking over two classes for somebody who's taking the semester off. It's not a long-term thing. It's you're going to teach these classes and then you're gone. Um, but interestingly, he's back there just two years after graduating himself. Um, 
And this causes him to kind of spiral out. There's the sense that he hasn't made any progress, right? You're just back in the same place you were. Yeah, but can you imagine any institution that you've been through wanting to have you back ever, Brad? No. I, this is the thing. Does this? Ha- I guess it happens for some people. Yeah, yeah. It's never happened for me. Right. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. There's no go. But it's a straight. We live in this weird time yeah. now where like. You know, and maybe it's because it's this leafy, tiny liberal arts school, and that he's, he's had a successful novel, and yeah, yeah well, and he did really well. I mean, he, had these, he, had this, yeah. he had this double thesis, won all these know, awards, had, and everything. He came out of yeah, it, published yeah, yeah. a novel. He published his undergraduate right. thesis. I gotta, I, I gotta remember too. This is a school where they know your name. Right, 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 right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah there's yeah, yeah. one thousand people in his graduating sure. class or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, maybe yeah, not yeah. even that. He maybe even reads the alumni magazine. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, What's that? It doesn't his alumni magazine doesn't have Dairy Queen coupons <laughs> in the back. <laughs> go Gophers! Uh, oh boy. Okay, so he's at Amherst. He's living there again. He's got some friends around, but remember. Uh, remember this thing we said about after the westward course of the empire takes its way, he doesn't have a project, right? He doesn't have a creative direction. And he's now he's teaching, which he hasn't adjusted. He's not able to balance his creative life out with his teaching life yet. So he just basically now starts teaching, drinking, smoking pot, who he's having it mailed to him from Tucson, which I just think is a funny detail. And he's watching a ton of TV. He's watching everything. He's watching soap operas, sitcoms, sporting events, anything, right? Like a drug, just like, give me one more, just one more as the world turns, you know? Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read a little bit from the biography about his, how his students uh, see him, right? Because now he's like an entity to his students. And you know, the relationship between teachers and students is always, the students always want to, a lot of students always want to know a little bit more about your life. You know, they're always kind of trying to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Um, okay. So here's a bit about that. <clears throat> um, oh yeah. Okay. This is actually a little bit about that, what I just said, but also a little bit about him learning to become a teacher. So I think this is a nice little bit quote. <clears throat> Wallace knew that if he taught hard, he wouldn't be able to write, but he also knew that if he wasn't writing anyway, so he might, he went at teaching with a fervor, covering the students' pages, papers with pages of annotation, throwing himself into their work. Teaching brought focus and a sense of accomplishment and the knowledge that he was honoring his parents, and Wallace needed all of that. The students were astonished at his intensity. Feeling he had endured the scorn of the Arizona professors, Wallace made sure his comments were supportive and the tone of the class positive. He did not want to replicate the discouraging classroom classroom atmosphere he had just left. He cautioned the students, as one remembers, not to, quote, tap dance and cleats on one another's stories. His syllabus was conventional, meant to teach the basic tools of writing, character, dialogue, plot. He gave his students Eudora, Eudora Welty's Why I Live at the P.O. to illustrate the unreliable narrator and Lee K. Abbott's Living Alone Nyota to showcase voice. Just because it really happened doesn't make it good fiction, he would remind them. He had the ability to shift gears in this way, to go from the pyrotechnics of writing uh, the Westward story to teaching the rudiments of fiction. In fact, the simpler the teaching, the happier it made him. He did not go to class for challenges, personal or intellectual. He went to find certainties of the sort that eluded him in his own writing. Every morning started with a grammar lesson. The difference between uh, between between and among, for instance, or further and farther. I'm a grammar Nazi, he liked to tell his students. One day he put the words pulchritudinous, minuscule, big, and misspelled on the blackboard. He asked students uh, what the four words had in common, 
and when no one knew, happily pointed out that the appearance of each was the opposite of its meaning. Pulchritudinous was ugly, minuscule was big, big was small, and misspelled was spelled correctly. The students had rarely seen him so happy. To their eyes, the 25-year-old Wallace was a mystery. <laughs> he came to class in his Arizona bandana, um, Timberland boots and plaid shirts, cursed and took frequent smoke breaks. He was trying to quit smoking, so he'd begun chewing tobacco. He was sappy to extend to office hours for as long as students wanted, but if he bumped into them on the street, he har hardly acknowledged them. One student was reminded of Dostoevsky's underground man. <clears throat> Mark Costello, his friend from Amherst, came for a visit and found his old roommate strangely diminished. He remembers everything happened in, happening in very slow motion, getting dressed to go out, finding car keys, finding dip, notebook, working pen, writing a phone message. The only thing in the, in the fridge was mustard and blondies. Blondies, I'm assuming you know, are, are the more bland version of brownies. Yeah. Uh, Wallace told his college roommate he worried that pot smoking had ruined his brain permanently and he would never be able to write again. Um, depressed, he was still not without romantic appeal. <clears throat> Two undergraduate women in his class set off one day to see where he lived and where and were excited to find his apartment above a sandwich shop in a rundown part of Amherst. When two students in this class asked if he wanted to go hear an Irish band play in Springfield, Massachusetts, 40 minutes south on the interstate, he surprised them by agreeing. On the way home, the car, which Wallace was driving, spun out, leaving them all scared by the side of the road before they climbed back in and returned to the college. They did not repeat the adventure. To them, he looked spooked, hollowed out, adult. All right, so very weird existence there that, that semester at Amherst. Um, 1988, that semester ends. He's 26 years old. He moves back to Urbana, Illinois. Um, he's living with his parents. Uh, he starts, he decides that he needs to start going to weekly sobriety meetings. Now, he's not entirely, it's not like, okay, this is it. He doesn't ever drink again. But this is where he starts realizing not only, okay, there's the depression thing, but there's also like, I'm an addict thing and he needs to start doing something about it. He starts making those moves. Eventually, recovery in AA would be a huge part of his life. Um, yeah. Um. There's a difference between I don't drink and I can't drink. Right. Some people can't <laughs> uh -huh. drink. Yeah. And yeah. often it's because you drink too well. Right. 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 Mm. Take yeah. a lot of practice. And then yeah. that little, uh, gets its hooks in you. Yeah. Now, now. What was thing, he drinking? What well, was he drinking? You know, I couldn't find anything where he said like his preferred thing. There's stories hmm. about beer and there's stories about um, a variety of liquor. I think one time on rum, but I couldn't get like a what his drink. He must have had his preferred thing, but I couldn't find it. In any case. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, he starts to write a piece when he's living in the in um, Urbana back in 1988. He starts to write this piece called. Uh, for the uh, uh, for a magazine called Review of Contemporary Fiction, he starts writing this thing called Fictional Futures and the Conspicuously Young, where he is supposed to be the young voice. His essay is supposed to be the young voice amongst these other writers like John Barth and Gilbert Sorrentin, uh, uh, where he, they're just talking about like what's sort of the future of letters, right? Um, I'm going to read you a bit from his essay because I think it's interesting thinking about what where he at where he's at in his life what he's done so far his literature where he's going 
Our generation, Wallace began, is lucky enough to have been born into an artistic climate as stormy and exciting as anything since Ezra Pound and company turned the world before before last on its head. Um, the American generation born after, say, 1955 is the first for whom television is something to be lived with, not just looked at. Our parents regard the set rather as the flapper did the automobile, a curiosity turned treat turned seduction. For us, their children, TV is as much a part of reality as Toyota's in gridlock. We quite literally cannot imagine life without it. There was, um, and this is not him speaking, this is the DT Max. <clears throat> there was more than a bit of self-reference in this point. If anyone couldn't imagine life without TV, it was Wallace. So uh, That's the internet now for us. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, and I think this is key for him to say it, it is, this is the generation, late boomers, early late boomers into gen x this is where television became it's not just a neat thing on tv it's not like oh well we could watch the game oh the presidential debates will be on that television it's a it's a black hole in your living room that will right. suck you into it right yeah they wanted their mtv mm -hmm. and they got it a lot yeah oh yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah oh we all got it oh yeah i did too man oh, yeah. i don't mm -hmm. exempt myself from that i'm a i'm a i grew up as a tv addict for sure um, nothing else to do, uh, in Arizona. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, he's in Urbana. He's like living with his parents and there's this notion of like, I mean, he's 20, what, six now. He can't. He can't yeah. Now, right. That's no bueno. And, and his relationship with his mother at this time is strained, right? We'd had this very like grammar Nazi kind of mother, well-intentioned, but, but he was starting to be starting to riffle and he he lived on his own in a bunch of places and been to yato, been to yato. And, right. sleeping with the editor of playboy yeah it's now he's like back and go his back to your childhood twin his twin size bed yeah, you know yeah, yeah. so mm. so he decides like hey the best time i ever had was in arizona why don't i move back to arizona um so he goes out there it's couch surfing a bit he works in a bakery for a little while um it, it's funny because he has this big hit like from a writer's standpoint, you look at the list, you're like, oh, he published his first novel when he was 25. And you're like, oh, it must have just been all up from there. And then you look at his actual life. He's like, nope, working in a bakery. Um, he claims, uh, interestingly, he claims at this point, this is the first time he claims to be a sex addict. And I can't tell if he really is a sex addict or if he just said that to excuse some bad behavior for this girl, you know, this girl he was dating. Like, why did you uh, cheat on me? Well, I'm a sex addict. You see, you know, I can't help myself. Right. Um, right. And these things, this is where you get into like this thing about like a lot of people really don't like David Foster Wallace as a person. And like that article I talked to you about, that's about, more about the sexual allegation stuff. There are other articles you can read. You can read an article called Why uh, Insufferable People Like Infinite Jest. Right. In a in a fairly major magazine, this article appears. I think it's in Paste magazine. Um, there's a lot of a lot of people who have a lot of harsh negative feelings about him. But I think there is this interesting case of like, okay, he's mentally he has mental illness for sure, right? If you believe that mental illness is a thing, David Foster Wallace has some flavor of it. Um not to say that excuses bad behavior, but like where is personal agency? And if there's if it's 100 percent personal agency, then how do you explain even being depressed at all? 
because then mm. you should be able to just choose to not be depressed, right? Sure. But if it's all if it's all just what's afflicted by are you ever responsible for anything, right? So he, he this is what we try position. to do on this podcast is yeah. sort of turn that cube and mm-hmm. show all or as many sides as we can in the three, four hours that we take to do right. these core episodes. Did you someone in the chat talked about Harold Bloom? You ever hear oh. Harold Bloom's opinion about um, I don't know it offhand. No, what what you got? Yeah. He was not a fan. And uh, <laughs> the quote was, uh, and of course, Harold Bloom, the great uh, yeah. scholar of literature at mm-hmm. uh, Yale, mm-hmm. uh, he said of DFW, he had no discernible talent. <laughs> so how do you really feel? Right, right, right. I imagine this would have been later around the infinite jest. Probably. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't have been on Bloom. He wouldn't have been on Bloom's radar until then. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, see, yeah. The work is divisive, and then the life is is also divisive. Rubbling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I balk at the. I'm okay if you, a person doesn't like Infinite Jester, they think it's a failed project. I think that's a reasonable opinion to have. I balk at the he's untalented thing, where it's just like, I mean, he's more talented than almost anybody who says that. Right. Right. So right. what is talent exactly? Because yeah, so I don't know. Um talent and talent and talent and I like what they do is not the same thing. True. Fair enough. Um, anyway, um, I want to read this bit about his drug addiction. So or his drugs relationship. Uh I don't want to say addiction because I think the only drug he was really addicted to was alcohol and, and marijuana. Um this is from again, although of course. You end up becoming yourself. Um, Dave Lipsky asks him, so which recreational chemicals have you tried? Wallace says, quote, I did some acid in high school. I did a lot of it for about six months. And then I never felt like I was the same again after that. It messed with me. I would encourage those of your readers not yet at puberty to stay away from stuff until you're at least say, say at least until your first wet dream. Just don't do stuff. I don't think children were meant to. Did a fair amount of psilocybin in college, but I would do it over vacations. I didn't do anything when the semester was going. Uh, smoked a reasonable amount of dope, particularly in college and grad school, and drank a lot. Um, okay, so he's in Arizona, as we've said. He's back in Arizona. Uh, depression. And remember what we said about atypical depression, uh, about it sort of being spurred onward by social rejection well if that's your if that's your mode if that's your trigger uh it doesn't help when you're constantly screwing up right um and this is the mode he's sort of in now this is he's sort of spiraling one thing leads to the next it's okay uh, I'm what's rejected. the name of the bird he's going up his own ass yeah, the clang bird mm. yeah, yeah yeah exactly mm. exactly uh, uh and around this time <laughs> Okay, imagine what has happened. You wrote a novel. It was pretty good. Didn't, you know, but you were young. Didn't knock it out of the park. You got your MFA. You went to Yato. Some people think you're hot stuff. You were in some magazines. Then you get a novel and then things didn't go well. You end up working at a bakery and sleeping on somebody's couch in Arizona. But you're still young, right? You know, it's not over. Then you get a novel from Jonathan Franzen, a guy about your age. Um, and it knocks your socks off. Totally impressed. Wallace is totally impressed by this novel. And then when it comes out, he's been Wallace has been asked to write a blurb. 
when it comes out, we'll all see that they didn't even put his blurb on it. So it's like, what novel was this? Um, I think it was his first novel, something about Pittsburgh. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, I'll look it up. You keep yeah, doing your thing. Yeah. Um, so his depression's getting pretty bad now. Um, the tw- uh, the twenty seventh city is that oh, the one? I think it's or I think it's I don't think it's that. Eh, it might be. It would have come out in the eight in the late eighties. Yeah, no worries. I'm looking. Yeah. I'll find it. It might be the 27th city. If that's what came out in the late 80s, that could be it. Yeah. Let me um, see if I can find the bibliography. We want to get it right. Yeah. Ag- agreed. Yeah. yeah, the 27th city. Okay, that could be it. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so good novel. Jonathan Franzen, very strong, very strong writer. Another another writer who I think there are people who uh, they don't like his work that much, but again, I think it's one of these you can't really deny that that there's talent going on for sure. I I think he's a great writer. I know I do it, too. it became uh, yeah. sort of standard to kind of yeah. uh, shrug at him a bit. Yeah. Uh, the, the over overplayed there for a bit. Yeah, yeah. But well, when they yeah. put you on Time yeah. Magazine. It's like it's a double edged sword, man. It's like it's good, but sure. it's also like. Mm, um yeah yeah like the corrections is a is a masterpiece i think um freedom is pretty good too freedom's good freedom is good Mm -hmm. agreed yeah um so okay so this stuff's kind of happening and he's 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 he makes a kind of a decision he's going to try and pull himself out of this spiral drinking and mooching and blah 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 right you try and pull himself out of the spiral um in this notion of like winning at sobriety, right? Cause he's got this competitive, he's still, he's still a competitive tennis player a little bit in his head anyway. Right. He's still got this, like, I can do the thing later on. He would talk about um, the American attitude uh, that somehow I am going to fix this through making a radical change. Right. He talks about that as being a very American perspective and American thing to do. Um, and so he tries to do this. And one of the ways he's going to win at sobriety is he's going to go off Nardal too. No, dr- no drugs, no drinking, no tobacco. I'm not going to take my psychiatric meds and I'm going to just white knuckle my way back to sanity. Right. Mm. Um, within a few weeks, he has a total breakdown. <laughs> and I don't totally mean to laugh, but it's like. It's he does he he goes cold turkey with everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah. And, he, and he's like a daily uh, marijuana smoker. Yeah. Probably a daily drinker. Probably. Yeah. So you can't. Man, too, oh, man. It's too much. It's the guy who probably probably should have gone to rehab. Right. Right. It wasn't a realistic. It wasn't realistic. You know, it, it's like, yeah, you. Yeah. So um, he has a total breakdown. His mother comes to get him and takes him back to Illinois. Um, what does his breakdown look like he just starts um, freaking out i think in this one he he is uh it's hard to keep him straight i think this one (laughs) he's a lot of them he does have a lot of them i think this one is a more of a like falls into kind of like lethargy and laziness and like some degree of uh suicidal ideation um but it wasn't the worst breakdown he had out of out of the, the number of break it was a sober breakdown too Right. right. So it's not like uh, he's waking up in the gutter. It's like he's like emotionally having a difficult time in his living room, you know? And yeah. So not to not to downplay how difficult it was or anything, but it's just that's sure. Quality sure. The bad thing he said around this time, the bad thing was taking over again. Um, 
when they get him back to Illinois, he does make his first, probably his first, maybe his second um, uh, overt um, suicide attempt by taking a restoral a sedative. It's a benzo sedative that he'd been prescribed for nausea, tries to take a bunch of it. Wow. He's really messed up. He's taking a bunch of pills. Yeah. yeah. His father, his father finds him, uh, uh, you know, almost on the verge of death. They decide that he has to get electroconvulsive therapy. Oh, he has six sessions. Who huh. comes out of it, according to his mother, quote, as delicate as a child. Yeah. So how old is he? 26? He's 26. Yeah. 26, maybe 27. Yeah. They and still I, give it. They still give it to people. Yeah. I, yeah. I have. I know somebody who will yeah. remain nameless who swears by it. Like yeah. it helped him. Yeah. So no, I, I think it's it, easy to hear electroshock. And in our minds, we think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest right. and you're forced. People are anesthetized now. They're put under. Right. Uh, you can go on Mayo Clinic's website and find some yeah. middle-aged woman happily rowing a boat talking about her electroshock therapy yeah. and how it's helped her. Yeah. It I, is the last resort right, uh, right. for yeah, suicidal yeah. depression. Yeah. I don't think it hurt Wallace. I don't hmm. think I don't think it um it obviously it didn't like it wasn't the cure all and it didn't solve the problem entirely but like I I think it was neutral to positive for him is hmm. what it seems like to me based on his, somebody in the chat yeah. disagrees he says uh, electroconvulsive therapy killed the FW so I don't know okay. could be okay there is another later there is another later session of it so we'll talk about okay. that this this yeah. one seems to have been I mean this is pre infinite jest all of that he so, would live another what 15 years from from here more uh, yeah 20, uh, yeah almost 20, yeah, yeah. Okay. 20 years yeah yep. um yeah okay so let's see what does he do next okay so 1989 the girl with a uh, curious hair finally does come out bits and pieces have come out of it there have been some editing um it doesn't make any real money they actually end up charging david foster wallace some money for it because um he made so many last minute changes it was like on the way to the printer and he was making changes so they somehow ended up charging him money for it it's which kind of one odd. is this this is this a girl is... with the curious hair the oh the, the short stories okay yeah, yeah um, not broom of the broom of the system's been out um <laughs> that's rough you're getting electroshock therapy and then your publisher starts charging you yeah, right right Oof. right crazy um and now there's a bit on the bio i want to read i do with the bio hold on i lost you, the book. you got it there it is <laughs> i got a lot i got a, you can't see on camera but there's a lot of books over here um, got a lot of threads in old <laughs> duder's head that's right that's under right. the now, bandana yeah now i think this is something that I want to stress about. Again, we I want to keep track of this evolution. We're thinking about the guy who wrote the Clang Birds, who becomes the guy who writes Infinite Jest, most temporarily, very temporarily, one of the most famous writers in America, and to the guy who writes The Pale King. Um, and we're charting that sort of aesthetic and philosophical and even moral, in some ways, evolution. And as part of that, I kind of want to read this little bit. Um, okay. Um, he's starting to work on something, right? Uh, 
quote, in his heart, he was aware that something had to change. He could not go on this way forever. He was about to turn 27 and he was still dependent on his food, his parents for food and housing. His encounters with the mental health system had cost his insurance uh, company a lot of money. And when the insurance ran out, his family had to foot the bill, filling walls with guilt. To a friend, he wrote, I quote, I figure if I ever want a mate and kids with straight teeth in command of the English language, I'm going to have to figure out a way to ensure income. The stuff I'm working on now is almost incoherent, and it could be at least two years before it was d- either done or any good or both. So what does he decide he's going to do? Well, um, so just like Bolaño, you see, he's already written the novel, but now right. he decides, ah, I'm going to write something that can sell. Is that what he does? No, not quite. Oh. Not quite. What he decides to do is I will get a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. <laughs> What? <laughs> right, okay. That's the, that's, the, that's the obvious move. Um, so wait, he's got a published novel. He's got a mm-hmm. published book of short stories. He's clinically depressed. Mm-hmm. Tried to kill himself once already. Uh, once and then probably once in adolescence. Yeah. Okay. So yep. twice. And now he's going to, and he just, he can just write his way into the philosophy well, department he, no, at he Harvard. Had to, he had to apply in a normal fashion, but you have to remember. But he, he went had, to a good school. He had all these and awards. he had amazing grades and awards at a good school. And he's got a book out and an MFA. He's a curious case, right? You're, mm. you're the Harvard mm. admissions. And you're like, this could be interesting having young, mm. young David Wallace in our program, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So um, now before he goes... Well, he he so he ships off to, he ships off in April of eight of 1989 to Harvard um, and he doesn't have to go into the fall. So he has this sort of summer and the idea is, well, you know, maybe he'll write a bit. Um, he moves in. He and his buddy, Mark Costello, who's living in Boston, they move in together. It's an old friend from Amherst. Um, Mark Costello is now a lawyer. Um and David Foster Wallace gets some nonfiction work. He's working on a review of David Markson's uh, novel with uh, Wittgenstein's Mistress, which I strongly recommend if people haven't read it. Um, part of this f- falls right in with Wallace's you know, obsession with Wittgenstein. He's also watching a lot of television, Wallace's, with the downstairs neighbor, neighbor who proclaimed himself to be at the time the number one David Foster Wallace fan in the world. <laughs> And eventually they would get into a fistfight, Wallace and the number one fan, uh, over the literary merits of Wittgenstein's mistress. Uh, Wallace was, though, apparently writing quite a lot at this time, 25,000 words a day. And Kevin, you know, this is like his time before the MFA. When you have this period where you know you have a thing locked in in the near future, you there's a certain kind of focus you can have or a certain kind of peace you can have because you don't have any of the responsibilities of the thing yet but you also don't have any of the uncertainty of not having a thing it's kind of I a, had a spot. very productive time between getting into the mfa program mm-hmm. and getting there i wrote yep. one and a half plays both of which received productions various bits and but mm-hmm. yeah yeah you're yeah. right that's very yeah. curious because you're yeah. like well i've proven myself i've gotten into this thing i'm gonna right. show up with some stuff under the belt yeah and, and even if yeah. your money's yeah. a little low it's like i'm not gonna get a part-time job i got this thing we're going right into sure. the thing that's gonna sure. be fine so like yeah i'll get yeah. there and i'll just curious make time so he hmm. so he did that 
also during this time is when he writes with Mark Costello this book signifying rappers rap and the and race in the urban present which is a sort of a I didn't even really read any of it but um basically partially what he's doing in this is arguing that the self-awareness of rap music makes it uh an exemplar postmodern art form which I kind of agree with actually um yeah um, but he's actually having a lot of fun during this time, too, which we don't always see Fa- David Foster Wallace having a lot of fun. Um, he invites his agent, his lifelong agent, Bonnie uh, Nattle, to come visit. I'm going to read this little bit from the bio. <clears throat> um, Boston is fun, he wrote her. We'll have laughs, listen to rap and James Brown. Whatever warnings he had gotten in his Arizona recovery group if he returned to substances, as drugs and alcohol were called, had not come to pass. At least not yet. He would get high or drunk most nights, and as he later told an interviewer, fuck strangers. So it, I drunk. It can't be that it can't be that bad. I'm in the PhD program in philosophy at Harvard. Yeah. This yeah, is that that problem of high achieving mm-hmm. uh addicts mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you're high flying. Right, right. And you can point to a million different things. And also we live in a society of sort of like a Peter Peter Pan syndrome where mm-hmm. I, you know, he doesn't, it's fine. He's not married yet. It's fine. He's not settled down. He hasn't figured mm-hmm. it out yet. He can have kids when he's 35. Right. So few responsibilities and who can really blame him? Right. And he's an, an artist. That's uh, right. That's the other, that's the other part of it. He, he's never, he's never going to be, he's never going to be quite a normal guy. Right. Mm. He wants tell me to again be. what he's. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me again. What, well, he's clearly somebody who has a barometer. He knows mm-hmm. where North is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. that, that impression you did at the beginning. And then yeah. some of the reading, he knows where North is. He just knows that he's not, he yeah. can, his compass will never point directly North. Right. However much right. he tries to talk his way there. Yeah. Um, what, are, what's he doing every night right now? Oh, he's reading high drinking and fucking strangers. Yeah. I mean, at a point in your life, squad goals. I mean, <laughs> let's be real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. yeah it's, I'm not going to sit know. around here and be mopey for him. Right, right. Oh, poor. You yeah, know. Poor. Oh, that's oh, real go, tough. Oh, You'd you have gotten to Harvard and yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And sleep with um, strangers and get high, <laughs> get wasted. Right, right. Sounds like a pretty good time. Yeah. 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 And he's also remember too, he's like living with, he's back living with his best friend and like a roommate situation. It's like perfect for him. Who's out at work all day and then just comes home at night and they hang out. You know, it's, it's yeah. Uh, he does at one point, he goes to Yaddo again, but pretty much the whole time he's there, he just smokes weed and screws around with this conceptual artist, this female conceptual artist that he lives on the way home. He stays with some friends in Troy, New York. And actually, this is kind of scary. He almost dies in his sleep when he pukes up a bottle of Glenlivet that he drank and then passed out. Ooh. Um, uh the the bios quotes is quote says around this time his work had no center and so neither did he and i think mm. there's some truth to that he didn't know what he was doing creative creatively and the harvard thing the harvard thing was a sort of hail mary on his sanity that by the time it was up in the air he was sort of like yeah i don't know why i threw that you know, like, <laughs> like it was not a good idea. So he gets there and he's oh, he realizes it's a bad decision right away. To him, his roommate or his classmates seem sheltered and uh, 
a little overly academic sort of like uh yeah i, I mean have you been, have you spent any time in a philosophy department no i actually i mean I have it's not, no. staggering right, yeah right. i mean and, to, and the kind of and it takes to get into uh phd program at a school like that right is i yeah yeah in any case yeah i mean they mm. hundreds of people apply and they took six students including him oh yeah for so, sure yeah 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 it's great right. it's crazy um i want to read so he's very quickly he drops out uh, i don't i think he lasts there a matter of a couple weeks or a couple months um and here's something he said about basically about failing at life at 27 <clears throat> uh quote this is from this is this is wallace as though the entire it feels like as though the entire uh every axiom of your life turned out to be false and there was actually nothing and you were nothing and it was all delusion and that you were better than everyone else because you saw that it was a delusion and yet you were worse because you could not function that's him basically describing his life at that moment it was not long after uh oh this is how he this is how he this is actually a big moment um late october 1989 he um he's having a really hard time uh and he wants to like go get become hospitalized or leave or something but he's afraid with the pressure of the it's not clear what how this exactly works. Later on, he says that he said he told people he was going to kill himself or hurt himself because he knew if he did that, it would trigger a certain uh, set of protocols within Harvard that would allow him to eventually come back. But if he just quit, like I can't do it and quit, then that's a different that's a different scenario, right? Who knows? Whatever the case, he ends up in McLean Hospital. Kevin, do you know anything about McLean Hospital? Uh, sounds a little bit like Mr. Clean, Mr. Yeah. Clean, Mr. <laughs> Clean. Yeah. Is it from the Mr. Clean family of Boston? Yeah. Right. We're the, <laughs> we're the cleans of Boston. Oh, no, <laughs> it's the McLeans. McLean. No, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, this is, we could almost, we could do an episode on McLean Hospital, actually. Um, uh, it's the, McLean treated Ann Sexton, Robert Lowell, the mathematician John Nash from A Beautiful Mind, Sylvia Plath, James Taylor, Ray Charles, and many other people. Hmm. He's in McLean for four weeks, uh, comes out, puts himself into a halfway house in Brighton, run by a woman who'd uh, once uh, run a NASA-funded psychology lab before having to go into rehab from herself. One of the things from the top of the building a nasa funded psychology lab well, well no she had run that she had been running this lab and okay. like yeah. failed out and had to go into rehab and then started oh. her own halfway house after that. i see yeah Ooh. yeah um when it, this is kind of a poetic moment from the top of this halfway house if you were like on the roof you could just make out harvard like it was just over there Right. He's in this halfway house in a kind of slummy, slummy neighborhood. He would get a job as a security guard at a software company. And when he couldn't get up early enough for that, he would become a front desk attendant at a health club in Watertown. Let me read a little bit about that. Page. Uh, let's see. Watertown, Massachusetts. Yeah. Watertown, Massachusetts. Living in this halfway house in Brighton, Massachusetts. Um, Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, but he went to. So he went to. 
McLean, which is a psychiatric institute mm-hmm. affiliated with Harvard. Yeah. And he was detoxed there. And then he yeah. ended up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then he hmm. can put himself, I think he put himself into a halfway house after that. Hmm. Basically like sober living, you know, you got rules and you sure. To, yeah. 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 Um, uh, so, okay. He went to work as a front desk attendant at the Mount Auburn Co- club, a health club in Watertown. His job was to check members, members in, he called himself a glorified towel boy. But one day, Michael Ryan, a poet who had received a Whiting award, which is a big literary award alongside him two years before came to exercise. Wallace dove below the re- reception desk and quit that day. Right. That'd be tough. Working the desk. That's a tough one. That's yeah. a tough one. That's uh Walter White when one of his students shows up with a Porsche or whatever it yeah. is, or like a new new Lambo. Yeah. And yeah. he's uh, working the car wash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rough scene. Yeah. So now, but he's sober, right? Which is good. And he's starting to do okay physically. I think he's back on, I think he's back on medication now at this point. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he's back on Nardle. Um uh but you know he's depressed still. I mean he's he's at the bottom. This is the this is what maybe the low the low the lowest point of his life except like the end end right. And um, which when we get there, it's almost surprising it happened. That happens when it does. Um, <clears throat> you know, but the whole experience. This is what's interesting. The whole experience of this is actually what's going to fuel him to sort of get out of this rut and find that creative center again, right? Because a lot of Infinite Jest is about halfway houses, AA, um, addiction, right? And he's now, excuse me, he's now intimately familiar with the ins and outs of that world, not just for himself, but for other people too. What's it like for other people to be addicts, right? How is it similar? How is it different? How does it relate to other things? Um, so he's learning how to turn this into, to, into fiction. So, all right, 145, look at this thing in uh, a letter he wrote to Jonathan Franzen around this time. <clears throat> starting to understand his role in fiction. Again, he's figured out westward the course of the empire takes its way. And for a while, there's nothing to the West. And finally, there is something. He says, fiction for me is a conversation between me and something that may not be named God, the cosmos, the unified field, my own psychoanalytic cathexes, Rokuku, I don't know what that is, uh, whomever. I do not feel even the hints of an application to an entity called reader. Do not regard it as his favor, rather as his choice that duly warned he has expended capital, time, retinal energy on what I've done. So he hasn't quite done it, but he's transmogrifying. He's he's becoming, writing is now becoming something he does that has something outside of it's just fun and makes the click happen. There's a, there's a commitment to something, right? It's not quite where it's going to land because eventually he learns to sort of love the reader, but he's not quite there yet. Okay. Now, as we, this is around the time where he meets Mary Carr too, this uh, halfway house trying to get, stay sober kind of thing. And we do need to talk about this. It's, It's tough. I feel bad. I feel really bad for Mary Carr situation she was put through. Um, she's a poet and writer from Texas. She's about seven years older than Wallace. Um, she lived in Belmont at this time with her husband and son, and she's a sort of a, you know, she's a sort of a tough, uh, she's recovering alcoholic, but she's sort of stable relative to David Foster Wallace. And she's tougher than him really, um, in a sort of a mentality kind of way. He 
grew infatuated almost immediately, uh, began very stalker behavior. She's married again. Um, he would tell friends that they had an intimate relationship. He had an intimate relationship with Mary Carr when he didn't. Um, she would tell people like, no, we don't. This is causing problems in my relationship. Um, nonetheless, they were lives were enti- entwined for a while. Um, Carr apparently did sleep with him some small number of times. The exact ins and outs of their relationship, no pun intended. I, I don't mean to catalog, and I don't know that anybody really can, uh, except for maybe Mary Carr. Um, she did help hook him up with a teaching gig at Emerson um, to try and kind of get things stable for him. So he's not a desk attendant at a health club or a security guard at a software company. Um, and she actually pushed him into getting a private therapist. So he wasn't actually going through therapy at this time. He's just doing like group AA stuff, which was helping, but she thought he needed a little more, probably not wrong. Um, but importantly, you know, he's sober. He's not even watching TV. He doesn't have a writing project. The one is coming. And I really do think that he was addicted to Mary Carr now. He doesn't have anything else, right? The writing's not working. The booze isn't happening. The weed's not happening. The television's not. The, you know, what am I? I'm going to fixate on this woman. So all that other stuff was covering up this this somehow, or it's the I, same energy or the yeah, same. I I that's my take on it. Yeah, mm. that's my take mm. on it. And it gets and when yeah. you can't have it, it gets. It's just like when you if you're an addict, if you can't get a cigarette, you start get getting tense and weird. Yeah, and start, right. You start behaving uh, strangely. I, and, we have yeah. listeners who they they come to me and they go, Kevin, get a drop the next start of darkness. Uh, yeah. So you got to even more of that uh, <laughs> podcast about the dark right. side of. Creativity, come on now. Yeah, it'll cost you. Are yeah. you on the after yeah. yet? That'll be $18,000. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I have that number in my mind tonight. Yeah, mm. no, it's somebody get a ransom yeah. out. What's going on here, Kevin? With what is the what's the line from the more cowbell? Uh, cowbell, I got a fever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go on. Uh, go on. Okay, so. There's a bunch of stuff he does. And again, I am not going to try and downplay any of the nasty stuff he did. Apparently, at one point, you know, he, he after she cut off contact, he went to her office and yelled out her window, demanding to get his Walkman back, which is a very Generation X thing to do. Uh, when she threw it out the window, he stomped off and punched out a car window. Right. Um, he apparently threw her from a moving car at one point. He. um obtained a gun with the intention that he was going to shoot and kill Mary Carr's husband at one point. Um, he got a tattoo with her name and a heart. Um, he, uh, yeah, it's not good. None of it's good. Uh, is this a man who can be friends with women? I don't know. Doesn't I don't know if it's, mm. that doesn't really feel like it. Actually, no, yeah. I, I take that back. Later on, he does. I think once he's like got some more things sorted out, I think he's right. Not to, at this point. Not now. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. Uh, it's a volatile situation there because he's also yeah. an addict. And yeah. Uh, yeah, one night, one bad night. Right. He's got this right. gun. Yeah. He it's gets not into the vodka. 
it's not great and and no so she moves she moves to syracuse this is a little convoluted and i couldn't quite get what i thought was the real story she moves to syracuse and then he moves there shortly after and again it, it there are moments where they do have a relationship or something like it it's very difficult to untangle and i i, I don't want to pretend that i totally understand it all i know is he was infatuated with her and he clearly did some things that are um you know impossible and not, not really not easy anyway to make amends for right and reprehensible yeah and absolutely probably criminal, criminal behavior definitely criminal absolutely. messy yeah. and yeah. uh hmm. yeah. okay yeah um yeah and there was a scandal about this about you know it's funny i read about that stuff before i read this biography and there was a scandal about how um you know so little of this had shown up in dt max's bio and then i read the biography and there's like pages of this stuff i'm like i don't like i'm not sure how much was supposed to be in here like because mm -hmm. there's like complaints that that dt max like glossed over it but like yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what I don't totally understand what the scandal is all about. But. Well, I don't know a whole lot about it, but yeah. I think it says in the Wikipedia that Carr is quoting saying of the account that yeah. that's about 2% of what happened. Right, right. So what we're saying is is indicative of the kind of stuff that happened, but not the quantity. Um, right. Yeah, I think it's pretty nasty stuff. Um, Yikes. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, just yeah. not a he's a very difficult guy yeah and yeah obsessive i think we've got an obsessive personality yeah. on our hands here 100 100 uh, dfw yeah. yeah um by the time uh he does eventually have another kind of nervous breakdown this time so uh so he's sober again uh he ends up in the psych ward for in a few for a few days of uh newton wellesley hospital in 1991 we've stepped down from mclean hospital a little bit uh and i have this quote um, he writes a letter to his agent, Bonnie Nadil, who'd been there with him from the beginning. Quote, I think he wrote this from the hospital or shortly after. Please don't give up on me. I want to be a writer now way more than in 1985. I think I can be better than I was, but it's going to take time. And believe me, I know that quite a bit of time has elapsed already. Do not assume, please, that I am being slothful or distracted because I have not sent you any fiction to publish. Do not assume I've given up in despair or that I've burned out. I haven't. I swear. It may be a, a couple more years before I finish anything both long and respectable, but I will. Please don't forget me and please don't let Jared, Jerry, uh, I think his editor at the time, uh, Jerry, forget me either. I write daily on a schedule. I'm at least publishing hack work and I will be a fiction writer again or die trying. Okay, it's around this time he starts writing an essay, a piece for Harper's about television. And uh, he's an addict, television addict, right? So it could be in quite interesting if you get that sort of Wallace perspective. Um, in Actually, in writing this piece, I think is where he starts to get the final, uh, final sort of tying together the final things that allow him to to finally write infinite jest his understanding of of the relationship that american culture has to pleasure um and and addiction and um 
and and television is is baked right into that and how you're manipulated because of that and how it's made us un, unable to focus and do anything really difficult um he'll talk later on like you know even to the point of like people don't even have the attention span to be like citizens anymore like you can't even pay attention long enough to even understand it's one thing to be an obsessive and know everything that's happening but we can't even seem to know enough of what's going on to like even make the meager decisions that are sort of required of us right um and so he's sort of under he's beginning to understand how all of this stuff fits together um yeah i'm gonna read another little bit from the bio um <clears throat> quote now he was far clearer on why we were also hooked it was not TV as a medium that had rendered us addicts powerful, though it was. It was far more dangerously an attitude toward life that TV had learned from fiction, especially from postmodern fiction, and then had reinforced among its viewers. And that attitude was irony. Irony, as Wallace defined it, was not in and of itself bad. Indeed, irony was the traditional stance of the weak against the strong. There was power in implying that uh, what was too dangerous to say. Postmodernism, postmodern fiction's original ironists, writers like Pynchon and sometimes Barth, were telling important truths that could only be told obliquely. But irony got dangerous when it became a habit. Wallace quoted Lewis Hyde, whose pamphlet on John Berryman and alcohol he had read in his early days at the halfway house. Irony has only emergency use, the pamphlet said. Carried over time, it is the voice of the trapped who have come to enjoy the cage. Ooh, I mean, and nothing defines the the nineties more into the aughts, all the way up until like twenty eleven or twenty twelve. I, I would mm -hmm. say than irony, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. and that detachment, mm -hmm. uh, just yeah. the eye rolling pose. Yeah, yeah, and and I think he has a point where where it's not that zero irony is the answer right you still need it at times to navigate certain situations and explain certain things to you but like to him it becomes this habit it becomes it becomes lazy it becomes in a, well, a way that you don't actually have to deal with anything right? and irony is a word that has so many different meanings that, i mean right. i've been trained i mean there's dramatic irony where right. one of the characters knows something and another character doesn't or the audience knows something and another uh you know that that one of the characters doesn't know that that's not what we mean here mm -hmm. the the definition of irony is just something unexpected Right, uh, right, right. So what do we mean here? Let's just come out and say it. What do you mean here by this irony in in fiction and in that's, sort of that's a good yeah. that's a that's a good question. I mean, I almost treat it. I almost think of it as it's not a perfect synonym, but it's a, there's a sort of a Venn diagram of like sarcasm. Yeah. And um, a aloofness. Mm hmm. And. Um, what would there's like another is like a third there's a there's meta like a there's a part. meta quality to uh I, it's ironic detachment from the creation itself which mm -hmm. is almost always not serious because you bothered to make the thing right it's right. like i can you believe how uh much time we put into this silly thing that you're mm -hmm. watching and we right. know you're watching it's that weird it's like right. a brechtian wink at mm -hmm. the audience mm -hmm but not earnest it's right. not like 
not even well brecht wasn't winking brick brecht was hitting you with a sledgehammer saying <laughs> look you're watching something this is like a little coy wink like aren't aren't we funny we're playing right. with tv tropes right right, right. a little bit yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so so and and you i think i think all of us who lived through like the t- 90s 2000 into the 2000s I, I think we all see the I think we all know it and I think we all see the sort of the ways in which it can have a downside. And then when you play it, it, it is like there's an aspect of it too when this authenticity, um, this sort of arms race of authenticity happens. Um, eventually it has to spiral into like pure irony because you kind of can't take by having everything having to be authentic you kind of can't take anything seriously because the thing is you don't want to overcommit to anything because if someone calls you out on it right it's like then right then you've been boxed into a yeah you got nowhere to go right right so like it ends up being like well if i don't really give a shit about anything then like i never quite land and i can never really be made fun of i can never really be ostracized right yeah this question has the chat on fire right now. Oh, I'm going to just read what they've been saying. Uh, hard not to. <laughs> I, well, I can't so pay attention to that and this. I know you're doing yeah. a great job. And yeah. this is only because we're streaming this live as we record. Uh, <laughs> here's one comment Irony is your permission slip. Hard not to be irony poisoned in 2023, more relevant than ever. Than ever. Here's another person okay. calls it, and I like this. I like all of these, <laughs> but this is good the language of postmodernism mm-hmm. and another person says there's a lack of earnestness something mm-hmm. dishonest to it endless series of reflecting mirrors with a smirk as the objective mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. the word isn't it it's smirk. smirk it's like aren't i clever yeah. Yeah. i'm doing this but i'm aware of it yeah. Yeah. And I could just as easily do the other thing. Yeah. I think I yeah. think a way to see it too, a, a, a clear and this is all this is all great. I think a, a, a good way to to see it in action too is when people do things ironically. Like I remember for me in my particular milieu that I was in at the time with the sort of like late 2000s, which was like the heat of my the, the height of my social life the and also Burger King line cooks that you were hanging yeah. out with. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about Burger King line cooks, but but I remember I remember and this is this is going to sound like a pitch for authenticity for myself. And I guess it is. I remember I liked drinking Paps Blue Ribbon like I I liked it for a long time. My grandfather had drank it. And so to me, it was like it was a little bit of a like it's cheap. And it was also like a little bit of a connection with my grandfather. I never really knew. Yeah. And sure. then I realized that everybody was drinking it ironically and it was just a mm. very strange. And then I was, I was also, cause I'm right next to them also drinking it. And it was like, wait, what am I? And then I was like, am I drinking this? Am I really like, what am I actually doing here? Right. And it doesn't, I, I'm with you. I never, it, I never drank PBR on iron, like ironically. Yeah. That's because yeah. we're from, that's because we're, you know, well, we are from, real salt yeah. of the earth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 My, <laughs> Right. Step grandfather literally owned a bar. Right. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, okay, we could anyway. That's yeah. maybe on but, the but after dark. People for a yeah. while did drink it like ironically. It was like, oh, look oh, at oh big time. Oh, yeah. You know? Big time. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Um, so anyway. Well, they because they turned it into it. I mean, it, it, that brand was like kind of not a big deal. They turned it into a billion dollar brand. Oh, whoever, whoever was 
yeah. I'm pulling the levers on that. Was so, somebody in the chat? I, I really wonder how he said Frank Booth approves, right? Heineken, yeah, right? That great line from <laughs> from Blue Velvet. I really yeah. think if that movie and that line didn't exist, I good don't point. think that the PBR phenomenon would have quite happened. That's a good point. I really do think it goes back to that yeah. moment in Blue Velvet. Yeah. At least for me, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right. <laughs> Here's somebody else in the chat. Just a solid upper Midwest beer, fellas. <laughs> it God is. bless you. Well, it it's is. true. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. But you know, it it does. The PBR hits different after the after the cat in Brooklyn yeah. Yeah. at the loft party. Yeah. The the other thing here's here's where irony poison. This is like where irony poison gets another moment I can think of from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when it gets. This is like the pinpoint psychopathic end point of it remember there's a moment in it's always sunny in philadelphia when they're trying to become like actors they're trying to get into the movie business i don't know if you remember uh, i don't know how close yeah you i've seen that every show. episode yeah yeah, yeah. i and love that show. at one point dennis is like present he dennis is showing up and he's like he's basically like yeah just remember i don't care about any of this right yeah, I don't right. remember. I don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't care, care about, about anything. Any of this I don't care about any of this. That's right. That's because like, if you. Yeah, right. Right. Because right, if right. you actually care, then you can be judged on whether it works out or it fails or people like it or whatever. Right. right. I think one of the reasons that I really don't like the irony poisoning is that it obscures class and class consciousness because you can have you can be poor as fuck, poor yeah. as dirt, mm-hmm. and take the irony pill. And, a, mm-hmm. and have this cool affectation because who fucking cares, right? right? You could be rich as hell and take the same pose mm-hmm. and preserve your your wealth and your status, but do it like whatever, man. I don't care. Right. I right. think that's one of the reasons I dislike it. I think that yeah. I think that people who struggle should probably be as authentic as possible. Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought about it, that aspect of it. That's, that's I had never thought about it either, but I think yeah. that's why I dislike the attitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I hated all I hated all that grunge shit and all that stuff where you got people who uh, went to fucking prep schools dressing like Cobain. Right. I, I hate all that stuff. <laughs> I do. You're not fooling anybody. Yeah. You really yeah. aren't. Yeah. yeah. You're not Fair. fooling me. Yeah. Mm. Um. So believe it or not, you can choose to not believe this. Infinite Jest was an effort to try and find something on the other side of irony. I think people, okay. a lot of people who are passingly familiar with the novel are maybe going to have a hard time swallowing it. But that was the project. I'm going to read a little bit about that here from, again, from, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. Yeah. Okay. Bring it on. I am listening. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is, uh, again, Wallace is being interviewed quote. One of the things that made me think the book wouldn't get a very good reception. Um, oh, sorry. Um, one of the, uh, probably one answer is that I wanted something that had kind of the texture of what mental life was like in America right now, which meant sort of an enormous tsunami of stuff coming at you. Uh, and also it's not entirely readerly reader unfriendly. This again, he's talking about infinite just after the fact. Except for certain parts that are supposed to be hard in the middle. The book's divided into chunks. There are sort of obvious closures or last line, the last lines that make it pretty clear that you're supposed to go have a cigar or something and come back later. David Lipsky says short chapters too. Wallace says, yeah, especially at the beginning. A lot of them are very short. Uh, Lipsky, hard for readers at work. All day, head home, open the door. A thousand pages is a hard thing, a big, big thing to come home to. Wallace said, like I said, the goal was really weird. 
The goal was to have something that was really pretty hard, but also sort of be good enough and fun enough to make you willing to do that. And in the course of that, teach you that you were more willing, I guess, than you thought you were. I'm talking about what the goal was. I'm not talking about what it accomplishes. Tactically, though, you're right. I mean, Michael pointed out, this is editor Michael Peach, pointed out, and I agree that this was basically, you know, all about stomping on reviewers' feet, spitting their eye in their eye, and daring them to be pissed off. Because I've reviewed before. I know how much you get paid for it. I know what kind of deadline your work. Um, that wasn't quite the part I wanted, but it's still part of it. I can sort of I can sort of explain as well. <laughs> part of it's what just, he was trying I, to do. Go ahead. Can I just say, I mean, we're we're in that era, and we all now still live in this era mm-hmm. of just hyper awareness of what the thing is. Like you can't just somebody like DFW couldn't just set out to write a novel. It had to it had to mean something beyond mm-hmm. the meaning of what it's like to write a novel. And we still right. live in this, in this world. But what's fun is that you can just shut this off. If mm. you think you may want to be a writer, you could just write some genre fiction and yeah. have a great time and actually yeah. achieve everything Wallace, Wallace did and more without flying like that bird up your own ass. Right. <laughs> I like that. There is a coming qual- back to it. That's why I put that. I, in the it's a lovely metaphor. Yeah. I, I have yeah. been that bird and I have been the the guy trying to shoot the bird with a 22. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. you just got to shoot that bird, man. Yeah. And just like be, <laughs> just come get the f- out of yeah. your head and right. just like, ah, I want to write a play. Right. Why? Right. Ah, I, I want right. to write a play. I right. like the theater and I want to say something about this. Right. Do you right. know? I'm yeah, so glad absolutely. that we're we're doing this. Mm-hmm. But I just think as artists, like you can get, you know, oh, the New York Times has this to say, and the New Yorker has this to say, and it's all so important. It's just like ah, just yeah. ugh, well, just this make is, the thing. Yeah, this is sort of where I come at the Dave Foster Wallace thing. It's like you know that thing we we talk about. Like I, I've I've used the the image, and maybe it's not the best analogy of him constantly like folding over himself, kind of like you got it, eh, and eh. and I think the answer isn't you never do any of that folding it's like maybe do it a couple times don't do it until you disappear up your own ass right maybe one, a couple turns as the clang bird around is enough right you can have a little <laughs> clang bird yeah as a treat. a treat right but don't don't keep going man we get it mm. um mm. But but with Infinite Jest, partially the length itself was part of the the project of it he really wanted his thinking was if I make something that's good enough, and this isn't necessarily about the content, but we're going to talk about that in a minute. If I make something that's good enough and hard enough to get through, but it's good enough, right? Maybe we can all teach ourselves to care about doing something cognitively demanding and difficult again, right? I don't know if that's an admirable goal or not, but I think that's I think it's worth thinking about that being his intent. Like, I'm sick of all this irony. I'm sick of nobody cares about anything and you're not allowed to like anything and everything is what we would say now is cringe, right? And and let's, what if you actually just sat and tried to read a difficult book? And what if that book was good enough that you actually wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. Um, Kevin, what do you actually know? Uh, you said you tried to get read Infinite Jest. Uh, you got a little bit through it. Do you know much? Do you remember much about like what? Uh, I mean, I it seems to sort of be a bit of auto fiction. He <laughs> seems to be describing his time as an elite junior tennis player, is what yeah. I recall. Yeah, I also there's... recall some maybe drugs and alcohol. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And then also, again, the, a little bit of a class consciousness as I was reading it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy's not from my world. Right. right, uh, right. Which is probably one of the reasons I fell out. Although that that's not that doesn't always make me fall out. Right. Uh, to be right. clear, I'm not, and I don't want to sound like some fucking Marxist, you know, I, right. don't, I don't always go looking for class, you know, in every right. book I read right. far right. from it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there was a quality where I was just like, yeah. I don't need this right now. Yeah. 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 It felt kind of- very, one thing about it too, is that I think I started trying to read it while I was in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, there was something very Northern about that. Hmm. Yeah. Novel. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I don't and I, I can't and articulate I, what about it is, but I think yeah. you're right. And yeah. I think after it was like I, I I didn't read McMurtry while I was in Texas, but the mm. I ended up reading Lonesome Dove when I had moved to New York. In any case, yeah, that's what I remember about yeah. it. Yeah. 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 I kind of struggled with in this episode how much to talk about this book itself. I mean, clearly we can't not talk about it. Trying to sort of summarize the plot is a challenge. Um We'll, we'll talk a little bit. We're going to talk about it somewhat. And I, I'm just going to keep an eye on the time. I don't want to spend an hour talking about Infinite Jest, but I don't want to sp- spend two minutes. I'm going to try to find a sweet spot. We're um, into hour four, Brad. I know. That's, uh, that's what I'm saying. You're bringing the heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So let me just give you a couple of the interwoven narratives that are going on in Infinite Jest. One is a fringe group of... Oh, first of all, it takes place in the near future where uh, there is a... How would you describe? There's a there's a, a pretty major environmental calamity has occurred somewhere like in the Midwest called the Great Concavity, and things are somewhat destabilized. Um, uh, in terms of interestingly though, in terms of like world building, this dystopian reality, I don't think it's actually very good. It's more about these insular groups that are in this world, right? Um, one I don't the... remember anything about it being dystopian. Mm-hmm. at all yeah yeah so, yeah, okay. yeah so it's mm. there's parts of it that feel kind of tacked on a little bit um so here's some of the interwoven narratives one is a fringe group of quebecois radicals uh who are called the wheelchair assassins in english um uh plan a violent geopolitical coup um which is opposed by high-level u.s operatives um, another of the threads is various residents of the Boston area reach rock bottom with their substance abuse problems and enter a residential drug and alcohol recovery program, the Ennett House Drug and Alcohol Recovery House, where they uh, progress in recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Another is uh, students train and study at the Enfield Tennis Academy run by James and Avril Incandenza and Avril's adopted brother, Charles Tavis. Um, and then there's also the history of the Incandenza family unfolding, focusing on the youngest son, Hal. I'm just reading from Wikipedia here. Uh, these narratives are connected via a film, which is called Infinite Jest, which is also sometimes called the entertainment or the Samizdat. The film is so entertaining that viewers lose all interest in anything other than repeatedly viewing it and thus eventually die. It was James and Condenza's final work. He completed it during a period of sobriety that was insisted upon by its lead actress, uh, Joelle Van Dyne. The uh, Quebecois separatists seek a replicable master copy of the work to aid in acts of terrorism against the United States. The United States Office of Unspecified Services uh, aims to intercept the master copy to prevent mass dissemination and the destabilization of the Organization of North American Nations, 
or else to find or produce an anti-entertainment that can counter the film's effects. Joel seeks treatment for substance abuse problems at Ennett House. Uh, wheelchair Assassins member uh, Remy Marath visits Ennett House, aiming to find Joel and a, a lead to the master copy of the entertainment. Here are a couple of the character, a few of the characters. Um, Hal and Condenza is the youngest of the Incondenza children, and probably a stand-in for David Foster Wallace arguably the novel's protagonist uh, as its events revolve around his time at ETA Hal is uh, Hal is prodigiously intelligent and talented but insecure about his abilities and eventually his mental state his friend Michael Penniless calls him ink that's INC and his favorite thing to do is to secretly smoke marijuana in the seclusion of the ETA tunnels he has difficult relationships with both his parents he has an eidetic memory and has memorized the Oxford English Dictionary which I realized I stole for House of Sleep without realizing it uh, apparently, <laughs> and like his mother, often corrects his friends and family's grammar. Hal's mental degradation and alienation from those around him culminate in his chronologically last appearance in the novel, in which he attempts at speech. His attempts at speech and facial expressions are incomprehensible to others. The origin of Hal's final condition is unclear. Possible causes include marijuana withdrawal, a drug obtained by Michael Pemulus, a patch of mold Hal ate as a child. Uh, and or a mental breakdown from years of training to be a top junior tennis player. Okay. Avril in Condenza is his mother, Hal's mother, and is modeled on David Foster Wallace's mother. In fact, when Infinite Justice was published or like on the way to being published, Wallace started to get real concerned about his mom reading it and feeling hurt by it. Um, she's the domineering mother of the Incondenza family and wife of uh, uh, wife of James a tall, beautiful Francophone Quebecer. She becomes a major figure at, en en at Enfield Tennis Academy after her husband's suicide and begins a relationship with Charles Tavis, the school's new head. Uh, okay, there's another brother. There's a bunch of brothers in the Incondenza family. They all have their sort of own interesting story. One is a, a football player of some renown. Um now, at the Ennit house, there's a, a handful of characters, the most interesting of which is this guy, Don Gately. Don Gately is a former thief and Demerol addict and current counselor in residence at Ennit house. One of the novel's primary characters, Gately is physically enormous and a reluctant but dedicated AA member. He is critically wounded in an altercation with several Canadian men, and much of the later part of the novel involves his inner monologue while he recuperates in a Boston hospital. Gately had a complicated childhood. His stepfather abused his mother. During his middle school and high school years, Gately's size made him a formidable football talent. During his period as an addict and burglar, he accidentally kills uh, uh, M. Duplessis, a uh, leader of one of the many separatist Quebecois organizations featured in the novel. Gately is visited by the ghosts of James Incondenza and Lyle. Okay. There's a lot more threads. I mean, it's an 1100 page book. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot, a, a lot more going on. I want to read a couple of bits because, because I want to put it in Wallace's voice a little bit. Um, and these aren't going to be, I'm not picking these for specific commentary reasons. Honestly, I flipped through my copy and I just found some bits that I had highlighted in some form or fashion. Uh, when I read this, what gosh, 18 years ago or whatever when it was when i read it um so here's a, a bit where you've got david foster wallace in sort of a technical mode i would call it which uh does appear in time from time to time 
Um, which depends on, you know, how much stomach you have for this kind of thing, whether you actually would enjoy it or not. Okay, quote, the social anxieties surrounding the phenomenon psych consultants termed optimistically misrepresented masking, or OMM, intensified steadily as the tiny crude first generation video cameras technology improved to where the aperture wasn't as narrow. And now the higher end tiny cameras could tiny cameras could countenance and transmit more or less full body images certain physical uh, psychologically unscrupulous entre entrepreneurs began marketing full body polybutylene and urethane 2d cutouts sort of like the headless muscle man and bathing beauty cutouts you could stand behind and position your chin on the cardboard net neck stump of for cheap photos at the beach only these full body video phone masks were vastly more high tech and convincing looking. Once you added variable 2D heart wardrobe, hair and eye color options, various aesthetic enlargements and reductions, etc., costs, costs started to press the envelope of mass market affordability. Even though there was at the same time horrific social pressure to be able to afford the very best possible masked 2D body image to keep from feeling comparatively hideous looking on the phone. Is this is any, you know, filters on Instagram, right? How long then could one expect it to have been before the relentless uh, or TikTok rather? How long then could one expect it to have been uh, before the relentless entrepreneurial drive toward an ever better mousetrap conceived the transmittable tableau, a.k.a. TT or maybe TikTok, which in retrospect was probably the really sharp business end of the videophonic coffin nail with tt's facial and bodily masking could now be dispensed with altogether and replaced with the video transmitted image of what was essentially a heavily doctored still photograph one of an incredibly fit and attractive and well turned out human being someone who actually resembled you the caller you the caller only in such limited aspects as like race and limb number the photo's face focused attentively in the direction of the videophonic camera from amid the sumptuous but not ostentatious appointments of the sort of room that best reflected the image of yourself you wanted to transmit, etc. So that's him in, that's David Foster Wallace probably in his finest science fiction turn, I would say, kind of predicting where things are headed. Um, here's a little bit more that's a little bit more human, I would say. Um, okay. <clears throat> Boston AA is like AA nowhere else on this planet. Just like AA every place else, Boston AA, that's Alcoholics Anonymous for people listening, Boston AA is divided into numerous individual AA groups. And each group has its particular group name, like the Reality Group or the Alston Group or the Clean and Sober Group. And each group holds its regular meeting once a week. But almost all Boston's, Boston Group's meetings are speaker meetings. That means that at the meetings, there are recovering alcoholic speakers who stand up in front of everybody at an Amplify podium and, quote, share their experience, strength, and hope. And the singular thing is that these speakers are not ever members of the group that's holding the meeting in Boston. The speakers at one certain group's weekly speaker meeting are always from some other certain Boston AA group. The people from the other group who are here like at, at like your group speaking are here on something called a commitment. Commitments are where some members of one group commit to hit the road and travel to another group's meeting to speak publicly from the podium. Then a bunch of people from the host group hit the opposite lane of the same road on, the same, on, the same, on some other night and go to the visiting group's meeting to speak. Groups have always, tr always trade commitments. You come speak to us and we'll come speak to you. It can seem bizarre. You always go somewhere else to speak. 
at your own group's meeting, you're a host. You just sit there and listen as hard as you can. And you make coffee coffee in 60-cup urns and stack polystyrene cups and big ziggurats and sell raffle tickets and make sandwiches. And you empty ashtrays and scrub out urns and sweep floors when the other group speakers uh, are through. You never share your experience, strength, and hope on stage behind a fiberboard podium with its cheap uh, PA systems mic except in front of some other Metro Boston group. Every night in Boston, bumper-stickered cars full of totally sober people, sober people wall-eyed from caffeine and trying to read illegibly scrawled, scrawled directions by the dashboard lights crisscross the city, heading for the church basements or bingo halls or nursing home cafeterias of other AA groups to put on commitments. Being an active member of Boston AA group is probably a little bit like being a serious musician or like an athlete in terms of constant travel. All right. So again, just give me the kind of flavor of what parts of this book. And I wanted to give you different looks at this thing for people who haven't read it or dipped their toe in it. Just sort of like. Is different... it structured on uh, or based on the Brothers Karamazov? Does well, it owe some to that. That's a good. That's mm-hmm. a good point. A lot of people have. A lot of people have pointed out those relationships, and there are in terms of family dynamics and 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 other and other things. Um, I think Wallace probably deliberately took some of that stuff, and other stuff was sort of, um, you know, it's part of his reading. Um, that was was interesting. I was reading that 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 summary of Infinite Jest, and I was like, oh. I stole that for something I did and I never made that connection. I thought I came up with that. Um, <laughs> so these things are, yeah, these things are sometimes they're in the air and, and, and yeah, he definitely, definitely, there's a lot of correspondences. How much of it is deliberate on David Foster Wallace's part, how much of it is incidental or sort of, you know, not remembered and comes to the surface. And then how much of it is just coincidental stuff that comes up telling a story. Right. Um, I think if you read Brothers Karamazov and you're not influenced by it a little bit, you probably didn't read it right. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, let me read this other little part. <clears throat> Quote, like most young people genetically hardwired for a secret drug problem, Hal and Condenza also has severe compulsion issues around nicotine and sugar. Because smoking will simply kill you during drills, only Bridget Boone, a stereotic girl 16 named Carol Spodek, uh, and one or the other of the Vaught twins are masochistic enough to do it, though Teddy Shocked has been known to enjoy the occasional panatella. The nicotine craving Hal tries to mollify as best as he can by dipping Kodiak wintergreen smokeless tobacco several times daily, spitting into either a cherished old childhood NASA glass or the empty can of spiritine high-protein breakfast beverage that even now sits, given a wide berth by all the others, next to a small pile of the tennis balls the kids' tables uh, kids don't have to squeeze as long as they're eating. Hal's more serious problem was with sucrose the hope smoker's ever-beckoning siren, because he uh, craves it always and awfully, Hal does, sugar, but finds now lately that any sugar infusion above the level of a 56-gram amino-pal high-energy bar now induces odd and unpleasant emotional states that don't do him one bit of good on court. Right. Uh, Yeah. Um, Okay. 
I don't want to read a whole lot more. I had a couple other sections. We're gonna we're gonna not read a ton more infinite chest. Um, uh, those are some. Those are kind of sporadic examples of what it feels like to read different Just parts so of infinite intense chest. And, it is. Uh, yeah, you and gotta it, get into it if you're gonna get through it. Yeah, I think this is something. I don't know. I'll probably. I was sort of joking earlier today that like I don't know if I'm ever gonna read a book that long again. Um, <laughs> just from practical, like, I don't know how I would shoehorn that into my life. In well, a you know, but like Lonesome Dove is, is that long is and it? it's a joy to read. Right. It's an old cowboy story. Yeah. Do you yeah. know? So it doesn't have to be this, this way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right, right. you know, yeah. but yeah. Lonesome Dove is also not this entirely self-conscious postmodern Thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And, and there's a lot going on. Um, uh, there is a, uh, you know, the, the way it's modeled is on something called the, Oh, I had it written down and I forgot. And now a Steingart's gasket, which is like some imagined geographic, um, pattern or a geometric pattern that sort of like predates mm. the quote unquote discovery of the fractal. It's supposed to be like mm. modeled on that. Um, and, but then, but then Wallace claims that they had to make such severe edits that like that pattern doesn't quite live in the book anymore. So it's like a broken gasket. Um, I don't know quite what to make of that. It's clearly not patterned on any sort of, uh, Freitag's triangle sort of like oh you'd go up to your inciting incident and then down a little bit and it's mm, not it's definitely mm, not that mm, sure um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dispute about the ending the ending is very dissatisfying for I would say most people who read it hmm. um, it ends in what Wallace called the sort of Artaud blackout uh, and part of the reason why and we can decide that Wallace doesn't get any credit for this if we want. He wanted it to be a failed entertainment. <laughs> because Ooh. the book is about a poisonously entertaining thing, video. Sure. If the book sure. itself becomes that, then what is he doing? Right? Right. Right. Now, that's a little taking yourself a little seriously, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But okay. It's a bit much. It's it a is. bit much, it I is. think. Yeah. But mm. you know, you're also, God, this poor guy, he's trying to find something that means something to him, too. You know, mm. it's like you mm -hmm. start to understand mm -hmm. him as a person. It's like he you know, he's fairly young when he's writing this. You know, he's in his early, he's in his early 30s, most late 20s, early 30s. He needs a center to his life because he keeps falling you know falling into the pit of his own bs you know and mm -hmm. and, and, and you can say and, and it's fair I, I suppose i mean it's fair to say it's it's laziness and it's entitlement and it's it's uh you know what else selfishness and i you know it, it is some of those things um th this is where this is where I find the lives of these writers really interesting because he ends up, I think, being a sort of metaphor for what was happening to a lot of people or maybe to society collectively in the 90s into the 2000s, right? It's like, we're gonna have, um, we're going to have everything we ever wanted just given to us in terms of mm -hmm. entertainment, right? Every pleasure is satisfied. 
And then, and then it, for him, you know, upper class, at least maybe not financially, but at least in sort of status, extremely well-educated, super smart, right? You know, he would add white and straight and male to that Got It sort of has it all in a way. And there's something desperately sad about it. And then what you're not, but you, but like, you're not allowed to feel that sadness because you've got all mm. this stuff, right? There's like, mm. but that's how he feels. So like, what do you, you can't, you can't not, you know, so there's this contradiction or this sort of paradox that I think of being a person like him that he um, exemplifies. And I think that's why he's, mm. he's interesting. And, and infinite jest is like this attempt to like, can something please for the love of fucking God mean something right mm. for him, mm. if not for everybody yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. So, mm. um, so anyway, um, that's not even trying to tell you, Hey, you should read this. This is like why this book is <laughs> a thing, I guess. Um, there's a great, um, if you felt like the ending of Infinite Jest, if you read it and you felt like it was disappointing or you felt like you didn't really understand what was going on, I certainly, when I read it years ago, I remember getting towards the end and being like, you know what? I don't know what the hell is happening here. Like, I don't, people are, sh- characters are showing up that I don't remember. Um, you know, like, I don't remember why these people are this way. Hmm. Um, there is a great, I, go ahead. Kevin. No, I, I was just looking up because so often Wikipedia will, in the early life section, will not really clarify religiosity of the parents. Right, right. And I read that they were atheists. Yeah. And apparently he twice tried to join the Catholic Church, the one truth faith. Yes. But flunked the period of inquiry. And he yes. attended a Mennonite church. Am I ahead of things? Yeah, we were going to talk about that, but this is fine to talk about it now. Yeah, 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 he, yeah okay. he did attend a Mennonite church kind of for like the social purposes. Well, the Mennonite church thing is a kind of a lie. And part of mm-hmm. what the Mennonite church thing was about, I think there was a real Mennonite church that he had some relationships with, but he had to, um, for part of the publicity tours around Infinite Jest and other like public events that he went to later, somebody he was in recovery with would go with him Mm. to keep help, Mm. keep him on the straight and narrow. And he didn't want to tell, you don't want to tell this report, like who's this middle-aged woman you're hanging out with um, Mm. or whatever. You don't want to tell the reporter, Oh yeah, this is a person. This is my sponsor. Who's sure going off the rails. So he'd be like, well, this is my friend from the church who, you know, decided we'd come along with me and, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, are we really surpri- surprised yeah. somebody who was raised by a couple of atheists find finds no meaning or no right. like? What do you think is going to happen? Right, right. Yeah, I can't imagine what yeah. a way to and do, yeah. you do you. Yeah, but that's a hell of a way to raise yeah. a child, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the thing: he did try. He did try to become religious. He did try mm. to get some mm. kind of faith, and I think the problem was it was like. He actually went through some um, economical program called Carrillo, I think it's called, where um, the whole idea is trying to bring the like faith experience out of the head and into the heart. That's sort of like mm-hmm. the motto of this thing. And what he was trying mm-hmm. to do was like he realized that his brain was the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's trying to get like, how do you just you know sort of overshoot that and land in your heart somehow? And it just he couldn't do it. He would get to the point where you're supposed to like sort of say your faith, and he would just 
he would laugh sometimes, probably a kind mm. of nervous laughter. He just couldn't, yeah. he couldn't make it work for himself. Um, mm. He was ultimately irony poisoned. And it's like, mm. and, and poison is a good, is a good metaphor for that because you can't just decide to not be poisoned anymore. Right. It's, it's in you, right? You can yeah. hopefully get the antidote in time, right? But you don't get to just be, well, okay, you know what? I'm not poisoned anymore. I watched mm. TV for 20 years straight, but you know what? I'm fine now. Mm. Right. So, yeah. Um, okay. So, moving on. Uh, oh, I was going to say if you have read Infinite Jest and you found the ending dissatisfying or you just want to get a better sense of like, what is all these plot points coming together? Check out, um, it's on just this guy's blog, but it's the best explanation of it that I've found. Um, and I read a bunch of like literary criticism and stuff, and this guy breaks it down the best. Um, Aaron, like the male spelling, A-A-R-O-N-S-W dot com slash weblog slash I-J-N end. Or you can just search what happens at the end of Infinite Jest and it will come up first. It's pretty good. It breaks things down pretty clearly, explains to you what's going on. Um, if it doesn't f- adequately explain why it ended, it does lay out like what leads to what, and it can provide a pretty good reading guide, I think. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> and, you know, one thing I'm skipping over is how long it took to write this book. I think it was a seven years total, and there was a lot of editing. There was a lot of back and forth sending it to this great editor, Michael Peach, uh, not spelled Peach, but that's how it's pronounced. Um, cutting, 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 cutting hundreds of pages, probably up to upwards of 500 pages were cut. Um, comes out on Little Brown, and it's a huge success. <laughs> <laughs> how? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. What? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it Wallace didn't even think it should have been that big of a success. This is like the sort of almost tragic. Um, we'll talk. This is another definition of irony. This is not the drinking Paps Blue Ribbon irony. This is mm-hmm. it shouldn't have happened, but it's kind of oddly funny that it did. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there is no reason. Like you would, no one would have ever predicted this book would have done as well as it did. Mm-hmm. We're talking mm-hmm. eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think after a year or two, 165,000 copies were sold, which for Unreal. like literary fiction like this is like basically does not happen. It, I don't and think it's now it happens book. at all. And it, yeah, it's, it's right. enormous. I mean, look at this. Look at this thing. I've had to move this across the country several times. I mean, <laughs> like I've paid more in shipping costs and gas money than this car. Yeah, this thing. Brad can never move again. Yeah, for real. Uh, for yeah. real. Infinite jest as I'm locked in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing, um, uh, one thing that's funny about it, and I do want to explain a little bit, um, the footnotes. As people may know, there are footnotes and even endnotes in this book that comprise as many words as as like a novella in and of itself, if not a full novel. Um, and I just wanted to give people a sense of like people who are like, what is the deal with the footnotes? What is the deal with the footnotes? I'm gonna tell you. All right. Um, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Quote, I've become intensely attached, attached to this strategy. That is the footnotes and endnotes and will fight with all 20 claws to preserve it. 
It allows me to make the primary text an easier to read while at once one allowing a discursive authorial intrusion intrusive style without finneganizing the story that's finnegan's wake Two, mimic the information flood and data triage uh triage i'd expect uh, i expected to be an even bigger part of u.s life 15 years hence which is when the book's set three have a lot more technical medical resimilitude Four, allow slash make the reader go literally physically back and forth in a way that perhaps cutely mimics some of the story's thematic concerns. Five, feel emotionally like I'm satisfying your request for compression of text without sacrificing enormous amounts of stuff. Um, so you sort of couldn't give it up, right? For those reasons. Some of them are good. Some of them are somewhat self-serving. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So before Infinite Jest came out, um, he actually got a job at Illinois State University. So he's working on the book. He uh, he ends up back at Illinois State University after um, living in the halfway houses and living in Syracuse for a while. He ends up back at Illinois State with a with a with a job uh, teaching. Um, this puts him back practically back at home. Uh, I think in 1993 he moves there. 31 years old. And this is where he actually starts to learn how to balance writing and teaching. He was always able to either do one or the other. Now he's now he's sort of actually able to do it. Um, he weirdly gets sort of like assigned a girlfriend almost. The department chair is like, you should meet my daughter. And they end up in like a relationship, um, which now that we know the history of the Mary Carr situation, it's like, man, I wish somebody had pulled that department chair aside and said, Maybe he knew, and it's just like I can control this somehow. Yeah, or I don't know. I don't know. It's creepy. I don't think a lot of the Mary Carr stuff at that point was public. Walsh sure. wasn't that much of a public figure. You know, it's not like people would have been mm. writing tabloid style stuff about him. Mm. Um, he is also starting at this time to publish more nonfiction. He had been publishing some, but he's publishing a lot more. Peaking, some would say. Excuse me, with the article. Um, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, uh, which came out in a collected volume under that title in 1996. Supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is he goes to a cruise ship with all his neuroses and anxieties and all that. And um, a lot of his articles are that him going to a place and sort of you just getting the David Foster Wallace perspective on this thing, this event, this you know, setting, the state fair, uh, a porn, uh, uh, the porno award, uh, adult video network awards, whatever. Um, he had a habit of gonzoizing stuff where he would just like, well, I'll just make up something that's sort of like metaphorically apt for the kind of thing that happens here. Right. And he would get some grief from that from people later. But to me, I don't care. Make it up. I don't care. Yeah. None of, I mean, just don't present it as uh, God's truth. Jur- yeah. And, capital and, J journalism. Yeah, and, and don't make a, yeah. don't put somebody's name on something that specific person didn't do. Sure. Right. Of but course. like, but if it's right. like a thing, yeah, I don't care. Who cares? Yeah. The Kentucky <laughs> Derby is decadent and depraved. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and then you end up saying Good the stuff. truer thing, right? Uh, right, of course. In a, in a cri- of course. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, visions of Nixon and his staffers cannibalizing a, some sort of a... Right. Like a right. Boy Scout in the, the back of a camper. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and, you know it's not true. Of course it didn't happen. But of course, yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, but now, yeah. now, I mean, now that stuff, okay, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I wonder what it's Hunter true. would say about uh, 2023. Oh, he's, if he's still working for Rolling Stone, he would say. Uh, let's not right. get into it. We, we're going to no. do Hunter next year, I think. Yeah, I got to do yeah, Hunter. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Um, mm-hmm. Here's another thing. So, but once he gets Infinite Jest, is, as it's approaching development and as it's going to come out, He's actually stabilizing pretty good. And part of this is this being at Illinois, figuring out how to do the teaching and writing um, relationships he has with Jonathan Franzen and Don DeLillo, mostly by correspondence. But but here's the thing. He's got finally he's got sympathetic people who are on his level that he can talk to. Right. About his issues as a problems with a writer, as a writer and all of this. And those people need that help, too. Don DeLillo needs somebody to talk to sometimes, too. Jonathan Franzen needs somebody to talk to sometimes, too. Um and so they're gen, you know, those friendships are genuine. He's also relies on his recovery group intensely, like more than I realized was even okay to do. Let me read a bit. It sounds like a religion to some people. They treat yeah. it as a surrogate for it. Yeah, that's one right. of the gripes a lot of people have against. Well, a, I, I think yeah. I think he was doing that, and whether that's good or not, I will leave that to somebody else to decide. Um, quote. Wallace's recovery friends were much in evidence in his new home. That's in Illinois. Many of them were handy and they were vigilant that the impractical Wallace not get ripped off by their own. His best friend from recovery, Francis B., built his bookshelves. Another put in a cutoff switch for his main electrical cable. Francis B.'s mother volunteered to clean Wallace's house. Soon she was doing his wash with Wallace hiding his underwear from from her before she got there. She would cook for him or pick up a roast chicken at his favorite restaurant and stick it in his empty fridge while he was teaching her at a meeting. One time, when the handle on his screen door came off, Wallace called Francis B. and said, how much is a new screen door going to cost me? His friend came over with a screwdriver and fixed it. Wallace exaggerated his helplessness. It was at once a gesture of generosity and selfishness. The others took pleasure in helping and Wallace got things done that he didn't have time or aptitude for. Um, Yeah. Okay. So book comes out obviously a big hit like we said 165,000 copies would be sold eventually he goes on this book tour by the end of his book tour that this book is written about and there's a movie made about this book which is very strange that you'd make a film that's decent to watch uh it's actually pretty good for for what it is it's a strange idea for a film but once you've accepted the premise it's a well-done film jesse eisenberg plays david lipsky the author um and Jason Siegel plays David Foster Wallace, does a great job. Once they, this, the tour, I think I've got this right. They go on the book tour and during the tour, there's several more print runs of Infinite Jest. Like it's so popular. They're like, oh, I guess we got to do it again. And then a week later, like, oh, I guess we got to print it again. Like, oh, I guess we got to, like, they can't, they can barely keep up with demand for this monstrosity of a book. Um, Okay. Now, here's an interesting thing uh, about him becoming famous. As you can imagine, a guy who's who's sort of neurotic, but also real serious about authenticity, believes in his work, uh, very self-conscious. It, it, it's it's weird to become famous, to go on television beyond uh, uh, um, Charlie Rose, right? And be interviewed for an hour. It's all very weird. Um and he actually has to learn to become media savvy. I'm going to tell you one of his first big interviews that's not in like a literary magazine um, is with 
Details Magazine. This is just a funny story. <clears throat> Wallace had never been interviewed by the mainstream media in depth before. The only feature magazine piece written on, on him had been by a friend of his agent for arrival in 1987. So he left up the letters uh, for, from Franz and Delillo and others, a whole wall of letters that helped me or are important, as he let, later wrote to Delilo, Delillo. The reporter, David Streitfield, who was on staff with the Washington Post, told him he should take them down because a journalist could see them and quote from them. He also told Wallace that rambling self-analysis might not be the ideal approach to conversations for publication. An interview is not the place for the confidences. I was, uh, this is a quote from Wallace, I was wildly indiscreet about stuff like drug histories and Mary Carr, Wallace wrote to Lolo afterward. And the, inner, the reporter stopped me in the middle and patiently explained certain rules about what to tell reporters. About, this time, about his time in substance abuse programs, he needed no coaching since Carr had already warned him about it. Um, but when Newsweek soon after asked him how he knew so much about recovery, he trickily replied, Quote, I went with friends to an open AA meeting and got addicted to them. It was completely riveting. I was never a member. I was a voyeur. When I ended up really liking it was uh, when I let people there know this and they didn't care. Right. So he has to start lying about things. And I thought this was just charming. This interviewer, he starts telling this interviewer everything. And the the, the, inter, the reporter's like, dude, hold on. Like, you're a nice guy. I don't want to see this go poorly. So here's what you shouldn't do. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> right. Cause you could have just had somebody wow. just turn that into the tell all. Right. Um, yeah. Is he really fooling anybody? Like I'm just a voyeur at AA and a, I, you know, I got I a lot know. out of it. They don't, you really don't only, <laughs> I, there are, I think there are open meetings, but I mean, I think you're really only kind of welcome if you identify as a, a, right. an alcoholic. I, yeah, I would think, yeah. but but I mean, it mm. it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to go. It's like not like anybody's going to background check you on whether. Yeah, you're they're not going to. Yeah, they're not going to give you a hard time. Yeah, right, right. So it feels like right. you're just, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. Now, I don't know. I I don't know how much mm. people believe it or not. It's kind of hard to say. Um, sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Here's a couple things I want to read about this. Um, Okay, a couple things from him that he's starting to get. I think this is, I think I'm in the right book now. Well, let's swap in between books here. Um, swap on, Brad Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> you're crushing it. Yeah, you're I know. I know. I don't take it a lot of time. All right. Time, but All right. I know you're going to bring it in. You're going to bring it in. He's in his 30s and he only lives to 46. So, <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, this is an interesting thing. So, the book comes out. Why is the book not enough? Why isn't Infinite Jest? enough for him right hmm. all he wanted he had a huge not you couldn't have literally can't as like a you can't have a bigger novel than infinite jest in terms of publication hmm. and accolades and all of this stuff he you can he could have went and taught anywhere he wanted he didn't have to teach he got a macarthur grant the next year he didn't have to do he didn't literally didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do anymore right, right? he didn't right. have to write these um, magazine pieces if he didn't want to or he could have written as many magazine pieces as he wanted he could have done anything sure right sure why sure. so why does he end up so depressed and why does he just end up back in the same place as he was this is at the heart of so much of the so many of the figures that we cover like yeah mm -hmm. we have i'm our, our maya dearens who mm -hmm don't ever get this kind of success in their lifetimes. But we also look at Hemingway yeah. and you, you go, mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this for the past few weeks since covering Hemingway. Like how do you fumble that bag that right. hard? Right. 
And it's it, and the the answer, the pat answer is a m- 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 mental health. Right. 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 It's like, what does that mean? You just go. Yeah. What does it mean? Like you have everything. You're the most famous writer alive. You could do anything. Right. And instead, you just you just drink yourself to death, or you right. I I, I don't Sp- understand spiral it, out of control. But, yeah, for yeah. for Wallace, I kind of wonder if it like if that fame had come a decade later, and he had managed mm-hmm. to like stabilize himself more and more and more, and then like oh he's forty five years old. Like, I I kind of wonder if it would have gone a little differently. But mm-hmm. here's here's something here's something he said. So. Um, this is from the, um, of course, you end up being yourself. There's, you know, they're talking about the fear, right? Um, he's talking about, uh, quote, that the fear is the basic condition. And there are all kinds of reasons for why we're so afraid. But the fact of the matter is, is that is that the job that we're here to do is to learn how to live in a way that we're not terrified all the time and not in a position of using all kinds of different things and using people to keep that kind of terror at bay. That is my personal opinion. Well, for me, as an American na- male, the face I'd put on the terror is the dawning realization that nothing's enough, you know, that no pleasure is enough, no che- achievement is enough, that there's a kind of queer dissatisfactionness or emptiness at the core of the self that is un- unassuageable by outside stuff. And my guess is that that's been what's going on ever since people were hitting each other over the head with clubs, though describable in a number of different worlds and words and culture argos. And that our per, our uh, particular challenge is that there's never been more and better stuff coming from the outside that seems temporarily to sort of fill the hole or drown out the hole. Um, here's another thing. Um, I think if you dedicate yourself to anything, one facet of that is that it makes you very selfish. And that when you want to work, you're going to work. And you end up using people, wanting them, wanting people around when you want them around, but then sending them away. And you just can't afford to be that concerned about their feelings. And it's a fairly serious problem in my life because, I mean, I would like to have children, but I also think that the sort of life that I live is a pretty selfish life and it's a pretty impulsive life. And, you know, I know there's writers I admire who have children and I know there's some way to do it. I worry about it. I don't know what I want to say. I don't know that I want to say anything much more about it. I mean, there's jokes about getting laid on tour and stuff, but I don't even know what that means. Um, yeah, so that's at, this is basically, he's saying these things while the world is saying, oh my God, you're the, you know, you're the best writer of your generation and the books are flying off the shelves and, you know, can't even keep up with media requests and all of that. Right. Um, around this time during the sort of fanfare of infinite jest, he has a fraught entanglement with a woman named Elizabeth uh, Wurzel who's the author of Prozac Nation. Uh, we'll just say it was frustrating for David Foster Wallace. I think he was maybe a bit of a jerk to her. I don't know that we, there's any abuse on the level of the Mary Carr situation. He did write a story called The Depressed Person, which was basically about her. Uh, and Oh, that's, uh, that's nice. So yeah. I'm going to love uh, that. Yeah. He has a interview with Charlie Rose in uh, 96 uh, with this one. One he does with friends and Mark Laner and one in 97 where he's wearing a bandana and a white shirt. And this is where like he's really in the public. I mean, Charlie Rose isn't, you know, going on. I don't know. 
it, it was pretty big. It's not like going on Letterman, but it's going sure, on but among, like it's going on like the tote literati, bag Letterman. Yeah, yeah, a tote bag Letterman. Very it's, good. Charlie right. It's kind of what it is. Letterman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot sure. of people watch, I was watch thinking, Charlie Rose. And I was thinking about that too, uh in terms of this novel. People who buy new novels in hardcover and paperback, mm-hmm. this is gonna this is gonna get them mm-hmm. in oh, interested. Yeah, the panties the drop. Yeah, yeah. That group yeah. is this is this is definitely for them yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, so he's getting this kind of attention where he's on TV, and you see him on television, and it's a very, to me, I think a lot of people just see sort of a neurotic person in this Charlie Rose interview. And for people who are out there, I recommend looking up um, David Foster Wallace, Charlie Rose. Look for the one where he's wearing the bandana. I think it's interesting. I think it's a it's a kind of a public persona that you don't really see it's it's sort of weirdly guarded and unguarded at the same time it's sort of you can sort of see it see him being extremely self-conscious but he's also being i think vulnerable in a way that you uh, uh, that is trying to reach beyond that irony poisoned thing right it's like how do you get okay if the world is irony poisoned how do you get past that right mm-hmm. because other mm-hmm. people expect mm-hmm. you to be ir- ironic too so how do you move beyond that well i mean part of it might be saying the thing and going like saying something you agree with and being like i know that sounds pretentious i know this sounds silly i know this makes me look dumb but this is what i think i don't, I don't know how you get past it but i feel like wallace was trying to find a way through that stuff in, in these interviews um that said, he did kind of go crazy with sex during during this the the the, the fanfare. He wasn't drinking though. Uh, he wasn't using other drugs. You know, I, th- I guess take that you know for what you will. Um, you know, he had like some girlfriends, kind of cheated on them. You know, he wasn't reliable in any real way. Um, yeah, he'd back in Illinois, you know, it turns out that he's and he'd go into a recovery meeting and he'd be like, oh, boy, I have slept with three women here. That's just fun. Right. OK. All right. Yeah. It's Not called good. the uh, the 13th step. Yeah, that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 13th mm-hmm. step. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some of this work goes into some of this experience goes into a book called uh, brief interviews with hideous men, which is all sort of short stories that are set up like interviews with men who have, um, in sort of nasty parts of their personality, generally of a sexual nature. I don't think it's his best work. It was weirdly turned into a movie by John Krasinski from the office for some reason. Um, it's watchable. It's a weird subject to make into a film because the interviews don't hang together. So it comes off as almost like a mockumentary. Hmm. It's it, it's not it, I think it's as well done as you could do if you were going to make that into a book. But I'm not sure why you uh, would make a movie book. make the book. Or, yeah, into I'm, a movie. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. why you would make it into a movie, but I think it's as good as you can do. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Um, OK, let's see what else we've got here. Um nonfiction work okay he's got a lot of nonfiction work and in fact at one point a little later when he starts thinking you know he starts struggling with the novel of course he just dropped infinite jest so the question is when is the next novel coming out 
right? Um, it never does until after he's gone. Um, a lot of the time he's trying and a lot of the rest of the time he's working on nonfiction. Um, he has a great, one of my favorite pieces is he goes to visit um, the set of David Lynch's Lost Highway. And you can uh, just Google this up. Just look up David Foster Wallace, David Lynch art piece. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, and I'll give you a quote just uh, for that sort of rem- uh, ties in a little bit with previous Art of Darkness episodes. <clears throat> quote, uh, 1984's Dune is unquestionably the worst movie of Lynch's career, and it's pretty darn bad. Now, I, I want to has- pause here for a second. Wallace loved David Lynch. I know I just read that part, and so it's going to sound like he's hating it. He loved David Lynch. Okay. In some ways, it seems that Lynch was miscast as its director. Probably, maybe fair. Eraserhead had been one of those sell-your-own plasma to buy the film stock masterpieces with a tiny and largely unpaid cast and crew. Dune, on the other hand, had one of the biggest budgets in Hollywood history, and its production staff was the size of a Caribbean nation, and the movie involved lavish and cutting-edge special effects. Plus, Herbert's novel itself was incredibly long and complex, and besides all the headaches of a major commercial production financed by men in Ray-Bans, Lynch also had trouble making cinematic sense of the plot, which even in the novel is convoluted to the point of pain. In short, Dune's direction called for a combination technician and administrator, and Lynch, Lynch, though technically as good as anyone, is more like the type of bright child you sometimes see who's ingenious at structuring fantasies and gets totally immersed in them and will let other kids take part in them only if he retains complete imaginative control. Uh, Watching Dune again on video, easy to do, it rarely leaves its spot on Blockbuster's shelf, you can see that some of its defects are clearly Lynch's responsibility, casting the nerdy and potato-faced young Kyle MacLachlan, Kyle MacLachlan as an epic hero, and the police's unthespian sting as a psycho villain, for example. Or worse, trying to provide plot exposition by having characters' thoughts audibilized on the soundtrack while the camera zooms in on the character making a thinking face. And it just kind of continues on in this vein. I just wanted to read a little bit of that for fans of the the frank herbert episode i unironically love david lynch's doom i know you do and I, all I, of its problems yeah. i you come out of that movie feeling like you've been on a trip yeah yeah, yeah. i like that about yeah. it yeah I, I think i think you got i think there are it's flawed though right oh I mean, yeah it's not like of course it's, it's of course like no i don't i don't think it's a masterpiece out. no right. but i really like it i like putting yeah. it on there's something kind of cozy about it for me right i don't right. know yeah right um another big thing that wallace has come out um is oblivion it's a collection of short stories some of which he had published i'm gonna do the thing i did with um girl with curious hair and read a couple of the summaries um and i'll recommend i'll recommend maybe two of them to go read um uh mr squishy is a story at um oblivion this is published oblivion was published in 2004 mr squishy uh uh let's see this story mr squishy takes place in november 1995 and follows a focus group in a marketer's conference room as well as the facilitator of the focus group terry schmidt schmidt leads a focus group that is taste testing a new chocolate chocolate snack named felonies while a person free climbs up the building's north face uh incarnations of a burned child if you want to read like 
if David Foster Wallace was to write horror, read Incarnations of Burned Ch- Burned Children. It's it's really well done, actually. I, it's it's probably his most like crystalline, well crafted short piece of fiction. I think it's three pages, four pages, and it's like you want to know how to write a short short story. Boom, Incar- uh, David Foster Wallace's Incarnation of Burned Children. Um. Another pioneer is a uh, fable about the effect of a wise child who can answer any question posed to him in a Stone Age village. I actually I quite like that one, too. Um, Let's see. Good old Neon is often called his his short story masterpiece. Um, It is the story consists of the monologue of a lonely advertising executive who commits suicide by crashing his car. Throughout the story, Neil provides a psychiatrist with stories regarding his fraudulence, deceptions, failures, and manipulations. Sort of the interior monologue of a sociopath type figure. It's pretty good. It's pretty interesting. Um, let's see. The Suffering Channel is the longest one in there, I think, is a novella. Uh, its central protagonist, Skip Atwater, is a journalist who works for the fictional style magazine at the World Trade Center. Atwood, uh, it's set in 2001. Atwood is uh, attempting to write an article about a Midwestern artist, Brent Moltke, whose excrement resembles famous cultural objects. That's funny. I like that. That one, that story is pretty entertaining, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so these do have this sort of, uh, they're wild. The, The premises are often wild. They go into dark places. But by the time of Oblivion coming out, he writes he's he, he's writing things that have that have continuity to them to the point that like i can sit down and read this and it's an enjoyable experience i i don't necessarily have to fight through a thousand pages to get to his point right he's 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 bringing some of this craft to bear i think oblivion is actually if you want to just read a david foster wallace book it's a normal length book it's not any longer than this book Right. And it's got eight or nine different short stories in it. They're all very different from each other. It's it's a it's a it's a good word. It's a good read. Um, okay. After Infinite Jest, 1998. Again, he's living in Illinois. 1998, he is introduced to this woman, Juliana Harms. She works for the Department of Children and Family Services. This is not a uh literary person or an artistic woman uh this is not a groupie fling this isn't somebody from his recovery group this is a real human being who has a normal person job she's very good at it she's attractive she's thoughtful she has her own personal history she has she's a she's a normal person from the midwest nothing wrong with her right this goes on for a little while he goes to jamaica with her uh, they end up, uh, he, he had gotten a tattoo of, of, that said Mary from Mary Carr, this woman that he stalked with a heart in it. And the Y had become kind of faded. It had become kind of faded. And he and this Juliana woman would joke and say to each other, who's Marv? Which is kind of funny. <gasps> hey, right? that's very fun. I like that. Who is Marv right. anyway, David? <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think I think it's charming that she was able to say, okay, he's got this thing. He's got a history. I've got a history. We can we can still make this work. It's not, you know. Um, yeah, if you're still dating around after 30, anybody yeah. who's interesting mm-hmm. is gonna have yep. some hefty baggage. They're gonna have some checked baggage. Well, and there's a the thing, you do too. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> if you're interesting. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. You're yeah. going to be waiting around at the airport. Something's yeah. going to be wrapped in a big cardboard box <laughs> right, right, with right. with a lot of tape. Right, right. When you arrive at the airport yeah. Yeah. of your relationship in right. the metaphor. Right, mm. right. Of course, of course. Now, she's the she's the Catholic. She's the one that he really, really at her urging, he tries to tries to get religion and it, it just doesn't work. I do think he genuinely. <sighs> Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I wonder why um, it didn't, why it didn't stick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, he wondered why it didn't stick either. I think to a certain degree, um, I cannot imagine confronting the Catholic church as an adult, having written infinite jest, having been raised by atheists. Yeah. I could see it being a little bit of a big pill to mm-hmm. swallow. Yeah. 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 I'm yeah. really going to do this. Right. Right. Yeah. I, yeah I think Can you imagine DFW like getting on his knees, standing up, sitting in the pew while everybody else yeah. goes to take communion? Weird. Yeah. It's it. You can't imagine that. But like he did take recovery very seriously. And he would mm-hmm. say sometimes about the AA, like, and I don't know AA, but like I know that a lot of the, um, I know that a lot, like it works if you work it. I know there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff that to the exterior, if you come in very like forebrain with your ironic fucking piss on yeah, everything sure. attitude, it all seems cringy and stupid, right? And oh yeah, Wallace is like, that's why it works. It works because wow. it's like simple. It's mm-hmm. you're not. It's not like some intellectual Rubik's cube yeah. that you can't think your way out of an addiction. Right. Yeah, you didn't think your way into it. You it, can't it, think your way right. out of it. And, and I think Wallace recognized that too. I mean, he's sober now, and he will be sober essentially for the rest of his life right it's not hmm. it's not the in the end it's not that drugs and the alcohol but we're getting there all right um, okay she gets him to give up nicotine too. this juliana harms she also gets him to give up mostly his habit of eating sugar i mean he ate terribly for most of his life um the one thing she did that i don't think she recognized if she was trying to help him i, I don't want to exonerate him from guilt on this but but if she if she what she was trying to do is help she got a satellite hookup on the tv (laughs) (laughs) oh it's not good oh no it's not good 75 channels oh and he would just flick he would just sit there and flick through them just you know just big brain just shrinking a little bit all the time um and he's not writing now he's barely writing he can't write with a tv he basically can't write with the tv in the house right um you literally for him you literally have to think about it like having alcohol in the house for an alcoholic right yeah yeah maybe you can maybe you can get through the night with some in the mini bar at a hotel room but you can't just have it on the shelf in clear line of sight right it's just it's not doesn't make it's not gonna work so he starts to spiral again, and it really does seem to be this TV thing that kind of kicked it off. The TV plus Damn. he's he's not able to write. He's not able to figure out what to do with this novel. He's not able to figure out, OK, what do you do after Infinite Jest? And that's a relevant question. Even if you hate Infinite Jest as a book, I mean, ask yourself the question. You're 30 something years old. You drop the biggest literary event of the last 20 years. What the hell do you do next? How much pressure is that? Right? Like just watch Sports Center. You have a MacArthur Genius Grant. They literally right. sure. Yeah, they literally yeah. came to you and said, here's a big fat check. You're a genius, by the way. 
Um, you don't have to do anything for it. They don't call it the genius grade, but everybody right. does. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. So, sure. So things start to get weird. He shoves a student at one point. He starts, uh, he goes to a Guggenheim reunion because he'd gotten a Guggenheim at one point too. And, and he won't go down to the reunion. He stays in the hotel room to like try and write. Cause he's like away from home for him for a minute. Um, he gets a new dog. He loved dogs. He gets a new dog, but this dog is like a puppy and it's way too demanding. So he's like, I can't get any writing done. He's spiraling out, he's freaking out. And eventually he starts up a relationship with a graduate student. It's not clear how many like little flings and things he had with students. It was more than a couple over the years. This one. One's not enough. Two's too many. Right. (laughs) Relationships with students. Not even once. Yeah, for real. Don't even think about it. Yeah, for real. Don't even countenance the notion. No. 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 Yeah. No. Completely flee in the other direction. Agreed. Agreed. Totally agree. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So this was so this ruins the Juliana Harms relationship, right? Oh. Um, she, you know, she's like, I'm done. We're not doing this. They were gonna get married. They didn't. I don't oh. think they got engaged, but they were like seriously talking about getting married. Oh um, that's so sad. Now he you know, he's not writing the novel. The, the question I want looming Don't through this whole go period. chasing waterfalls. <laughs> Come on, You should have listened to that. You should have listened to that. Um, I'm definitely still in the period. Yeah. We, what, what year are we in right now? I mean, now? this is like 98. This would be like 2000. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I wonder if David's listening to some Radiohead yet. He's yeah, I don't know. You know what was funny shooter. is he people would ask him what kind of music he listened to all the time. He, and he would say stuff like, I listen to stuff that's so lame, I'm embarrassed to say it in public. Whoa. And there was a certain, again, a certain kind of like trying to reach through the irony thing of like, I'm not going to just rattle off stuff that I think sounds cool. Yeah. But also I'm clever enough to know that if I say what I actually listen to, you people will judge the shit out of me. So what I get to do is instead sort of play this game and whether yeah, that's the this, thing to this do. This list of the top 10 books is something like that a little mm-hmm. bit, I think. And we will mm-hmm. talk about it very soon on the After Dark yeah. 4 Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Brad, we are so close. I can feel it. We are You're killing there. it, my friend. Thank you. You're, you're, you're <laughs> in the hour five, all on your lonesome. Ooh, 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 okay. I got We're... the chat to keep me company over here. Yeah. We're living large. <laughs> um. He does a couple things. At some point around 97, he does decide that taxes and the IRS have to be part of this next novel project. The exciting world of taxes and the IRS. Um, I want to read something about this. Um, about why. I think it's about why. Yeah. Okay. Uh. Yeah, okay, so... Okay, this is the central tenet and sort of gets to why it has to be about taxes and things. What goes on inside is just too fast and huge and all interconnected for words to do more than barely sketch the outlines of at most one tiny little part of it at any given instant. That's him saying, uh, that's him talking to, oh, that's from his story, A Good Old Neon. Now, this kind of tells us, you know, the interiority of the mind is sort of too much. Where are we, how are we going to get from this to continuing the project started in an infinite jest of like getting to the other side of irony somehow. 
Um, in the process of writing the novel he came to call The Pale King, he laid out its central tenet in one of its, his notebooks. Bliss, or I should say, quote, this is Wallace now. Bliss, a second-by-second joy and gratitude at the gift of being alive, conscious, lies on the other side of crushing, crushing boredom. Pay close attention to the most tedious thing you can find, tax returns, televised golf, and in waves, a boredom like you've never known will wash over you and just about kill you. Ride these out, and it's like stepping from black and white into color, like water after days in the desert. Instant bliss in every atom. He decided he had to write about the IRS for a bunch of reasons. You can do these sort of pension-esque, like clandestine power group stuff, and he does a little bit of that. But ultimately, what he thought was the thing that could carry us through the sort of meaning crisis of the of the early 21st century, this irony pill poisoned bullshit, right? Was if we could learn to be bored again. Maybe we could save ourselves if we could handle being bored. <laughs> and I know it sounds a little crazy, but I don't think he's entirely wrong. <laughs> True. I I tweeted about being boring and boredom today. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I'm never bored. Mm -mm. There's never any reason to be. I've got I've got my screens here. We make our podcasts. There's a million other podcasts to listen to. I got my black rectangle right here. I'm working on a new play. Yeah. 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 I can use some boredom. Right. Now I think Mm. the stuff you're doing in there that can be argued as productive in some way and everybody has to kind of define productivity their own way i don't know that he'd have an issue with that i think you have to remember he's a television addict you're talking about somebody who like television is basically like sapping his soul energy right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so what he's seen through that is like listen if you guys like you're trying to get that tiny little dopamine hit all the time by watching TV, right? That sort of cheap, easy, like this feels good to just yeah, do this all food. day long, right? right? No catharsis. Right. It's designed yeah. never to give you catharsis. You right. always got to right. come back. Right. You got to buy more chips, right. buy more soap, buy another car. Right. Mm-hmm. But but writing a play or producing a pot, that's a little different. I mean, it's entertaining, but it's not mm-hmm. the same as just sort of like on an IV drip of like, just enough True. dopamine to keep True. you from doing something else right yeah but all um, i do is doom scroll uh, telegram and twitter <laughs> oh i'm on there a lot i'm on there way too much. oh yeah. yeah oh yeah yeah now interestingly the name of a future podcast by the way is doom scroll right Got some right. ideas right yeah yeah now I, I honestly i think there's an interesting piece are you familiar with the this is water speech from his kenyan commencement speech it got turned into a book yeah. yeah yeah i want to read just a little bit because i actually think this hey. is Kenya is where uh, I should have left some for the other guys. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's where that's where that happened. <laughs> is that right? Oh, Interesting. Yeah. Oh, look at you, man! Oh, yeah. You're practically you you're practically in this I'm, episode, I'm not on just the on scene. it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I made um, it and on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think this is actually a very good piece of writing by him. This speech, and I think it actually gets to some of the stuff that he was trying to explain in his novels in a more convoluted fashion. Uh, So I'm just going to read you a little bit of it. Greetings, parents, and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, 
And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? This is a standard requirement of U.S. convention speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story thing turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre, genre. But if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise older fish explaining what the water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult ex- existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance, or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning. Okay, and let me read one more para. Um, and I submit that this is what the real no-bullshit value of your liberal, liberal arts education is supposed to be about. How to keep from going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead, unconscious, a slave to your head and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone day in and day out. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. Let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happen to be whole large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. And he goes on to explain like what you're trying to learn here is it doesn't really matter in some ways what books you read or like what philosopher you got in touch with here to get your liberal education. What we're trying to really get you to do is learn how to control your mind enough that you can control your beam of attention. I completely agree with this. And I really do worry about everybody throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to higher education and Mm -hmm. what you learn setting your mind and your focus on Mm -hmm. uh, that piece of paper for four years and the hoops you got to jump through and the scheduling you have to do and the decision making and the preparing and the learning how to write all of that mm-hmm. stuff has tremendous value mm-hmm. absolutely right? yeah if you go and th- get a theater degree and think they're going to hand you a part on broadway you're delusional right but right. it's not what it's about person not really it's not what yeah it's it gets about. it, it yeah. gets confused because everything is supposed to be like well this leads to this leads to this leads to this and it's supposed to, you think it's going to be a career like getting like uh, being a doctor right you well, like right. I, right. i'm certified as a I doctor have my, I, yeah. I have my degree in philosophy who needs some philosophy Right, right. Does anybody yeah. need some yeah. philosophy? Yeah. yeah, I would say a philosophizing like is worth about $42 an hour, right? That'll yeah, or whatever. be yeah. $18,000. <laughs> I told you. I told you once. I told you a thousand times. Four times on this episode. Yeah. I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the check. Yeah, your rate is clear. At least one thing I'll say about you, about you Kevin. Your rate is clear. Yep, yep okay. Yep. One pharmaceutical read. Yeah, yeah. Yep, um. Okay, yep. so we're, we're getting there. So, Mm. bring it in bring it in for a variety of reasons the writing is not working well the uh he slept with half of his recovery groups he decides he's got to go somewhere he ends up going out to pomona college in claremont not a big school but he ends up finding this to be a great place to be i'm going to read you just a little bit about one of his first days there he goes there with a he has a sort of a girlfriend who's going to come later but that quickly is is um put the kibosh on that um the first few days brought two visitors, 
Freyden, uh, uh, the woman who invited him to the program, came with one of her daughters and fruit and Baba Ganoush. And Karen Green also dropped by. When Wallace was still in Bloomington, Green, a visual artist, had asked him for permission to turn uh, the depressed person, that's the story about Elizabeth Wurzel, into a grid of illustrated panels. Now she brought the finished artwork along with a housewarming gift of Ikea ice trays. The story, Wallace's act of anger against Elizabeth Wurzel, ends without hope. The depressed person cannot break out of the cage of solipsism that her terrible and unceasing emotional pain has placed her in. Green had to reimagine the story so that in the last panel of her painting, she is cured. When Wallace saw that Green had, what Green had done, he was pleased. He told her that she had turned it into a story that people would want to read. That day in Claremont, he offered to make lunch for her. <clears throat> there were lamps scattered everywhere. She counted 14 and towels stretched out to dry on the furniture. Uh, Wallace would shower like six or eight times a day sometimes. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. The sweating thing, right? The sweating. The, yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, like, a, like a quirky Bond villain kind right, of quality right, to that. That's right. very funny. Yeah. His fridge turned out to contain only hot dogs and goldfish crackers. When Green asked if Wallace had mustard, he told her, I'm not really that into condiments. They went to a park <laughs> and, and uh, Werner, her dog, jumped on her and tore out her belly button ring. Ouch. Ooh. She came back a few weeks later, the day before her birthday, with the mutual friend and Wallace prepared her hot dogs and put them in the frilly paper cuffs that usually attire lamb chops. And they would get married. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Man. Now here's the thing. So, and they don't get married right away. Six months later or so, he goes with her um, uh, to Hawaii for Christmas. They're kind of testing out the waters. Um, it, later on, Amy, David Foster Wallace's sister, would say Karen was the best thing for him. She understood him. She saw him. She wasn't trying to, she wanted the best out of him, but she wasn't trying to change the fundamental things about him, right? She wasn't trying to change the fact that all he had in the fridge was was hot dogs, but she was concerned that he'd not go off the rails in the way that he could. And he was like, for the first time, totally upfront with her about all the issues, right? All of his stuff. He wasn't trying to hide things from her or anybody anymore, right? And so it worked, it ended up, it, for a while, it was working out quite good. Yeah. Things haven't been the same since Marv and I broke up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who's Marv? <laughs> Can't quit you, Marv. <laughs> yeah. There's there's also this charming thing once they get married uh, where he would ask friends for husband tips. And just be like, do you have any good tips on being a husband? <laughs> I just think I just find that really char I find that charming for some reason. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So now. We're kind of we are getting we are getting towards the end here. Um, let's see. They get married um, and, and they get married just at a courthouse with some with a, a few uh, members of their family and their friends. Um, they their first night, they just stay in a crappy motel uh, in Urbana back in Illinois, uh, watching Law and Order, he says. Um and, you know, she moves with him to Claremont. They had had some time where they were living apart. She was living in Arizona. They move into his place in Claremont, and it's like a bachelor pad. And I don't mean like a swank bachelor pad. I mean like socks on the floor and like the, you know, beard hair in the sink bachelor pad. And they eventually kind of get it cleaned up and turned into a, into a respectable house. Um, and then he starts to be able to write. There's some stability. He's got this woman who actually cares about him. There's still money from the MacArthur Grant and Infinite Jest, and he's teaching, doing the best teaching he's ever done. Um, but he's still struggling 
he's still fundamentally struggling with the pale king. He can't seem to get it nailed down. He describes it at one point as trying to, um, uh, as like wrestling with a big sheet of plywood in a high windstorm, right? As you can imagine, you're like trying to like ring, and that's what a, writing a novel feels like anyway. And this may for him have been an extreme case. Uh, there's, you know, and there's a bunch of distractions. I think one of them is actually he was enjoying his life for the first time. Um, he had a wife that he liked. She liked him, right? He, she had a, she had a son who he was, he was getting to be a dad a little bit, right? Enough to, yeah, he liked yeah. the kid and the kid liked him, right? Oh, and like nice. they were building a relationship and he had students mm. he loved and he loved the college and he had all these good things happening. And I think, so part of it was the distractions, like how do you even focus? And then if life is, if your life is so great, do you even want to write the project that you were launched on? Is there even a point to it? And it starts to get kind of confused, right? Um, and then he starts thinking like my aching desire to try and write this book is somehow ruining my life. And does it even matter? And maybe should I even bother? Maybe I should just do these easy nonfiction pieces. They take me a month. I get to go see something cool and they pay me a bunch of money. Maybe I should just do that. Um, anyway, um, something happens 2007. He has a, like a, some kind of episode at a restaurant and, um, it turns out he goes to the doctor and it turns out the doctor's like this Nardle stuff is old school that you're on. It's got a lot of side effects. I think we should get you off of it and try something else. David Foster Wallace goes off Nardle in 2007. And at first he just feels peculiar. Uh, just mm. feels a little off, you know, mm. and then it descends into this kind of heavy fatigue, almost like flu like symptoms. It sounds like withdrawing from heroin or something, right? Yeah. Just like yeah, fatigue and you can't get out of bed and whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they're trying, they're thinking about putting him on something else, but he reaches this point where he's like, no, I think what I'm, I think I'm on the bottom of a like, there's going to be a rebirth out of this. Like I'm going to finally get all this out of my system and I'm going to be able to have like a Karen, his wife called it a union rebirth. That's what he thought he was going to have. Hmm. And, you know, maybe he could have, right. I, I, I mean, I don't know, but um, there's this thing trying to think about how to, how to describe this. We're going to talk more in depth about this stuff at the end. Um, he's, he's not a normal guy, right? The brain never stops. And again, you don't have to like infinite jest to understand that you're dealing with a, a person whose brain works a little bit differently than the rest of ours. I think we can see that through the story here. Um, and he, at, coming off the Nardle, he pretty much just destabilizes. Um, he, he, he starts getting weird in class. His students notice he cries on the last day of class and there he's sort of like making, he feels like he's sort of getting made fun of. And this is one thing I, I, I don't think I, I pointed out clearly enough. And I, I just want to state this point as we're drawing to the end. Infinite jest got a lot of attention and David Foster Wallace thought he wrote a sad book and he didn't understand why everybody was laughing at it so much. When he would do public readings, he didn't understand why people were laughing. He felt like uh, a lot of the critics hadn't quite understood it. When he's giving that commencement speech at um, Kenyon, there's this great bit. I recommend people listen to it. It's on YouTube. You can hear him speak saying it. There's this great, and it's better than reading it because there's this moment where he's talking about um, 
he's talking about going to the grocery store and like judging he's talking about like from like a liberal perspective like judging somebody in a big suv gas guzzler kind of thing and everybody laughs and he has this moment he's like i wish i had it in front of me but he's like no i'm serious like you're judging these people like he's trying to tell them like no you're you're wrong to do that and they're like laughing as though you can sense that he's like not getting his point across and i i think i think there that was also a common theme of not quite being understood and sort of taking Mm -hmm. that hard at times um you know and and partially like the infinite just some of the reviews came in and it was like there's no way you could have read this in time to write this review for sure for sure. Like, what are you talking oh, about? Yeah. Like, you don't have an opinion about this, right? Yeah, you don't really care. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's tricky, right? So anyway, June 2008, he has dinner with uh, Michael, uh, David Sedaris, who people probably know, and Michael Peach, his editor. And then 10 days after that, again, he's spiraling off this Nardole thing. He tries to kill himself in a motel room by taking all of the pills he could find. He survives this and he is hospitalized. He gets ECT again. 12 rounds this time and this time franzen comes to visit jonathan franzen comes to visit and sees a shell of his former self so the folks in the chat who said ect ruined him i think the last round was in was part of the final i i don't think you can argue against it that's part of the final thing i think the earlier ones may have been beneficial years earlier than this maybe um but anyway by september of 2008 he tried nardle again tried to get back on it uh, but basically it didn't help anymore. Didn't do what it used to do. Um, and then while Karen was out running an errand, uh, David Foster Wallace, age 46, killed himself. And we're going to talk more details about that in the after dark. Um, and about more about the pale King, which himself? did come out posthumously. What's that? How did he kill himself? He hung himself. Oh, he hung himself. Yeah. We're going to give you more details about no that. No more pills. No more pills. We're going for it. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Ah, uh, I wish he could have made it. I, I know. Wish he, I wish he could have made it. Yeah, I know. That one, that one hurts. It that hurt. hurts. It was in a way more than Hemingway because Hemingway had lived such a big. Hemingway felt like he lived to be a hundred. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wallace, for Four for days. a writer, forty six is. You're not old yet as a writer. You're really not. I mean, McCarthy just dropped these novels. Was 89 years old, right? Celebrated novels. There's hope. There's hope, fellas. Right. And ladies. mm -hmm. (sighs) Well, that's about that's about after dark. That's all you got. (laughs) You only have uh, four and a half hours, and then another 30 minutes for after dark. Brad. Yeah. And everybody in the chat is saying great episode. Oh, thanks. Good. Good. Appreciate everybody who's hanging out. We appreciate all of our listeners. Uh, whether you're able to support the podcast materially or not, we genuinely appreciate you listening. We are going to go for another 30 minutes or so on the After Dark for Patreon. I'll say the URL one more time. It's patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. That gets you access to every single After Dark episode we do. We do one of those for every episode. We also do quarterly recaps. We call them postmortems. We do a book club bookends we're getting ready to read nutcranker we've got some other books coming up and that is like a live zoom chat with mm-hmm. uh brad me and some other folks who are patreon subscribers and if you can't was, i'm looking forward that to that that was a patreon oh yeah that was a oh yeah was, the first yeah. one was a lot of fun yeah it's yeah. gonna be good uh, we record those too so it's just more content more stuff you can enjoy 
we really try to create uh, some value here for people. And we appreciate all the support. And if you're not going to get on Patreon just now, give us five stars. Tell three friends about Art of Darkness. Tell them you learned all sorts of crazy stuff about David Foster Wallace, like the fact he shares his initials with a major international airport. (laughs) That was my contribution. Right. That was was good. It's true. Brad, excellent job. Excellent job. Well, we got to close with the question before we come back Ah, for After Dark. Yeah. What do you what do you think he would be doing now? This is in DFW was alive and he could still be alive like his age. Oh, I mean, he would be 70. No, he would be 60, 60, 61. Yeah, Yeah, he would have turned 61. He'd be Hemingway's age at the end. So what's he doing now? I mean, I think I think he writes. I think Pale King comes out in the format he wanted. Pale King was um, was uh, not finished. Um, parts of it were finished and was sort of assembled. I they did as good as they could, and I think it's a great book, and I think people should read it. I think, I think, I think it's, I think it's a real, I think it's a serious piece of fiction. I quite, I, I think it's his best work. Um, he so he he would have done that, and he would have continued to write, and I think we would have seen this evolution continue. And I think, I think he would have eventually, if he could have made it another while, I think eventually he would have found something like maybe he wouldn't have found god in the catholic sense but i think he would have found something like that mm-hmm. that that filled that 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 he was able to to adhere himself to in a meaningful way to keep him afloat um and i think we would have mm-hmm. seen some of i think i think he would have calmed and i think the calmer david foster wallace got actually the better the writing got right so mm-hmm. I, yeah mm-hmm. I wonder if you ever would have tried his hand at TV. It's possible. I think he thought TV was the problem, though. But maybe not. Maybe uh, not now. I don't know. It's hmm. hard to say. He he could have changed on that too. So. And what what year did he die? It was two thousand eight. Eight. Not yeah. that long ago. And not yet, really. it is the before time in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Well, that was another core episode. We've got some really good stuff coming up. Who are you covering next, uh, Brad? Now that uh, you've finished. I know what this feeling feels like, by the way. Yeah. I've done a bunch of these now. So yeah. it's a feeling of relief. You could put the your own personal reflection of DFW's ghost. You can put it on the shelf along with yeah. Infinite Jest now for a yeah. while. Yeah. Uh, what are you on to next? Uh, Borges. Oh, that's going to be a gem. I don't know yeah. a damn thing about Borges. I do now. I didn't before. I just started yesterday. Okay. So it's good. Yeah. And I am great. preparing Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. they ever dated. <laughs> mm, I don't know. Maybe they bumped into each other at a uh, at Yato. It's possible. <laughs> Yada! <laughs> with a boot, with a bottle of booze, just yelling it at the moon. I can see it now. 